I have seen this world's demise. More sleep, the accursed orb waxes against crimson skies. Magic rises and reality subsides, leaving only madness in its wake. Vermin cease their gnawing and swarm to the surface, answering their horned master's call. First to fall are the temples of the old ones, abandoned by defenders who knew that the end draws near. Mankind does not recognize its doom. Not yet. They hear only the drums in the north and know that war has come. Some will fight. Others will abandon reason, seeking salvation in scripture or the scourge. They are deceived. The dark brothers are stronger than ever before, and the old gods fade. Only in death will any respite be found. In a land of mist, the danger is closer still. Pride has ever been the folly of that shrouded land, and so it will be again. When the dragons fly as one, an ancient lie will at last be exposed. A revelation that will shake Althuan to the roots of its mountains. The mirror of light and dark will shatter, and Anarian's heirs will fight for the legacy of Cain amidst the ashes of the phoenix. The three-eyed king has long awaited this moment, the hour in which his destiny is at last unveiled. He leads an army of madness and rage against which no sane being would willingly stand. Perhaps I am not sane, as I will fight one last time. Not for victory, but for survival. For the hope that a spark can endure. It is a slender hope, and the laughter of the dark gods rings loud in my ears. These are the end times. Welcome to the Garage Tools. For the next three or four hours, or thereabouts, we're going to do the best we can to inform, entertain, and perhaps have a laugh or two along the way. Bringing you Manfred, Archon, and Nagash. I'm Chris Yu. And I'm Skip Stevenson. Ooh, we're going old school. Hey, Nagash is old school, man. It is old school. Coming back from the dead. Yes, yes. Plus, no time to... Dude, no time to guess that movie. We got <laughs> Nagash coming. We do got Nagash coming. Yeah, dude. Oh, boy, what a great read. But before we get into that, we got to thank our sponsors. Okay, so thank you to Unique Gifts and Games in... Raised Lake, Illinois. Mierce Miniatures. M-I-E-R-C-E Miniatures. Mantic Games. Building bigger armies. And finally, Battle Foam. Protecting your army. All right. There we go. That's them. Thank you. Um, okay, so this is the point where we do voicemails and we do um you know shout outs and everything. Yeah. Uh listen, here's the voicemail number. One 757-GH-SHOW-6, unless you're an international caller, 00, no, 011-757-GH-SHOW-6. Um, we'd love some voices. We've gotten a few. We're not going to play them now, though, because, seriously, we got like four hours of Nagash coming Nagash up. Nagash is calling. We yes. can't wait. The, yes. We are under the influence of the great necromancer, and we must move along. So uh, when we come back, you are going to hear an awesome bunch of fluff from a great book and uh chris tomlin from the black sun will be with us oh i can't wait and surprisingly the only one who needs to get beeped in this episode is me mm, i don't think that's entirely true well but... I'm, I'm just about the only one because i i yeah uh, well for some reason i <laughs> listeners you listen and you keep score i can't uh i can't I don't know why I had that phrase in my head, but I was, like I said, I was watching Cinema Sins, and the guy says that a lot when people are rude to other people in the in the movie or the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had that written so many times in my notes, and it just, 
it spiraled out of control and became a thing. <laughs> it did. It did. It did. So, Get that cuckoo clock ready. Goodness. So, okay, folks, we will be back in a few minutes, and we really hope you enjoy um, this first half of Nagash because we, dude, we really enjoyed it too. So, all right, Chris. Yep. We'll be back. Let's do it. That's right, folks. Chaos Orc Superstore, your one-stop shop for all your hobby gaming needs. They've not only got current and classic GW releases, Chessex Dice, and Vallejo Paints, but now they're also carrying Mantic, Infinity, Flames of War, Privateer Press, Soda Pop, Dark Age, and other assorted boarded miniature-based games. They usually ship within 24 hours, and the model in the picture is the model they ship to you, because at Chaos Orc Superstore, what you see is what you get. Chaos Orc Superstore. Hey folks, it's Dave. Are you looking for that special model to add to your army? A monstrous creature or maybe a character model? Something unusual that not everybody else is fielding on their table? Well, then you should check out Mierce Miniatures at MierceMiniatures.com. Their Darklands line is full of some of the most fantastic creature models you'll ever see. And with the success of their recent Kickstarter, those models will be perfect for you to play in their forthcoming Darklands game. So whether you're looking for a new skirmish-level game to play with lots of cool monstrous creatures, or you're just looking for that extra special model to add to your existing games line, Mears Miniatures is really worth your time. Check them out at Mears-Miniatures.com, and seriously, guys, you'll be glad you did. Back to the Garage Your Tools, Nagash Book One review is uh, underway, and joining us is our good friend Chris Tomlin from the Black Sun. How you doing, Chris? Hi guys, how's it going? Well, welcome back. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, yeah. Skype yeah, problems, we're... folks. It's uh, take two for us here. Two at twenty-two minutes past two a.m. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see now that's like good luck. Take two at 222. Now it's all going to go smooth. Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah, knock on wood. There we go. <laughs> all right. So, okay, before we get into covering this Nagash here, book one, we talked about how um, before, how you know, people keep saying this is moving the timeline forward, but I was, I, I was saying how uh, I feel almost like it's just bringing the timeline back to where it was because when 8th edition came up, Everybody said, hey, where's the Storm of Chaos? They pulled it back and and deleted it. And now here we are a few years later, several army books, several black library books, and suddenly we're getting the Storm of Chaos again. Yeah, it does, does feel like it's almost a, a retelling, really. We've pulled the timeline 
back to just before that we've got as we'll get on to Archeon being crowned as the ever chosen and it's it's almost like we're setting down that same path again but this time yeah we're filling out what's going on across all the races a lot more so i think it's it's hugely exciting really isn't it it is it is it's as if they have a better handle on things and they have a clear direction a plan in terms of what they want to do and they're really giving it its proper due this time around yeah i think that's a great point yeah definitely although no cult slanesh as of yet so mm. uh, hopefully we see that come back <laughs> it's early wait till we get the chaos book. yeah they're there <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um yeah, I mean, this is like you could see that they've really learned from all the 30K stuff they've been putting out and all the going back and, you know, sort of they they know their lore and their stories. Um, but now they're finally giving it to us. And in such a fantastic format, I mean, you know, you start to wonder if Storm of Chaos originally, you know, was was basically them telling as much as they could in their format. And now it's like, well, now let's give them everything. Yeah, perhaps they just didn't. Maybe this is what they always wanted it to be, but never previously had the capability to, I don't know, put out this sort of stuff. Yeah, because, um, you know, between between all the hints in the Big Red book and each little army book with, you know, in the Vampire Count story and the especially the uh, High Elves and the Dwarf books, mm. these bits of story coming out. And then uh, even more recently, um, the the Tyrion or the Teclas and uh, Tyrion trilogy that Black Larry put out about a year or so ago, the uh, uh, Blood of an Arian, Sword of Kalidor, and uh, I can't think of the name of the third book, but I mean the events in there. There's things that happen with Teclas, with Tyrion, with the Ever Queen um, that directly relate to what's in this book. I mean, stuff is being laid out. If you go back read that, you could read Sigmar's Blood, the novelization that they put out in Black Library, all of these stories. I actually have the the Rise of Nagash, or the Return of the, the the one that they just put out at the same the same day that this came out, the 400-page hardcover Black Library. You didn't read that one, did you? I haven't had time yet, but okay. it's, it's on the list. <laughs> now I'm still trying to plug through Nagash and write up my 30-some-odd pages of notes for this episode. <laughs> yeah. I was furiously typing away. I mean, there's a lot to cover. Oh. So I guess we should get through, but I'm just I'm just saying this this you, you could tell that they've planned this out for a long time. So when everyone's been asking, what are they doing? Why are they moving this? How come it never moves? Just it, it's so cool. All the little bits and pieces finally fall together, and they hand us what I think not not including some of the Black Library stuff, but even you know actually you could even include it. This is probably the best thing I've read that they've put out, and that includes Tamarcon. And that includes a, a, even some of the 30K stuff for the Horus Heresy. This is just... I agree. I haven't, I haven't been as excited about Warhammer and the, the fluff in particular in, well, forever probably. And it's, it's even just the quality of the book. It's just such a nice book to hold. And the art, uh, as we were saying before, is uh, a mixture of some, some of the really nicer old stuff and also some fantastic new pieces as well that we've not seen before. So, yeah, it's an absolute joy, I think, just to flick through and read, really. Yeah, the art. We talked about the the photography, and they've really taken the yeah. photos up uh, several steps. Really, just in, they're really engaging. The use of fog and the lighting, and to create recreate these battles uh, visually for you that you've just read about. It really, I don't know about you guys, but it really stirs my blood to want to get on the table and play some games. Even using armies that I've never had any interest in before, they make them look really, really good. 
that's that's a great point. Yeah, it's made some characters that I mean, as David mentioned, the Tyrion and Teclis books. Their character, whilst I love our elves, those two are characters that have never really appealed to me. And due to some of the events that we'll cover in this book, I'd love to go back and uh, see what they were getting up to that led up to it as well. Now, so mm-hmm. I think it puts a spin on, as you say, making everything seem interesting. Really, it's serious though, Chris. If you're even remotely interested, go with that Blood of Anirian series because it, dude, it's tip top. Yeah, I'll check it out. And I, I, unlike Chris, really enjoyed the uh, Sundering. (laughs) 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 It did three years to read because I only read it once on holidays. But yeah, apart from the Ali Fanar running with the wolves, other than that, good (laughs) stuff. Well, yeah, that's uh, maybe we should cover that on another show. But uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but even like you said, those, these photographs. I mean, this is what really got me to really get excited about Warhammer in the first place. When I first saw even the stuff in the in the uh, army books, and in particular, uh, I would say the Bretonian army book. When you, if you go through and grab that soft cover one, that well, it's the only one still. If you go flipping through it, they've got the pictures of of the lance, you know, of, of knights, and the background, like the trees are all blurry and stuff. Like it looks like they're moving. And they've really, you know, brought that out. You almost want to just grab it and start throwing. I mean, do you see these pictures? Like you said, it, it makes you not only want to play, but you want to play it sort of like they wrote it in the book. Like I'm not, I'm not worried about percentages and and lists. I'm worried about. I, I'd like to. Almost yeah, they really pull they you into the world. Yeah, it's, it's a real visceral world, visceral experience. You know, with the the armor and the miniatures and everything. It's yeah, they do a good job of really bringing it to life. They do, and it's like you look at the pictures after just reading about any said battle, and you look and you see, oh yeah, there's that terror geist that was mentioned, yeah. and it's all the and it's I don't know, it's just really cool. Like you say, it is like you read the story, you think, oh, I'd love to play that as a battle. Flip the page, there it is. It's mm-hmm. happening right there, and yeah, fantastic stuff. Really, really inspirational, I think. And what you were saying, uh, Chris, with uh, you know the idea of people get being excited for the fluff. This to me is like it's like I'm, I'm like dancing every time I turn on a podcast and I hear like Dan Helan. I've read the whole he read the whole book before Wayne. I'm listening to that today, and I'm like Dan Helan not only read the fluff, but read the whole the whole book. I mean, I haven't finished the whole book yet. So well, haven't you? I, I, you know what? I, I I here's the thing. I read the first half, and then I stopped and went back and started taking notes on the first half. So I literally. I mean, yeah. I, I had yeah, just I feel like time. I've read it three times to <laughs> yeah. really pick up all the details. But um, it, I think it's just great how many people are, you know, despite all the, the, the conversations about, you know, the, the new rules for for this particular, you know, the, the, these, these campaign games and all the stuff in there, everybody seems to be really focused on the fluff on this is so good. The story is so good. Yeah, I mean, for me, it brings it back to like before the podcast and the getting drunk at tournaments before that, what really got me into the hobby and what I was all about was the fluff and was the imagery and that. So it really, it really brings that home, I think. And it seems to be doing that to a lot of people. So regardless of rules aside and 10 page arguments on forums as to whether or not it's legal, <laughs> whatever, it's, it's nonsense because it's what it's doing for us as the hobby, I think is just brilliant. I don't think there's any argument to be said for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agree. So shall we jump into it? Yeah, let's do it. So we, I mean, and I love it. I'm opening up and there's pages and pages of these great pictures with these just little, little bits, just talking about how doom is coming and destruction is coming. And yeah, and, the ancient lie will at last be exposed, a revelation that will shake off one to the roots of its mountains. Come on. If that doesn't get you going, what's wrong with you? <laughs> 
And then you get this first little full-page story. Krotgar is asking for reinforcements. He really needs them. He says he does. We should listen to him. You know, you've got these little, you've got these um, skinks coming, and uh, Mazda Mundi is, is sort of psychically summoning them. And this guy gets this vision of destruction and fire. Comet is no, the comet, the twin-tailed comet has been seen again. It's not an omen of hope. It's a portent of doom. That's impossible. It's so tech. Then all of a sudden, he goes, the great plan, and Mazda Mundi's corpulent bulk shifted upon the dais. The great plan has failed. The slant intoned heavily. The exodus must begin. It's, oh, no. <laughs> the great the, plan the, the, has talk about, yeah, t- Talk about mo- moving the, the narrative. So they've moved on. They've given up on the great plan, whatever that was. And now they're moving on to... You know, this exodus, where are they going? You know, back onto that ship that we talked about before? Are they going to fly <laughs> off? Or, you know Indiana what I mean? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that. what a great opening. Then you turn over the page, the beginning of the end. You're like, all right, so let's get into this. And this is a nice way to do this. You get about two to four pages of every single race in the game, except the Chaos Dwarfs, because as all you guys in Britain say, they're not a real army. Mm. Um, there is another sort of exception as well, which I suppose we'll get onto if we do it in a, in order as well. But well, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. But so it starts off with uh, you know chaos is here, and um, I just I really love. I mean, they're setting this up so well. Chaos has been trying to take over the world for millennia, and now nations have like sort of formed to keep themselves safe from chaos, but. They're like uh, they're like a you know they're hollow inside they're rotting from the inside chaos is corrupting them um, you know more the, 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 as this is happening and the, the the comets coming through more sleep is getting close warp stones falling from the sky people are just getting up and leaving their homes and just following the call of chaos um, and then you get the four- I just love the idea it's weird. what were you saying. Yeah, so I was just, I'm just, yeah, the winds of chaos, the chaos storms, and just demons appearing everywhere, ransacking things, and then just disappearing as soon as they, as soon as they came, just that sort of thing, just mm-hmm. popping up all over the place. It's not really knowing what's going on. State of madness across everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> are Are you guys familiar with that term? Um, I think it's pronounced Gehemnisnacht. Gehemnisnacht. Yes. Uh, uh, so I did a little research. I don't know how much you know, but for, for the sake of our listeners, I thought I might read a, an entry that I found. Uh, it's Gehemnishnacht, or the Night of Mysteries, is the Ill, most ill-omened night of the year. It is only one of two nights, the other being Hexenschnacht, in which Morslieb, the accursed chaos moon, is full. Furthermore, it is the night when Morslieb is closest to the world whilst it is uh, highly in its highly elliptical orbit. Uh, during this night, the winds of magic grow strong. It enables demons to travel the world of mortals. Um, and then they talk about uh, in the different realms of the world, it's known as different things. So in the Empire, it's called Gehemnishnacht. In Bretonia, it's called Winter's Eve. The dwarves call it Ars, Ar Uzkul. And the elves call it Twilight's Tide. And then there's an entry in here that says it's unclear if the dark elves call this night Death Night. It may be the same or it may not. Interesting. I don't know that. Uh, this is from the uh, Warhammer Lexiconum. Ooh, I found that. Look so, at you. A little bit of background for uh, sleep and Gehemnishnacht, or however you say it. The first time <laughs> I heard about it was in the very first Gotrek and Felix short story in the first book, because that's when that story takes place. 
And uh, yeah, it's like it's the night that everybody stays inside and closes their doors and hides because nothing good happens on that night. It's it's like the equivalent of Halloween. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Some respect. laughs> it's it's the, it's the equivalent of Halloween if the, all those things that the kids dress up on actually came through and and bothered us. Right. It'd be it'd be great to play like a uh, an epic Warhammer game like in your garage on Halloween night. Oh, that could be fun. <laughs> So anyway, a little bit of background there. Yeah, I, well, thank you. That was great. Um, so what happened? Oh, the, this is where this is where the far exalted demons bow their knee to RK on the ever chosen Lord of the End Times. Bellacor crowns him. Um, what an image that is! It's brilliant. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And then um, what is it? Then I love how the winds are spreading their corruption. Um, you know, let's see, what does it say here? Blood falls as rain, seething and searing wherever it touches the living. Proud cities that stood for hundreds of years collapse into fetid squalor as the water they relied on for life turned black and noxious. Everywhere mortals are overcome by selfish desire and wanton impulses, throwing themselves into the most obscene and blasphemous acts. So it's just, oh, well, this is kind of interesting, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, there's some dark, dark tales in there as well. The sister of Shalaya, how it's pronounced, um, cutting out, a, cutting up the people she's been sort of pre- preaching with, and um, yeah. yeah, it gets a bit dark in places. Oh, yeah. Stuff of gothic horror movies, right there. Yeah, in Bet- in Bretonia at the cathedral, one of the bishops uh, puts the slime from his blackened sores into the water and causes it's people. Plague. Yeah, causes plague. Um, it just, I mean, it's, it gets, it gets sick and it gets insane. Um, one of the things I like is that, you know, Archeon is sitting there and he's, and people are coming to him and he's crowning, he's waiting and waiting and they don't know what he's waiting for. And some of the tribes get impatient and take off and he's like, who cares? Let him go. He goes, I, he knows he can't even control all these tribes. He's not even going to try to, those who leave early are going to get slaughtered and let him winnow out the weak willed and the, and the weak. He's uh, just biding his time. Yeah, because he sees a vision, and he doesn't care because he sees a vision of the the world is not going to be won by contemporary war. This is going to be war without end, which always makes me think of 40K. In the far future, there is only war. It's like the end times are here. It's like, oh, God, that's in four pages. They give you such a sick vision of what the world, what's happening. I mean, nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that whole storm of chaos, that whole book tells you stuff like this, but in four pages they encapsulate that. Uh, and then we move on to the Dark Elves. And boy, are they in trouble. Yeah, they, they, they really are. And this, this does deviate sort of really from what was going on in the storm of chaos. So it's sort of gone a different direction here. And it's, uh, yeah, again, it's, it's just two, two pages on the Dark Elves, but it, it really sets the scene for, for where they're at, I think. So... Uh, you get some mentions of Malice Darkblade as well, which is always nice seeing him popping up in there. Well, and Valky is coming. She doesn't wait for Archeon either. She hears the call of Corn. Corn wants blood, and she goes to get it. What What's interesting to note in here is it mentions um, basically the, the Dark Elf, all the all the Dreadlords and Nobles sitting around trying to s- decide what to do, and then essentially waiting three months for uh, Malakith to return, and no one's really sure where he's been. I mean, I've got got some my own theories on that from some of the stuff that happens later. But, yeah, it's sort of interesting. And I don't think there's really any mention of Marathi at this time either, is there? Well, no, because he sends Darkblade to go get him. To go get her. Remember, he says, I want you to get... And I want my mom brought back unharmed, no matter what happens. Um, yeah. 
I thought was interesting is that, uh, okay, so they, they go and they're attacking places. Grand is silent behind a shield of sorcery. You know, there's no advance warning. Um, and that's all they say about it. So is Grand just, has it defended itself or has, have, have the demons like locked it up? I, I'm not even certain what's going on there. Uh, Vorloth is later. I love, they go and attack Harganeth, and the Dark Elves there are more bloodthirsty than the demons. <laughs> that is the wrong city to try to take. That's like, you know, that's Execution where... style. Yeah, well, that's big <laughs> leagues right there. Yeah. Um, and Hagrave, Malice Darkblade holds Hagrave, but that's all he does. Like, as the, if, if, the, if the tide of chaos swarms to the left and right and goes around him, he couldn't care less, because if Malekith dies, he's fine with it. But he's holding his own. Hmm. Um, so yeah, Curran Darkhand holds it for months. Malekith shows up, and then you get this great little bit. Hold on, what does he say here? It has long been his plan to commence a new assault against hated Ulthuan, but such a thing was impossible while Nagaroth was beset. Calling the dragon Ser- Seraphon to his side, Malekith cast the bloodied horde from Nagaroth's walls and ordered the return of all Nagarothi forces bound for Ulthuan. Ancient vengeance would wait until the upstart invaders had been taught the folly of their actions. Is this a horde of demons attacking me? Oh, no, 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 no. This is my house. Well, first of all, it's hard to imagine Malekith in a, a good humor, I think it said, in the <laughs> right, in a, he's in a good mood. <laughs> That's hard to imagine. There are times if you read the books he's and he's in a good mood. Get... Yeah. When 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 things are going swimmingly and the dark elves are getting slaves and killing all their enemies and stuff, he's he's actually in in quite a good mood. He's a sick person, but yeah, whatever makes you happy, I guess. But yeah, you know, aside from these few pages, the the dark elves are very quiet. I found in the first three chapters of this book. I don't think they yeah, show they up I mean... again. They don't, they don't. Um, and I mean, do you, do you think there's sort of like an early hint there where it talks about the ancient vengeance will wait? And is, it, is that an early precedent for some future unification, do you think, where it's sort of laying the, the ground stones that look, th- th- there could be things more important than their, this ancient enmity between the High Elves and the Dark Elves? Do you, do you see yeah. that at all? No? This, this is definitely yeah, going to well. get, yeah, that's going to be addressed in a later book, you could tell. I mean, yeah, like you even said, he shows up after being gone with three months. With, with nobody asking him, he his hands are all co- or his gauntlets are all covered in blood. Like he hasn't even cleaned himself off. It's like, oh boy. But yeah, he's definitely this. You know, there's a couple of armies that are very quiet in this particular book. Right, I'm sure they're yeah they'll be under the the microscope in later books. I'm sure. So it'll be interesting to see how they develop these stories. <laughs> Understand, Lord Darkblade, we are concerned that there may have been an element of treachery at work in the North. Take any action you think proper, but know that we expect our mother to be returned to us unharmed. All other concerns are secondary. You know, so it's like, perform it well, but don't forget we've had our fill of failure. I love how Malice, or how uh, uh, Malekith talks about him. It's almost like Gollum. He calls himself we. We're not happy. We want our mother back. Does he mean him and his, his mother sort of as a plural? They've sort of got this weird Oedipus thing going on, haven't they? <laughs> but he says, we want our mother back. So, I mean, it can't, it can't be him and Marathi wants Marathi back. Yeah, it's just, hmm. ugh. But then, of course... Oh, go ahead, Chris. 
Yeah, it'd be good to see more of uh, Malice Darkblade, I think, because the old, the old comics and graphic novels and then the, the novels they filled those stories out with, I've, I always really enjoyed. So, whereas there's not been much of him in the sort of fluff separately, it's mostly just been sort of Black Library stuff. So, it'd be good to see. It sounds like he might get a bit more of a role when the Dark Elves come in, hopefully. It seems like a few people are out for him. Kuran doesn't seem to like him too much. Mm-hmm. No. Well, like I said, I'm excited to see where they go with it because that was a race that got, they, they got two pages. And then we didn't see them again, at least in the first half of the book. Um, but then we flip over to the High Elves. And this is really cool. Ulthuan has this short time where they're not getting attacked by any Dark Elves. And they don't know what is it. Then Red Lightning shows up. Demons arrive. And everything on Ulthuan except the Elves is getting twisted by chaos. The animals, the the plants, the ground. Um, the, the rivers of Kathik and Illyrian uh, are infected. Uh, Elisa and Tordinal are completely overrun. And then Finubar decides, I need to find out what's going on, and seals himself up in his tower to, like... Yeah, he just disappears to meditate. Yeah, to scry for answers. And so all you have are these other heroes just basically trying to, you know, save the save the land. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Emmerich comes forward and sort of says, look, what's, what's going on here? Yeah. He basically says he's forfeited the crown, doesn't he, um, by, by locking himself up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so by his action, by his inaction, that he's, he's yeah. stepping aside. So, yeah, Imric, uh I think, attempts to step up. And I'm glad they brought him back because he was back in the 7th edition High Elf book, but not in the 8th. Right. And he's got I'm a point, though. I mean, Trace and Kathik are overrun. Uh, Illyrian and Avalorn are in trouble. Uh, the Ever Queen takes off and tries to head to the Gay and Vale, um, and it basically, you know, Imric is like, you know, someone's got to take charge here. And while that's going on, finally, Tyrion and Teclis return from trying to save um, Eliathra. And I love it. Teclis is just appalled at the politics. He looks around and says, oh, look, everybody who supports Imric is getting all the help of the Kelador army. Anybody who doesn't is screwed. I think that's the standard Caledorian way, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Uh, too proud. Yeah. And so Tyrion and Teclis have to figure out something. I love how Teclis is like, they're right, though. Finubar shouldn't be up there. So he's just going to break in takes him three days to unlock the wards that um, Finnebar's put up around the place, though. Yeah, three days to figure it out, and three days to figure it out, and one day to actually open it up and go in there. And when he comes out, like the, the next day, they say he's just really—he look the Teclis is more pale than normal. He must have been translucent, I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that's all they say. It's like, okay, what? Yeah. What just happened yeah. there? Yeah, he didn't get any more about that. So that's that's interesting. Now Tyrion wants to go back for Aliathra. Which, once again, if you read that other trilogy, you, you know why already. And uh, Teclis is like, uh, you can't, you can't. He's like, you need to, you need to fix this. Um, and uh, so he, he wants some guidance. So he heads to the Shrine of Assyrian. This is great. He takes Eltherian and Eldira with him. Um, you know, his two closest friends and, 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 and leaders of Ulthuan. Um The Phoenix Guard won't let him in. They all block his way, and then he's like, what's going on here? And they all bow to him. And so they're like, um, well, it looks like uh, you're going mm-hmm. <laughs> to... Looks like you're not going anywhere. Uh, what does it say here? 
Tyrion returned to the oh oh the, okay so this is great I loved this part. Tyrion returns to the Phoenix Council at the height of one of Inric's speeches. He enters the room in full armor and challenged every lord there to lay aside their differences and marshal their forces to the defense of the Ten Kingdoms. If any sought to quarrel further, then he would happily settle the arguments with Sun Fang. And Imric's like, who the hell do you think you are? And he's like, I'm the herald of Assyrian. And that's exactly who I am. I'm coming here speaking for Assyrian. You need to put this. And Imric is just like, well, I just lost any chance of becoming the Phoenix King because of this kid. So he basically tells everyone, F you, I'm going home. <laughs> I mean, yeah. basically that's what he is, doesn't he? And he says, Calador will stand on its own. I'm not helping anybody anymore. I'm just defending my own. Yep, drops off home. <laughs> I don't know. Imric is such a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they're setting up where Calador will come in later and... and- save the day at the 11th hour or the dragons will awaken and that's a exactly yeah you gotta love that there's um just to the left of that that you've got the interesting passage between uh Tyrion and Teclis which has got some um great quotes in it where um Teclis says to Tyrion I always wondered what evil what evil our bloodlines curse would wreck through you Mm. you does Tyrion long before then so yeah, it's um, it starts a bit. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know if in the in the trilogy there was some sort of thing going on between these two. Where I don't know, they seem to not be as as close as one perhaps would expect. Or there's this little, I don't know. Then they seem to be falling out a little bit. They're, and... they're they're very. I mean, they're brothers. They're very close, but they fight like brothers too. And they don't. <laughs> well, here's the thing: mm, fighting like brothers is one thing, but I sense a real strong loathing between these two in this book. I mean, <sighs> can we talk talk about? Why? What's the Aliathra stuff that's... Um... Well, so far we get it, and I almost missed it the first time I read it, but he's like, you know, you can't go after her, um, and he goes, you wouldn't get it. You, you've never had any passion in your whole life. I mean, that's, you know, this is this is actually kind of this weird brother stuff. It's getting um, quite personal, isn't it, I think? Yeah, and he goes, you need to be a leader of your people, and, Tecla, and, and he doesn't say anything, and he goes, I'll weep for your daughter later, brother, and wait a minute, and it's like, it, I almost missed that the first time I read it. Because I didn't know that. I mean, I don't know if that is revealed in the in the trilogy, but that's the first I'd known of that. I was like, wow. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't remember if that was revealed, but I mean, basically, he got together with the Ever Queen in yeah, the trilogy. Finnebar was locked up in his uh, in his tower again, and uh uh-huh. t- slid on, uh, Tyrion, sorry, slid on in there. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's that's why he's trying so hard to get her back, and that's why he's willing to leave Ulthuan to. The demons and let let somebody else do it. That's my daughter, and Teclis is like, uh, dude, you, you know, you got better responsibilities here. Yeah, yeah. Check, check out this last quote from from uh, Teclis again to Tyrion here. I forgive you for what you have done, brother. I only hope that when the time comes, you can forgive me for what I must do now. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah, like, oh. Well, isn't that when he goes and breaks into the the office and starts? I mean, he's dude. Tyrion, I was saying to Chris, when, I mean, when you read later on, when you get to that part, that other little sidebar with what Teclis is doing, yeah. and you realize <laughs> Teclis is playing the long game. He certainly is, yeah. And it's like, oh, wow, He's, holy mackerel. It's just quite interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it takes the fluff from uh, strictly background and flavor to this living story that totally sucks you in. Yeah. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen next? The interaction between those two, I think, is just going to, I think that's going to go off the charts throughout this uh, series. Something's going to, yeah, something's going to go bad really quickly. There's going to be. I think so, yeah. (laughs) Mm. Well, they've always kind of uh, had this foreboding 
uh, telling of Tyrion and you know, the curse of Anarion and that he's keep slowly losing his mind. This could be the thing that pushes him over that edge and where he completely loses it. Someone's going to draw that sword of Cain, aren't they? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> no kidding, huh? But so then, so he has to stay for Ulthuan. So Eltharion, Eldira, uh, and uh, Belenair, the the mage, all have to go and take a smaller army and go army and go back after Aliathra. Can um, I just touch Eltharion quickly? Yeah. Um, am I thinking that because they advanced, they gave him a whole extra story arc in Seventh Edition where he stopped becoming the the warden and um, he got blinded and went and become a swordmaster and. Mm. Is that is that all out now? Uh, I think that's all out. I think that's been redone to the the, the present day incarnation of it. I wasn't one hundred percent sure on that, but yeah, no, that's cool. Yeah, you know, I I love how I love how um they're going to need the help of men and dwarfs if they're going to get it because their army is not big enough to do what they need to do to to storm Sylvania and get Aliathra back. And I love it. It galls Eltharion that they're going to have to ask for help. <laughs> it's like elves are dick to everybody. It's just <laughs> yeah, come on, Durfs would say the same exact Watch thing. In fact, it. they do. They do oh. say the same thing. Uh, you're going to be on a two for one here, David, with the uh, Durfs. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, not this episode. Not better not happen. I'll start editing the hell out of you guys if that starts happening. <laughs> but you, but you have to admit that the 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 beard that they go helps. They would they would be bitter. They they admit that they have to if they ask if they have to ask for help that they become embittered. True, but that you know what the elves hate asking anybody for anything. It shows up again later. Eltharion's kind of a jerk to everybody in this. He really is. He's a bit hoity-toity. The other ones are okay. I like. Well, the I chick think Eltharion rightfully so is hoity-toity, as we'll see later on. Oh yeah, he's kind of he's kind of awesome. Yeah. But okay, so let's jump in. Now we get to the Empire, and I love it. The twin-tailed comet's coming. Sigmar's coming back. You know, <laughs> When Sigmar only was here during our worst times ever. Oh, crap. <laughs> uh, Malagor the Dark Omen has been seen coming around. Humans throughout the Empire are mutating. I love this whole... There's a whole section in here that humans are mutating. Humans are dying. They're being corrupted. So there's guys who are just running around selling snake oil. <laughs> hey, you got to capitalize, you know. I, I love it. You know, there's a whole, just a bunch of opportunists over here. And, you know, basically until a couple of the nobles are like, I will kill anybody who sells anything and it doesn't work. I think there was a passage in there where some people were selling stuff that was actually killing people. Just yeah. Just the profits. <laughs> it's just, oh, it's horrible. Um, riots are going on. The nobility are being attacked. Uh, and Manfred just, okay, I secede from the empire. Sylvania is no longer part of the empire. Um, he pulls up a spell that covers the whole place in darkness so he can walk around even during the daytime. Uh, Volkmar gets pissed and attacks and doesn't come back. Yeah, probably not the best of ideas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then suddenly there's this spell goes off in Sylvania, this wall of bone, and just comes all around the country. This one, This one's actually, um, it's like an, uh, it's the wall of faith, this one. It's an, this one's the invisible barrier. And it basically just stops the undead uh, being able to pass out through it. Right. So there's there's two barriers. There's Manfred's barrier. Yeah. And then right as that's happening, they put this other one, Balthazar Gelt, puts the Wall of Faith around it. Um, and that that's it's that's that was actually so funny. Oh, there's a wall. You can't attack me. Don't worry. You can't leave. <laughs> it's like 
I, I built a cage around your fence. It's like mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, double the protection. Exactly. Um, and I love this. Carl Franz has finally had enough. He's like, we are going to get everybody together, and we are going to go, and we are going to sack Sylvania and get rid of it. And right as he's getting ready, riders come, and they're like, Kislev is being attacked from the north by more chaos than you've ever seen. And, Kislev, uh, I think, is destroyed, right? It's wiped from the map? Uh, yeah. I think there's like ruined city that's sort of hanging on in there, but it's basically it's been taken off. Yeah, he says that he's not even coming. Like, uh, Carl Franz is expecting them to ask for help, and he's like, we're not even asking you to save Kislev. Kislev's done for. The Tsarina is fighting to buy you guys time to, mu- to muster your forces. She essentially goes missing, doesn't she, I think. But, yeah, yeah, it's good having, I think, because Kislev, rules-wise, there's nothing for, so, but it's well-established in the fluff, so it's still quite powerful to say they've essentially just been 20 nil by chaos. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, so that's that's pretty cool. Um, I love that. So he sends out all these forces, and they have to avoid the Great Forest and the Drakwal because the Beastmen are attacking left and right. And uh, only 70% of the soldiers sent out actually reach the border of Kislev. Um, and when they get there, I like Village the Cursling gets his little cameo in there. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> I like how they this in this book where they loads of the special characters just get this little nod, like you say, a little little cameo. They pop up, do something, and yeah, I just like that. It's cool. Yeah, and I love it. Carl Franz can't even get other people to help him. Like he, the, all the other races, he's checking, and they're all like, "Yeah, we're knee deep in it too." Like even the dwarves don't come. And then, um, and I love this part. I love they name some of these characters. Uh, Eldebrand Ludenhoff, the Elector Count of Hockland, stops Village's advance. He's the only one who's doing really well. All these other marauder hordes aren't really getting through. Uh, he stops Village's advance by personally placing a long rifle bullet in the back of one of Village's skulls. <laughs> <laughs> and then you get the news that there's more armies coming south, and the empires, all of a sudden you look, and it's like all that stuff we've been fighting for weeks and months that have pretty much wiped out Kislev, that's not even it. There's armies coming and the smallest of the armies that haven't even gotten here yet is about the size of our entire empire force up here. And that's where Carl Franz is like, oh, man, we need a miracle. That's like, oh, I mean, that that's cool. I love that part because it's like there's that much. I mean, they've been fighting. Kislev is wiped aside. And that's that. those are those guys who just took off. Yeah, that's just a taste of what's to come. Oh, and then the Beastmen get their column. Before, before we, we oh. should touch on the um, the side, sort of like the the oh, conversation sure, sure. between Bout yeah. and the uh, the mysterious lady. Oh yeah, um, and I think um, sort of it's odd because Empire just I don't know why they just never really grip me. But Balthazar Gelt, um, as we'll get through, um, well actually it's more in a, a later chapter. But he becomes a really really interesting character throughout this this book. I feel, and you get the first little taste that he's up to something a bit dodgy when he receives a, a mysterious scroll from a and a, a lady who they don't really tell you who she is. I mean, later on you can sort of make guesses as to who it could be, but yeah, that's a pretty good little paragraph there. It's because again, these little things that they feed you with interest and want to go, oh, what's happening there? And, yeah. Yeah, you should go further than what you did to Sylvania. And he looks at the scroll and he's like, well, you know, I'd be, you know, wouldn't I be stupid to just use whatever you gave me? Because wouldn't you be stupid not to? And then he's like, you know, are you going to tell me who sent you? Hell no, I'm not going to tell you who sent me. It's like, oh, what's going on? 
Yeah, it'd be, it'd be fun to theorize as to you know who that late mysterious lady is and what her uh, intentions are, but uh, maybe that would be revealing too much at this stage. Oh yeah, you know that this is going to come up later. They, they're not going to just tease us and let that drop. Mm. So the Beastmen kind of get a couple of armies get a bit of a short. Beastmen get one column. Yeah, this is what I was alluding to previously, um, and it's all it's very generic, isn't it? That that sort of half a page. It's just yeah, chaos is coming. The Beastmen, the the call of the the, the wild, the, all the herdstones are rising up and. Yeah, it just. I mean, it's been well sort of theorized that Beastmen aren't going to get a new army, but they're going to go back in with chaos. And I don't know. This I don't think this does anything to to suggest otherwise. Really, it's all a bit. Yeah, yeah it's not. As a Beastman player, I'd be like, oh. It is interesting how they they're just they, they can they can actually hear chaos's call and they're just dragged into this though. Like it, you know. They really they keep calling them the true the true children of chaos because they're not. If that were if that were true though, true children of chaos, I feel like they'd be playing more of a prominent role. I mean, David, you and I talked a little bit about this uh, before. A lot of these armies, a lot of these races, you know, are play, have a major role to play. Um, you know, some maybe later than others, but I feel like beastmen and some others are really secondary players. They're just kind of there to. They're not. They're not going to get a main part of this at, at any point. I don't. I don't think. I don't I mean, think so either. However, it's just that they're not interesting or relatable enough. And didn't they? Didn't they quite heavily change the fluff to them that they are actually a race? The beastmen are a race r- rather than mutants of chaos. I think in the last book. Mm, yeah, I think they are. They did do that. Well, I mean, yeah. In the beginning of the beastman book, it said how when the the waste the, the when the chaos gates broke that that they were humans and animals that sort of mutated and stuck together. But now they're the yeah they're like their own thing. But they really are pretty much just animals. I mean, it really, except for the leaders, a lot of these guys are just animal instinct that follows Chaos's call. So I can see how there's not much to do with them. It, it seems odd because even with races like orcs, which could be comparable, they seem to make their characters be a lot more, I don't know, identifiable or interesting. Interesting, like, totally. They, yeah, I totally agree. They never seem to have really been able to do that with Beastman, I don't think. Some of their characters are cool, but I don't know. I just. Uh, you know, in this book, they're kind of. Uh, you know, secondary players in in the way that uh, you know they're they're led around or used by the other races, or they just happen to show up, uh, you know, just to to have a good battle. I, I don't know. They just seem like they're kind of a filler race. Yeah. Exactly. That there's there's never any threat, is there? If a beastman army turns up, you know, oh, they're just going to get in the way and get killed. It's not. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like fighting your way through traffic on the way to work. <laughs> oh, got to deal with this. Well, I mean, you get a little bit with Malagor later, where he's actually getting called and summoned to do stuff. But yeah, he the, does pop up a few times, actually, doesn't he? But he even says that the Beastmen keep screwing him up because they're such slaves to their own instincts that he can't even get them to do what he wants them to do. So, but so let's let's I guess let's kind of move along because I think I'm 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 making this take too long. So I guess I should try to get it move along. But we get to the Wood Elves. Ariel's dying, and this goes from that weird Orion trilogy, which was just such a bizarre read. But it's another Black Library trilogy. Ariel's dying. They put her in the Oak of Ages, and that starts dying. Um, all that fluff from the Wood Elf book that they have, you know, areas that the seasons don't change, they're changing. <laughs> Everything's rotting. Orion goes nuts and just starts attacking everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, the really cool part, and this is another one, the Wood Elves kind of get a, a bit of a short story here. You know, the forest is dying. They don't know what to do. Alariel shows up begging for help. And she, you know, please for our daughter for Ulfwan, and nobody wants to do anything till Durthu says, "Okay, but there's a price." And she's like, "Whatever the price, go for it." 
Yeah, that's yeah. Cool. I like that bit. More foreboding. I wonder what that could mean. What could that price be? Well, you well, think it's into it right away, doesn't it? Yeah, the what the twin sisters take her to the tree. Yeah, the oak of ages, and the ground opens up beneath it, and they're like, "Save our mother!" And so she goes down into the ground. Yeah, and she like, can't. She can't renege on it. It's already mm-hmm. been been done. Yeah, so she's doing what she can. I love uh, Araloth. Hey, we got a character that showed up in the last book. Let's send him. I wrote that pretty much word for word in my notes, actually. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you in the new special character. In. <laughs> so he goes, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, it, it almost, I mean, I, once I read this, I'm like, oh, well, that's exactly why they put him in the Wood Elf book, isn't it? They, 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 they wrote a custom character to, uh, to show up for this battle, which ended weird. We'll get into that later. But that's basically all it is for the Wood Elves, too. Who's going? Um, Britonia, on the other hand, get a lot. Yeah, wow. This 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 surprised me in uh, contradiction to the the Beastman, which Britonia have also people have said, are they going to get a new book? Will they get phased out? And then they've gone they've gone to town on them. Really, mm-hmm. they, their, their story is really interesting in this. I think. Yeah, lots good. That, um, so you have the year of woe. There's a demon uprising for almost a year, and then. Malobod, the bastard son of the king, goes after the throne and starts a revolution. And um, what's really interesting is King Lewin goes out to battle his son, and after the the battle of Shalon, uh, Morgan Le Fay disappears. And when that happens, the Dukes of Carcassonne, Leonis, and Artois basically all turn on the king and go with his son. And now they got civil war. Is the character uh, Morgan? Morgiana La Fay is she a prominent character in the Bretonian book? Yeah, okay. she's she's a Fay enchantress, isn't she? She's yeah. one of the she is one of the she's one of that been there, one of their special characters since um since the fifth edition uh, book came out. Mm, so Lord level caster or something like yeah. that. Yeah, she's the one that sort of I think she rides around on a unicorn, doesn't she? Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's important to the whole legend in Bretonian stuff like that. For them, yeah, that's 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 a big deal. Oh, she's a, I think a daughter of the Lady of the Lake. I think I read that somewhere. Yep. Okay. Yeah, she's got, I mean, she's got, you know, uh, blood in her veins that is, you know, special. Pure. Yeah. Um, I love this. So for a year, the king goes from town to town putting down the rebellion. And then all of a sudden, when it looks like he's winning, Melobad, all of a sudden, all the dead start coming around him. And so it's like, oh, I'm losing, but now all of a sudden you realize he's in league with the necromancers and stuff. And basically he's in league with Archon the Black. Archon the Black has promised to help him. Um, to what end? Basically just to, to weaken Bretonia as a state in general? Well, yeah, and yeah, that actually pops up later in the book because he knows he's got to get into Bretonia to get one of the artifacts he needs to raise Nagash. So, yeah, that's what it all comes down to. It's, it's a sort of a long game play for, for that. I, that's the gist I got anyway, isn't it? That, that you get the the battle later on, don't you, where um, at the Abbey or I think mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And I love that Malabad has so much more forces because they're raising the dead lo- that his father's losing. The Wood Elves show up to help uh, finally. And there's a tide turn. Then, the, the, you know, the father and son square off and the king loses. He gets unhorsed and he's laying there and he's bleeding. Um, the only thing is, everyone assumes he's dead. Nobody actually knows what happened to him, but he's gone. Which means he's not dead. We we all know that. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I wonder, I'd like to know what did happen, because 
you know, the lords basically all run and start just trying to protect their own place. And he starts picking them off one by one. And you get one of these Shakespearean things. Archon told him no mortal son of no mortal son of, of Britonia can stop you. And, of course, the Green Knight shows up. Like, you didn't see that coming a mile away. <laughs> um, From Lord of the Rings. That's what it reminded me of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Witch King. <laughs> yeah, that or, like I said, I, I, I thought of Macbeth, you know. <laughs> um. But so the Green Knight comes in. I'll take the challenge. He decapitates Malabad. Um, and then before the nobles could fall to fighting to see who can be in the lead, um, he basically, he oh, I'm Guy Le Breton, brought back to life by the lady. And um, so he's recrowned. But as soon as he's recrowned, Bretonia is getting plagued with warp stone and plague and everything. It's horrible. It's uh, and then basically he declares an errantry war. We're going to cleanse Bretonia of all this evil. And so that's their bit. Yeah, and that sort of goes back to, in the original Storm of Chaos, that's what the Bretonia list was, wasn't it? It was the er- errantry war, so it's sort of a reimagining of that. But I think the whole picture paints of Bretonia is a really, really grim and dark one. And I'd love to see a new book that's sort of set in this Bretonia. What would that be like? It oh, could be really cool. Yeah, with all the cities trashed and stuff. Uh, well, you know what? we got to take a break. We've been going a long time. We Actually, this was the time we allotted for all these races. We'll take a break. We'll come back. We'll finish off the races. And th- th- then the funny thing, we'll actually get into part one. <laughs> right. All right. We'll be back. The sisters who had guided her to the clearing looked at her expectantly. The Oak of Ages, Maestra told her solemnly, it is dying. It is perhaps already dead, said Erhan. Can it be saved? asked Delirial. That is not for us to say, Maestra replied. It is for you to prove, Erhan said, or to disprove, her sister echoed. With a creaking sigh, the ground in front of Valerial sank away, revealing a stairway of roots that stretched away into the darkness beneath the tree. Pinpricks of light sparked in the gloom below as spirits, disturbed by the shifting of the roots, flittered into the night sky. The Ever Queen felt an unfamiliar pang of terror. There is nothing to fear, Nestra said. Do not lie to her, Erhan chided. It is better that she knows the truth. Truth is not absolute, whatever you might believe, Nestra argued. In any case, the bargain is made. It cannot be reneged upon without cost. A cost we can ill afford, Erhan agreed. Indeed, but you are right, Maestra conceded. The choice must be hers alone. Alarial's grip tightened on her stave. Maestra was correct, she thought. The bargain had been made. The Ever Queen would not dishonor the Assur by refusing it now. Without a word, Alarial began her descent. The soil's rich scent was thick all about her, but the bitterness of corruption also hung in the air. As she alighted from each stair, the roots shifted behind her, rising up to weave away the sky. As the last tendril writhed into place, the Ever Queen heard one of the sisters call out, Please, save our mother. And we are back. And, uh, we're still showing what's going on with everybody. And, of course, now we're getting to the important races uh, as we get to the dwarfs. <laughs> and, okay, 
can I just read my notes out quickly? For, sure. For yeah. Go I'm, ahead. I'm dwarfs hyphen Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I knew you'd have this covered. <laughs> oh my god. Okay. And here's my notes. Dwarfs. Nothing happens. <laughs> Yeah, that's that, that's actually true. A page and a half of uh, a whole lot okay, of nothing. The volcanoes are rumbling. Chaos is all over. The dark lands are starting to encroach. Orcs are all over the badlands, like tons of orcs. Uh, they see that things are going... Basically, the dwarfs can see all these bad things happening from up in their mountains. And they've beaten all these things before, but all of them coming at one time is bad. The, rune, the, runes, uh, the runesmith guild says we should lock down our doors like we did before. And they're like, we should go. The goblins in Skaven have stopped attacking, and that's always a bad sign. Um, but Thorgrim is just sitting there, and he's this whole thing. He's just sitting there thinking how annoyed he is. He doesn't know exactly what to do. Um, he wants to go out and fight, but a lot of his people are still unhappy that he attacked, that he went to help the elves, and then put up with getting told off by Tyrion, and didn't put a, a grudge in the book of grudges. But he still he doesn't want to hide. He couldn't go help the Empire because all this stuff's going on. Thoric Ironbrow is saying, listen, close the doors. We should go find ancestor artifacts, which is right out of the dwarf book fluff, how they've been looking for ancestor artifacts. Uh, he thinks he might have found some big uh, portal stone for Valia or something like that. Um, and then basically, King Kazador has already sealed Karak Azul. King Alaric, Ungrim Ironfist, and King... Uh, Cardrin and Belagar of Eight Peaks all basically said, we'll do whatever you want. And um, that's then heavy set the crown of the High King. As he watched the sun set over his mountain realm, Thorgrim vowed to strike out every entry in the Great Book of Grudges or die trying. And Thorgrim was a dwarf of his word. That's it. I feel like every book... A dwarf passage or book or novel ends with that passage. <laughs> Thorgrim was a right? dwarf of his word. No, every 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 you know entry into the book of grudges is going to be uh, struck. I, I just I think I feel like I hear that all the time. Oh, you do. <laughs> Knowing me too, you do. But basically, nothing happens. Thorgrim's looking. Everything's getting bad. He wants to help, but he's uncertain what to do. He's trying to figure it out. Next army. <laughs> One last thing on the uh, the derfs is I think I I did find you know, a new not even for this for you can't you know you no no I'm 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 as they're forging their narrative I'm progressing my narrative as well so <laughs> somewhere in this book they they refer, refer to the the beardlings as impish mules I like it <laughs> did you catch that do you know where that's at yeah you're a tool. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's the, what the authors wrote. It's coming straight from the, the book. <sighs> All right, next race. Greenskins. Okay, the fact that the Greenskins stop fighting each other and all of a sudden have this purpose, I thought was fantastic. Yeah, they're um, getting organized. Yeah, and not only that, I love sort of the description of, you know, because this is one of the things that I really liked in the old orc book that they didn't really touch too much on when the new book came out, was reading about the power of just the the wah, how the, when the orcs, like orc magic comes from the actual orcs and their aggression, and that power just sorts of builds and builds, and you don't hear that too much, and they really hit it on the head in this part right here, I think. 
Yeah, I agree. You really get the sense that they're, you know, a dangerous lot, especially with so many of them. They're they're kind of building up like static electricity, right? Yeah, yeah. That's I think that's a good uh, good way to describe it, really. Yeah. In fact, I actually the the one quote or the 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 two little quotes I took from this particular one um, that uh, ended that for um, where is it? The orcs and goblins pent up their destructive craving, holding it within until they could bellow to the skies and unleash it in one savage moment. Previously, an orc or goblin might go his whole life, short and brutal though that tended to be, and only feel but a twinge of such direction. Next to the pure joy of battle, this was the closest Greenskins ever felt to divinity, and now such feelings washed over them. I'm like, oh, man. Hmm. It's interesting that uh, you know Warzag is searching for this great warlord, but he realizes maybe he's searching for two, a fist of Gork and a hand of Mork. I like yeah, that. Yeah, that's the, that's, the, that's the part of it I really liked, because essentially you've got the three... Wars, if you will, building with uh, Grimgor and his Ard boys. Then you've got mm-hmm. Svartsnik and then Wurzag himself. And I love the idea of Wurzag sort of realizing if he brings two war bosses together, is it going to be those two? Who knows? And he's sort of like the puppet master can pull in the strings, really. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Again, it's, it's like I say, with managing to get so much more out of character from orcs and you do some of these other, if you will, lesser races. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Oh, you're right. It's- lesser races is right. Well, and you know <laughs> what's cool is actually the way they describe him. If you look at the way they describe him, Warzog really—I mean, it, it not only hits but it fits because they talk about Grimgor Ironhide, how everybody follows him, but he doesn't care. He just wants to kill everything. If they follow him, cool. If they get in his way, he'll kill them too. You know, he's just out there. He gives no nothing. No purpose, really. He's just uh, yeah, yeah, but he doesn't care. Yeah, he doesn't right. care. But then you've got Skarsnik, who they talk about. He, no one has ambition like Skarsnik. Grimgor has the power, but no ambition. Skarsnik has the ambition, but he's a goblin. So that's a, that's your fist in your hand, exactly. Yeah. Skarsnik's cool. You you really sense he's a he's a pro- proper crafty little so and so. He's he's got a lot of. <laughs> No, I, I agree. If it's for that very reason, Skarsnik is my favorite special character to to read about and also play. The, the The game version of him doesn't quite measure up to what I would hope, but he's still a personal favorite of mine. If this book reinforces anything, it's that none of the special characters live up to what they do in the book. I don't know. The new Manfred's pretty good. The new man. Well, he's. I mean, it's pretty good, but the Manfred on the table is not as good as the Manfred in this book. I had, <laughs> I would say the VC in general, dude. I wish I could just sit there and just they just wave their hands and the entire army stands back up. Yeah, fair, fair, I'll give you that one. <laughs> that I love a lot of this book. Yeah, Spoiler. yeah, it does. Yeah, oh, I love the, but I love the descriptions of all the shamans who can't handle all the wapar and their heads just blow up and kill everything around them. <laughs> it's just fantastic. Um, and then we get to ogres, who I don't think they know what to do with, or if they do, it, they're not doing it yet. They're kind of watching volcanoes erupt. Some of them get melted. Yeah. They eat a lot. Well, Yeah, these another one of those races where, I, I don't know, it's just, can they make them interesting enough or relatable? Again, it's that same sort of thing, really, isn't it? It is. I, I feel like the ogres are, are, you know, being the neutrals that they are, will be hired by the Empire in some respect, or, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. hired hands, and that'll be the extent of it. They'll fight and they'll eat, and that's about it, right. really. Yeah. Yeah, and that's what kind of goes on. All the beasts and monsters that live in the mountains of Morn around them start going crazy and killing and attacking, and they're sort of loving it. They're like, hey, more stuff to fight and eat. But then all of a sudden, 
that influence of chaos, some of them leave, some of them go north to join, you know, mercenaries with the with the barbarians in the north. I thought Greece's gold tooth is getting pissed. <laughs> He's like, hey, you guys can't just leave. I didn't say it was okay. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, Goldfag Maneater heads west to the dwarfs' holds, you know, to go fight there. But, uh, you know, basically... Goldtooth is getting up saying, I'm going to go and start kicking heads in because I can't believe people are doing stuff when I didn't tell them to do. And that's when the mountain erupts and fire bellies start mm-hmm. dying. And, um, you know, with these mountains erupting, this would have been a, a logical time to at least maybe do a passing mention of the chaos dwarves. Yeah. It's, it's bizarre, isn't it? That there's just no reference to them whatsoever, really. Oh, I mean, it could have to do with this is uh, this is a GW book, and that's come out from Forge World stuff. And I know everybody says it's the same company, but you know what I mean. You're not going to sell yeah. GW. The GW portion isn't selling any models, right? Yeah, I could use some uh, some corporate politics or something in the background there. I do like the last paragraph of this one too. Uh, this, they have these great paragraphs. Uh, the ogres, all of them, were now on the march. It was a migration on a scale not seen since they left the ancient giant lands, and the world would pay a heavy price. So yeah, just just before that, it mentions that the great exodus begins. I'm presuming that isn't what Master Monday was talking about at the beginning. Cause that's, <laughs> that's a little less. <laughs> but there's multiple great exoduses happening. I mean, everything is changing. And then you get to the Skaven one. Holy mackerel, who saw that bit coming? I, I didn't. <laughs> you you referenc- referencing the uh, the great horned one showing up at the head of the table? Yeah. Yeah. You know, this, and uh, well, first of all, you know, it's so funny. I remember Christopher always saying that he wanted to run like a bit of a sort of role playing game slash Necromunda sort of thing where um, the Skaven basically had wiped out most of the world. Like they finally emptied out from the underbelly and wiped out most of the civilized empire and sort of were in charge. And it's like, Oh God, that's exactly what happens. The, you know, with all the meteors falling and the warp stone, they attack, they wipe out, uh, Talia and Estalia. Every city in those countries is a ruin and they take all the human slaves and they're using them to fuel step two, whatever that is. Um, and then you get this Council of Thirteen scene, which is just, it's kind of cool, though. I mean, the Skaven have actually done what they haven't been able to do in all these stories, which is they actually wiped out two entire countries. Yeah, so this is the difference between this this fluff and, you know, previous fluff. Before, they, they're always on the brink of, of rising to power, but they always shoot themselves in the foot. They always reference the, the, the seat uh, for the horned rat, but it's always empty. Here, all of a sudden, they've—I think—they've reached that z- that zenith, and then the the horn one actually shows up and has a presence. So, talking about moving things forward and things developing, I mean, yeah, the Skaven, I think, really took a step forward here. Yeah, they're one of those races as well that you feel if they could really sort of bring their might together, then they could they could actually cause some serious problems mm-hmm. than just being oh, the Skaven turned up and fought some dwarfs or bloody blah, blah. So, mm-hmm. I think. And again, I always find fluff with their characters really interesting. They tend to they tend to write them in quite quite a good, good sometimes funny way, I think. And 
they're interesting to to read about i think so yeah that was kind of cool yeah the thankful books are great the queek head taker book was really great and if you haven't heard about that book listen to wayne kemp talk about on healing hammer because that he makes it sound so much fun but it's always it's it but it is always the same book hey we're just about to win and then one of the skaven stab another skaven in the back yeah and you know it's like oh i don't want you to win you'll have too much power so they they always sabotage each other and now they're trying it right here you know um the uh, gracier critislick is sitting there and he's pushing his agenda and trying to bully people and suddenly the other guys on the council start calling him out for stuff right in front of the council and he gets really mad who do you think you are i speak for the horn rat i i i and smoke starts coming out of his mouth and then suddenly boom <laughs> lightning comes out of the pillar from the runes and the freaking horned rat is there <laughs> so you, you know in this it talks about it says a new seer lord would touch the pillar and join the council are they are they is, is that the the horned rat himself or what is it are they going to bring someone else in is, is fank cool is he a historical character or is, is that leading way for him to come onto the council i'm not too sure on the law of, of uh skaven myself so i wasn't sure really I, what that was alluding to well, I think I, I don't. I think the horned rat. I mean, he's kind of partially there. Like he hasn't taken a physical form, yes, and I, he has a separate seat, doesn't he? He holds mm-hmm. a thirteenth seat, right? So if you killed this the critic off, and they've got a spare seat, and it talks about the new seer lord. I yeah. mean, what's what's Fankel's position? Because I know he's the most. He's been trying to get on the council forever. I'm pretty certain it's going to be him. Yeah, yeah. I kind of hope I had- it's him because he's crazy. Yeah, I heard rumors they were doing a new a new kit for him as well, or something. So. Uh, oh, that's about pounds. time. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. That's like yeah, he would touch the pillar, join the council. He would rightfully speak in the horned rat's voice. Before departing, the rat spoke in a loud a single prophecy that threatened to rip apart the very fabric of reality. We shall inherit. Woohoo. I'd I'd like to see what they can do. Give them some power, let them run with it for a while. Yeah. It could be no fun. kidding. Oh. It could be cool. And then we get to the Tomb Kings. And the Tomb Kings is another one that's a bit long, and even the little fluff story isn't all that, you know, Cetra doesn't sleep. He's watching the signs. There's problems. The winds of Shyish, which is the death magic winds, There's he hears things on it. There's problems. And so he summons his Hierophant and says, wake up, everybody. And he says, everybody? The last time we did that was during the War of Kings against Nagash. He goes, yep, Everybody. And yeah, it's sort of, it's sort of an overly draw, drawn out prelude. I mean, they 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 have quite a prominent role later on in this book, but right. that, I did. This is pretty much the one that I felt was the most sort of almost filler early mm-hmm. on. Yeah, yeah. But at least they're doing stuff. They're waking people up. Ramhotep's bringing in the war statues. The war fleet's moving up the river. Kalita gets up and she gets her guys, and they're doing more than Thorgrim. Yeah, and and later on in the book, it gets the Tomb Kings get really cool. So yeah, I wouldn't be too if you're a Tomb King, King player by that bit. <laughs> uh, and then when we get to the VC here, and this is the last one, Ma, wow! I mean, yeah, yeah. Now we're in business. I love this. Uh, the air was thick with apostatic enchantment, an unholy miasma that sapped the courage from even the most valorous soul and dissipated the cleansing energies of the faithful. Sylvania was now a land beyond the power of prayer. So he's you know, he's put together this spell, and that, that basically none of your holy stuff that, that you use normally against the undead works in Sylvania anymore. 
That's vicious. And so he's gathered nine vessels of godly power, mortals with divine blood, that he has figured out from decades of figuring out our um, Nagash's books. So they they outline three of them. Is that right? Yes. Uh, Morgiana, Lafay, Aliathra, Lupio Blaze of the Night of the Blazing Suns. Yeah, he gets a mention, and then Volkmar, and Volkmar. They call them the three great prizes, and I think they're the ones that are sort of of more I don't know pure blood, if you will. I think. Who's Volkmar's blood? Is what I'm wondering. The, he's the old Grand Fiorganist, isn't it? I don't know who he's linked. Onto. I don't know if there's any lineage there or something. Yeah, I mean, that's all I'm wondering, because we know Aliathra, he thinks, is the Everchild. She's linked to the divinity of the elves. Morgan Le Fay um, is, you know, the child of the of the Lady of the Lake. I love how Draca, the branch wraith, Draca just, just delivers her. That's that. I, was, I had to read that again. I was like, did I read that right? What, what's she up to there? I don't know if anything more will come of that, or if that's just a... Because she, she's pretty bad, though, isn't she? She's not like, she's not good by any means. She hangs out with that evil tree man as well, doesn't she? I can't remember his name. Oh, yeah, she hates the elves. She doesn't want them there, and she hates humans. She hates anything that's not a, a, tree, a, tree, a tree spirit. But I still want to read that. I was like, whoa, that's a bit. <laughs> yeah, that seems kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> that's one that's got – I hope that story gets told later because she just shows up with her and gives her to Manfred, who was so happy because he was going to have so much trouble getting her that – he only made a token attempt to kill the branch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's something else at play that we don't know about. I think they will revisit that. Yeah. That seems out of character. But they don't say who Volkmar's b- blood is, but so he's got all of this. And their blood is dripping. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it must be. I don't know. Is he is he meant to be from sort of Sigmar or something? That's the only thing I can Maybe, think of. Really. But it's, I, don't really. I guess I never thought of Sigmar. I mean, at Sigmar, they always think of him as a god, but... I mean, even you read his stuff, he never seemed like, like literally like divine blood. So or maybe, I don't know. Uh, who knows? Empire, meh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do they ever, um, well, you know, later they do talk about it. They, they describe it, describe him as having the divine blood of a scion of Sigmar Heldenhammer of the Unberogans. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. So, the, okay, so there he oh, is. I guess so he does have some lineage there. But do they ever talk about the, uh, the other of the nine? We've mentioned four. There are five more out there. No, and they're all there. Like, he's using them for his ritual, but you never find out what happens to them. In fact, I assumed the rest of them, because he's got them all locked up, and he's slowly, like, bleeding them. Like, their blood is feeding this thing, but he's keeping them alive. When the castle collapses later, I'm just assuming they all died, because they don't even mention their names. Yeah, you definitely hear of most, well, the important ones, as we'll go on to. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just... I yeah, like I'm how curious to see. I like it's, how, it's, the bloodlines had been identified by an enciphered prop, prophecy buried in the books of Nagash. Yeah. So yeah. he was worried yeah. that some of the lines might have died out, but yeah, I, I guess I, those guys aren't that important to the story. They're just fueling. They're basically fueling the ritual that's keeping all the the the, the skies dark and the faith powers out of Sylvania. They're they're batteries. We just they're there. Mm-hmm. Just trust mm-hmm. us. Um, I love how demons actually start invading Sylvania as well, but it's easy to get rid of them when you don't have to actually muster troops. You just raise the dead around them. Yeah. Um, And I do how they describe Balthazar Gelt. He, you know, to to make sure his thing works, Manfred has the ghouls taking all any religious symbols anywhere and burying them deep. And as soon as he gets that done, all they all pop out of the ground and fly out, and Gelt uses them (laughs) 
to 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 do this thing. Um, and then the whole end here, it's like he's getting really pissed, and he flays one of his uh, Thomas von Karstein, mm-hmm. and the rest of his progeny are like. Who cares if we're locked in here, man? It's dark. We can do what we want. No one's coming in after us. Stay. Just relax. Like, Manfred has killed any of his children who actually are some sort of a threat to him. So he's got all these losers with him now who don't care. He's a big fish in a small pond. <laughs> exactly. I think like, you get the impression that's exactly how he wants to be as well, isn't it? He doesn't. He's an odd sort of character, Manfred, but I think you get quite a lot of out of him in this book. He's one of the, the highlights, I think. Mm. Yeah. So that's page 42. So 42 pages in, then you turn the page, chapter one. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> so, uh, a cursed alliance, and this is, takes place over one year, from 2523 to 2524. Let's take another break. Let's come back and talk about this cursed alliance and what's going on in Sylvania. Sounds like a plan. Cool. I have a mind to travel to Altdorf and ring Balthazar Gelt's scrawny neck, Leeddorf growled. He wouldn't make good on this threat, of course. Even in his anger, Leeddorf knew that the wizards weren't the true enemy. Vengeance lay along the dark roads to Sylvania. No sane man would willingly take that path. Indeed, after his last journey into the haunted land, Leeddorf had sworn he would never return. Yet, as he looked again at the bloodied bodies strewn across the inner courtyard, the Grand Master wondered if he perhaps bore a touch of his late brother's madness. For now, he was considering just that. Spread the word, Leedorf ordered. We ride south at first light. The wizards have had their chance. We'll settle. His final words were drowned out when a crude blaring of horns sounded in the distance. Leedorf knew that sound. Looking to the west, he saw that the trees, which had so recently been alive with undead, were now thick with braying beastmen who trampled one another in their eagerness to reach Hildenhain's breached wall. They had been drawn by the sound of battle, Leedorf guessed come to pile further horror on Heldenheim. Not today, he swore, his anger rising to meet the new threat. Vengeance would wait, at least for now. Okay, we are back. I had to revise my usual thing I say that. <laughs> Okay, so we start off on chapter one here. Um, I know this Manfred is stuck in, so he can't leave because of the Wall of Faith, but he's still getting news from necromancers who are flocking to Sylvania, and apparently they can go in. So this thing isn't just a cage, it's a trap. It's like a roach motel. You go in there and you stay. <laughs> um, and that's when he knows there's a stranger in his land because he, you know, he's completely tied to all these creatures. Um, I do like how Manfred it says he, he he could have appreciated under other circumstances for it's a perfect combination of lure and trap, and he and <laughs> was inclined to commend, commend Gelt for his craft before tearing out his throat. <laughs> <laughs> I think I do I do find a lot of the things with Manfred a little bit humorous as well. He's sort of got that yeah good humor to him. Mm. You know what I, I I wanted to talk about that for just a minute actually, and I'm glad you brought it up because. I love the interplay between Archon and Manfred. Yeah, that's good. It's a mean, highlight. Manfred looks down on humans as weak and as the Empire as stupid, but Archon keeps noticing as much as he 
demeans them, he acts just like them. He is still a complete product of the empire and its ways and its customs. Um, and it, it, Archon can actually play him because it's so obvious what he'll do. Um, can Archon read minds? Did anybody else get the sense of that? Like, I, I, I would say it's more he sort of can read the character and nature of people rather than literally being able to read their mind. I think he's just very perceptive, perhaps. Yeah, that's, I think so. Yeah, he, he can anticipate what they're going to do to a good degree. Because, man, he knows exactly what Manfred's going to do pretty much but, at any time. Uh, but Manfred is pretty easy to read. I think any one of us could anticipate what he's going to do. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess. He doesn't really hide it. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. No. I think he makes sort of very thinly veiled attempts to, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to try and screw you over. Honest. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thinly veiled is right because it's so obvious, you know, what he would want to do, especially, you know, an archon can read him like a book. So I don't think he's mind reading. He's just. Yeah. Yeah, I'll get with that. I, I guess you guys are. I was just curious what anybody else thought because, it was, I mean, it's like you could tell what he's thinking, but like sometimes he knows what he's thinking almost down to the word. It's like, oh, I was wondering. But so it's funny. So he, he goes to meet this stranger and he's standing on the bridge and he's like, oh, you have a crown and a hand and a bunch of books. And he's like, I want them. He's like, why would I give them to you? Because Nagash must rise. He's like, oh, crap, it's Archon. And I love this part. They talk about Manfred wants to spread his darkness over the whole world, but not so he can hand it over to somebody else. Mm. So Manfred seems kind of dumb to me a little bit. Just the idea that he thinks... Uh, maybe I could just uh, make Nagash my bitch. Like, it's, it is like that. He's, he's. I think that's why I find him so funny. He has really all these delusions of grandeur, but then does he? Does he actually believe it himself? I get the impression sometimes he doesn't. It's just. Well, I mean, he's trying. He seems to think he can. If he can get in there at the right moment, he could mess things up and really take control. There's several times in the book where he's got this plan. He's like, "Yeah, I can do this," and then he's like, "Oh no, that's not going to happen, is it?" <laughs> Oh well. <laughs> well, I do like the battle between Manfred and Archon here, and how Manfred is drawing all this power and winning, and all of a sudden daylight starts to break through, and he's like, "Oh crap! I'm using all my power, drawing the power from the land for this, and I'm destroying the the these this apostatic uh, stuff that I've built." So he has to stop and call a truce. He's like, "I tell you what, I could kill you, but maybe we should just work together, just like you said." Yeah, I'll hear what you have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, I, I think he's a lot of times fighting a little bit out of his weight class. Oh, dude. And I think it's apparent to everyone but him. It actually says, I don't know if it's in the fluff here or if it's in the fluff for his uh, entry in the in the rules book, but it actually talks about how he'd much rather fight um, a load of weak people and just be able <laughs> to kill them than fight someone good. He doesn't actually, uh, some of the vampires, they want to fight the the best opponent they can, but he's not like that at all. Oh, it's not, not, that's not what he's going for. Yeah, during so the ritual, when he's fighting against the uh, high elves, he's fighting against the female one, Aldira, and it, ta- it it does talk about that. How he's he's so used to fighting a bunch of wusses that when he's fighting someone his own match, it's like, oh crap, what do I do now? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, I love it. He brings Archon home, but he's constantly got people watching him. And uh, he takes him down where the books are kept, and he sees all this stuff, and there's three more things he needs. And he tells him, I need three more things. We've got to go get them. So Manfred pulls up this whole army. And Manfred's trying to impress him, so he summons up this huge army. Look what I got. Do you think you're tough? Look at all this. Mm. 
And, you know, I just want to touch on – you touched on the, the, the books that he had arrayed kind of in a circle. Yes. And in the center of that circle was the Crown of, Sor- uh, Crown of Sorcery. Yes. Which harkens back to the Orc and Goblin book, which is um, Azog had that, that very Crown of Sorcery. And so I think a lot of people theorize that maybe it was Nagash whispering into Azog's ear to, to try to control him. And I think, you know, obviously it was him, through the, you know, by seeing this crown of sorcery here. It gave him some death magic, didn't it? It did, yeah. yeah I think it was a level three. Yeah. So, yeah, I, think, I, think I, I could have sworn I read somewhere that it actually said that that's exactly who it was. I don't remember where I read it, but I know I read that that crown was actually Nagash talking to him. It might have been in the Nagash series, even or something mm-hmm. like that. But yeah, I definitely could remember be, him the, saying that he. Yeah, I, I found that comical. You know, it, it's this super powerful being Nagash. You know, from from uh, the Ether World trying to control this orc, and they're struggling for control over this mind, and, <laughs> and he's getting upset. He is because every time he gets him, it's like his his orky urges overtake him. Yeah, yeah. You could just imagine uh, Nagash just face palming. <laughs> <laughs> Animosity again. <laughs> There's no reasoning with this orc, you know. Um, but so they gather up this army and they go to the border. And Archon sacrifices Lupio Blaze. He's one of the nine. He's strong. His blood is just strong enough to do this. I love it. They burn his body. Then they put the ashes all over the Drakenhof banner, and they march the banner up to the gate, and they get through. Uh, and that's when Archon's going west to Bretonia to get the Staff of Power. And Manfred is going with the Drakenhof Templars to go. Oh, he says, Manfred says, no, you, you, you need to take these Templars with you, which are basically blood knights, right? The Drakenhof Templars. You need a bodyguard. Let them go with you. Like, like and that's another word. Uh, uh, Archon's like, yeah, bodyguard. That's what they're coming for. Right. I got you. <laughs> yeah. Like, is he fooling anybody? <laughs> 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 it's pretty comical. I don't think he cares. It's just like as long as they go with you, you know, whatever, you know. Yeah. He's so used to bullying peasants that when he goes up against someone who's really strong, he's still using the same tactics. That's it. I did I did find that um that piece uh in, in his fluff in the rules fluff oh. from Manfred where it says just quickly, uh though some warriors judge themselves by the standards of the enemies they vanquish, Manfred is no slave to conventions of honor or glory, and concern him far more than means. If the choice falls between slaughtering the meek and vanquishing the mighty, he chooses slaughter. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. He's he's a small player. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Bully boy. Well, so uh, one of the things I found interesting in here was because if you read the Nagash trilogy, you, they had the whole scene with the fell blade and all of that in it. Um, so Manfred's going south to Mad Dog Pass, and he's going to get the fell blade back from the Skaven. And they talk about how the fell blade's curse ensured it didn't just kill Nagash, but every time he came back, he came back weaker. And I, I just want, I love this part here. It says. Uh, ensured each manifestation was weaker than the one that had come before it. So dire had this state of affairs become that the final time Nagash had walked the living world on the so-called Night of the Restless Dead, his spirit had dispersed before dawn on the next day. For Nagash to live once more, the Fellblade's vile enchantments would have to be broken forever. Hmm. So now we got, uh, there's a a purpose to this. 
Um, that is interesting. The Fellblade, you know, they, they talk about how it was created by the Skaven to destroy the greatest necromancer to ever walk the world. Yeah. This is from the Skaven book and how it was created with a uh, raw warp stone that was smelted into stolen Gromerol. So I thought that was pretty cool. Two like supernatural, very precious elements of the Warhammer world, you know, meshed together to, to destroy this, this necromancer. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that, that is pretty good. And the, basically once they've each gotten their, the, 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 each item, then they'll meet back up at Manfred's house mm-hmm. and strike out for the third item, basically. And that's Captain Heldenheim, guarded by the Knights of Sigmar's blood. Um, go ahead, Chris. I think you were going to say something. No, no. no oh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, one thing I was going to ask was, um, did they talk about the claw of Nagash? It sounds like he, uh, he's walking around with... Uh, Archon is walking around with the, the actual hand of Nagash. Yeah, they cut his hand off with the Fellblade, and it's yeah. it's in... Manfred has it. Oh, Manfred has it. Okay. Yeah. Um. I like the little side story here. Aliathra's little weird, quiet talks. Like she looks like a crazy person, and Manfred mm-hmm. Manfred notices she's he's like, "What are you talking about?" She's like, "What? Nothing." And he's like, "No, what are you saying?" And then Archon's like, "You know, it, it, I don't really have time to watch you bully these humans. Can we go do something else?" And so, like, they leave, and she's still doing this quiet singing and chanting. She's got some sort of a plan that she's at least trying to work on. I, I really like that that kind of subplots, you know, that, that mind game where Manfred knows that she's doing something, but he can't quite pin it, and he's just on the verge of breaking her. Yeah, and then Archon distracts him. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you have that, that good bit, and then you have Archon here saying to Manfred, captivating though it is to watch a great Manfred von Karstein demonstrate his mastery over a shackled mortal, we have other business and little time in which to accomplish it. <laughs> <laughs> Another great interaction between those two. And it's, it's so easy for him to manipulate Manfred because all you got to do is insult him like that. I mean, he's literally, I mean, you know, to, to, to do a nice pop culture reference, you kind of look at him and goes, what's the matter, McFly? Chicken? And, <laughs> and, he, and you get him to do whatever you want. Yeah. I really liked Manfred. And then I'm reading this book. I'm like, God, he's dumb as hell. But he's, like, so, oh, he's so pivotal to this whole story. Oh, yeah. I love I like this to... map, by the way, on the next page. Yeah. Marking out where they went and all the things mm-hmm. they do and how they're both coming back together. Man, they smash the hell out of Britonia. <laughs> yeah. Don't they? Well, Britonia are busy smashing the hell out of each other as well beforehand. Mm-hmm. So that's, right. Yeah, not good times if you're a Britonian. And the little map of Manfred, he heads south. They see the, uh, the, par- the, the Duke Forzini. That uh, he goes missing and people report. The peasants say, oh, we saw him out there. He's all pale. He's got blood on his mouth. And anyone who says that, the Forzini family kills him <laughs> because they don't want him talking about it. And so Manfred gets back and sees what they're doing to their peasantry. So he just sets the Duke out and the Duke wipes out his whole family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm like, oh, it's, I, I, I'm sorry. I just I really like that little side sidebar there. But then uh, this next part, we get the, the there's basically the you know these uh, three parts here in this in this uh, the rest of part one, and one is Archon's journey, and um, I like he goes and finds Kemler and and Krell and rebinds them to his service, and starts raising an army as he goes along. Um, I didn't realize Krell was one of initially one of Nagash's nine servants. 
like main servants. But like Krell is like totally stupid loyal to Nagash. Not so much Kebler. Did they mention who the other of the nine servants are? What, originally or now? Mm-hmm. Originally. No, I don't think they do. That uh, Some of that comes up in some of the Black Library stuff again. Neferata was one, um, Archon. Basically, his original circle, when Nagash was learning all the skills of immortality, mm-hmm. he had, like, I mean, if you read the book, uh, Archon was basically, like, a drug addict who had a lot of connections in the underworld in Nehekara. Mm-hmm. And uh, Nagash kept him in money and drugs as long as he was doing Nagash's dirty work. And mm-hmm. when they became immortal, he became immortal too. And he's like, dude, Nagash gave me everything. So, I mean, he that's. So mm-hmm. they, they did list some of the other ones in there. I, I don't remember. But, but no one of no one that we would know. No. I don't, I don't know if Vlad von Karstein was originally as well before he died. And then as we'll find oh, out. Right, yes. I think. <laughs> He may well have been, but um, what do you guys think of um, the relationship between Heinrich Kremler and uh, and Krell? How do you find that? Because they're, they're always together, but it's not like Krell's really bound to Kemmler or loyal to him. It's sort of no. That was interesting. There, there are kind of uh, there's a lot of friction there too. I always envisioned Krell as sort of this uh, mindless automaton that just yeah. he never walks speaks, does he? Them. Like he's not mindless. He was a chaos. He was a, a a champion of chaos who died, and then was brought back by Nagash. I think but it, it, is, it seems is that, like in this book it, he it, he's almost has his own agenda. Yeah, whereas, he's, he's like, I don't I don't know if they've sort of changed the fluff on that bit. I my understanding because obviously these are these are old, really old school characters. I always thought that Krell was sort of like bound to Kemler, but it doesn't seem like that at all in this book. Kemler no. seems a bit. Almost irrelevant at parts. Mm. Well, I think when Nagash was gone, he needed somebody, and Kemmler is a powerful necromancer. And that that necromancer, I mean, he's the guy who's bringing up armies. Krell just wants to kill. Yeah, Krell wants to lead armies and kill, and Kemmler's giving him the opportunity. I think they are, they work together. I think because Krell never speaks and leads the army and scares the crap out of people, everyone thinks he's like, you know, like like. Kemmler's little Frankenstein monster, but now you realize, no, that's not the case. Yeah, he's got his own plans, right? Tool, is he? Yeah. Um, uh, there's another part in here. Once again, they're going through Bretonia, and you know, he never expected uh, Lewin's bastard son to take over Bretonia. He just wanted to destabilize it, and it's like Archon felt no satisfaction in what had happened. The events simply unfolded as he had foreseen. He is. Totally, like, he doesn't get excited about anything. He's been alive so damn long, thousands of years. And it's just like at this point, things are just, ha- it's like he's been playing the long game for so long that when things start happening, he doesn't even get excited. He's like, well, yeah, I've been. Looking at his watch about time. I've been laying yep. the plans for this for 600 years. You're damn right it's going to fall out this way. I mean, is anyone else getting that feeling? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, he's sort of, yeah, it's just, it's almost that expectancy, isn't it? He's. He set the wheels in motion, and yeah, now it's all just coming off. Yeah, he's such he's such the exact. And here's something: that's, he is such the exact opposite of Manfred. Manfred is really, I mean, just I mean, he seems more almost like a child of chaos than of the undead. Like he just flies off the handle. Vampires have all these rages, all these things they can't control. And then you get Archon, who's like like Nagash's perfect world. Everything is just ordered, and there he is. You know, that's why it works so well together. As 
when you're reading them. But I mean, there is that, I wouldn't say Manfred's totally on just that bloodthirsty crazy side because you get a bit later on where it brings, um, uh, Wallach Harkon in, who's the blood dragon. Right. And he doesn't sort of like the way he goes about things being, he's completely sort of, yeah, rah, fight, let's kill. Um, so I think there's, there's a bit more to Manfred, but yeah, I think, I think they just, the way they're written, I think just, it makes them really, they play off against each other. Mm-hmm. I think it makes for great reading. And then you get to the big battle of Le Maisonel. It's garrisoned. You've got Duke Theodoric. Um, and I love how they pointed out this guy was like a drunk, and he was basically trying to sort of redeem himself by running, you know, keeping keeping this place safe and mm, battle it. ready. Yeah. yeah. And so he garrisons. This, go ahead. Yeah, I mean this the the Le Maisonel stuff. I think is really exciting because I don't know if you ever remember the the White Dwarf battle reports they had with. Kemler and Crow against the Bretonians and the Wood Elves. In this, they, 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 I think I think it, this is meant to be a different battle of Le Maison Tal, um, but I think they do make reference to it being like the third battle of it or something. But so that's kind of cool, I think. Actually, the twelfth battle of Le Maison Tal. jeez, yeah. But I love this. Uh, they basically point out, you know, Duke Theodoric. He goes there and he keeps it safe during the Civil War. Like he he went there and he said he was going to run this place and he's got it so well run and so well garrisoned that he keeps it safe while it doesn't get harmed while Bretonia is tearing itself apart but then they point out if he would have just actually left it with a skeleton crew and ran out and ridden out and sided with the king Canel, Carcassonne, Brion and Aquitaine would all be safe and not in ruins and the, it would have been the rebellion would have been put down earlier uh, he's doing his duty to you know to a detriment to the rest of the realm exactly <laughs> Um, it, uh, we need to we need to touch on as well these pages you get before the battles where you get these two page spreads with um, basically telling you what the armies are. Mm. Oh, this is great! These are really really cool, and I like how they like picture the model uh, the the little illustration. Draw- yeah, they, they look like some of the models. Like Duke Fiodoric looks like one of the Bretonian lord models you could or used to be able to buy. Yeah, and there's a lot of that in there. They make them look like the models. Talks to him there being a past drunken lech. Which is uh, quite, a, but, but these are really cool. And I find there's a few times in this where I've looked at one of these and thought, "Oh yeah," that, and I've got my quartermaster app out and put all the units uh, on. Yeah, yeah, that, I could do that as an army, and that, that's that's really cool. The artwork's all really good. And see, uh, this is this is uh, creating an army from directly by by being inspired by the fluff. You know, not not worry about its. Uh, uh, feasibility in terms of power, but strictly driven by the fluff itself. They've really done a really nice job in that regard. Yeah, and, definitely. You know what this falls back, and everybody's really enjoying these when you listen to it. You know what this reminds you of, though? Uh, the Not this newest incarnation of White Dwarf, but the last reincarnation of White Dwarf when they went to the fancy print magazine and they started doing battle reports where they were like, screw it, who cares how many points? Who cares if it's even? We're going to do this cool narrative. And everyone's like, these are the dumbest battle reports ever. And that's basically what these are here. you know? Yeah. And what you could, I don't know if you've had a chance to go through the full rules book, but in the back where it's got the scenarios, it actually lists out basically what these armies would be. And if you see on this one here for the Bretonian force at Le Mazantau, where it talks about the three sisters who are the three mm-hmm. damsels, you actually get rules for those mm-hmm. to use them in the game and stuff. So yeah, it's kind of, so and I, I love the little watercolor drawings of them, too, like you said. The, the little sketches are fantastic. Um, each guy gets his own little bit of fluff. You know what? Every time I read these, it's like I really enjoy when you, when you write up an army, whether it's for a tournament or for a campaign, 
in fact, ask you know, ask Chris when we played our campaigns with the the Mighty Empire stuff. After every round, I always try to throw in a little story of who was doing what and what was going yeah, on. Yeah. The, the narrative is a re- the real strong part of it, and it, it's fun to make it up and, and create your own little corner of the Warhammer world. Yeah, yeah I mean, we're doing it with with our campaign. We're doing we've on our blog. We put up every month. We we all write fluff for for what's going on with our armies, and it's it's a great part of it. It's cool, and I think what's important about this is where you've got a lot of characters that aren't necessarily known to people. So they're not special characters with established backgrounds. These pages where it gives it a little bit of fluff, it fills them out a bit more. So it's not a random Duke who's just going to get his head cut off by Krell. You know a bit more about him first before that inevitably happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that just adds a bit of interest. Um, another, you get another interesting bit of uh, Archon's background here in the beginning of this story. He has mastered every type of battle. Every type of formation, every type of way of fighting. But in the end, he keeps returning to the Nehekaran way. And I love the Nehekaran way. Unleash overwhelming force versus the enemy's strongest point. <laughs> Just march him forward. Push it forward. Basically, <laughs> that he's a whack player. I'm going to take <laughs> yeah. my best part, and I'm going to push it forward. That's what he does. It's Operation Grill, as Johnny would put it. That's <laughs> That's, that's the Nehekaran way of fighting, apparently. All this tactics and flanking and counterflanking, I'm throwing everything at that guy right there. And when I break him, I win. It's also a little bit of David Whitech, and I'm just going to throw zombies at you, a wall of flesh, and kill them because I'll just raise more. They actually yeah. call it a huge battering ram of rotten flesh led by Krell. That's that's my tactic. Yeah. I, You know what? And I, oh, I'm reading this book, and the more I read this book, the more I keep looking over at my dwarf army going... I should be playing and building my VC army back up. I really, it's it's just, oh, it makes me miss my VC. So I, don't, I don't blame you reading this. I'm like, oh, maybe I should start a VC army because it makes it sound like a lot of fun. I actually, I've, just, I've sort of obtained a VC army like in the month coming up to this and I didn't know this was coming out. So it's come at just the perfect time, really. So I've, I've sort of fallen on my feet with that. I like on this one as well, where it talks about the coming of the, the Morgasts as well. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of introduces them which is which is pretty cool it is cool so, so they're, they're new but they've been around for three thousand years it's a little bit more legit than the demigriffs being found in the forest thing i think yeah there you go <laughs> <laughs> and actually it's not really if you look at it i mean they were both introduced pretty much the same way but somehow this one works a little better i'm not certain well, why eight three thousand years earlier it says Wait. it right there well, <laughs> <laughs> oh okay well there you go and that, how is that different from the line, oh, look, demigriffs were in the forest all this time. But yeah. oh, you know what? I'll tell you what. When I was at UGG today, I, I, had to, I put back a box of uh, Tomb King skeleton uh, archers and skeleton uh, uh, cavalry. Uh, because I'm like, damn, I got to finish these dwarfs I, I, and my VC. I don't need to start building undead legions. But I picked them up and I had them in my hand. Well, that's so. that's a hard decision to make. I mean, when your your blood is flowing and you're inspired for a particular army, Ugh. that's for me. That's the best time to actually. I think try. I with that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but well, I couldn't because I actually had something else that I had to buy today, so <laughs> I, I had to put those back. Um, it's not actually uh, fantasy related, so we'll just leave no. it out. <sighs> you know what came out today, <laughs> don't you? Who, me? Yeah, or Chris, 40, either Chris. 40K stuff? Space Hulk came out today. Oh, yeah, fat play. Uh, yeah. Okay. I got my copy finally after years of regretting not getting it last time it came out. At least you didn't buy it for hundreds of pounds on eBay or something. You'd be <laughs> feeling... Dude, I almost bought one from Kaz, but I didn't have like three, 250, 300 bucks. 
There we go. So, <laughs> last of the last. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get to this battle because this battle is really cool. Um, the Trebs and Archers are letting loose. Lances are coming in on the flank. Uh, I love this. Kemmler's trying to raise the dead, and it keeps stopping. And he's like, what is stopping me? <laughs> and he scries the battlefield. And I felt so bad for the three sisters. I did, too. I thought they'd play a little bit larger of a role. They're kind of you know, stopping his spells here and there. Then he kind of like <laughs> snap of his fingers. They're just gone. They're dead. Yeah. It basically was a, how dare you? <laughs> okay, they're done. If you use them in the campaign rules in the in the book, they make units unbreakable. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a little bit better. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. Yeah, because I mean, they literally did big black bolt of lightning and they're turned to ash. I mean, they literally get a mention. Wasn't worth drawing the picture of them, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> they're kind of a yeah, footnote. Um, no, I like... one, thing, one thing I love about this battle is on page 62, they have sort of a hand-drawn map. Yes, of, of the battle of the, of the tactics being used. That is great. That's awesome. And the different heraldry of the of the different units, and the fact that each type of unit has a different symbol. I, I really like that. That is that old uh, white dwarf battle reports used to do that similar sort of thing, mm. and uh, it does depict um, Archon's uh, push it forward thing, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> One big arrow. That, right it's, it's, it's Krell in the front and Kemler and Archon in the back, and then I love this when. Uh, Theodoric finds Archon in charges, and Archon's mind is, you know, he's basically watching the battle through every single undead, which has got to be, I mean, the, the, the power of this guy's mind, that he's watching it through everything, and he's keeping an eye on Kemmler because he doesn't quite trust that guy. <laughs> and then uh, Archon takes an takes a axe in the breastplate, and his ribs are shattered. And uh, he's about to take a second blow from Theodric when Anarch von Karstein decapitates him. Uh, and you're like, oof. Yeah, it says, had, a, had Archon any longer possessed a heart, it would have been split asunder. Yeah. <laughs> so seriously, he broke the breastplate, broke open his ribcage, and the axe is buried in the middle of this guy's chest. And he's about to go, and then Theodric just comes up. A lot of guys get decapitated. That's like the VC's favorite way. The, the killing blow. Um, this does the job. It does. But poor Theodric. He was so, he was so close. <laughs> Archon wasn't even aware what was going on. Oh, yeah, I think that's the only time he actually takes a hit in this whole book is right there. But there's a lot of so close. Everybody runs up and then gets decapitated when they take these guys on. Um, yeah, he, he, gets, he gets some licks later on as well, as uh, you'll find out. Yeah. So then <laughs> Krell and his knights... Get over! They overrun the men at arms. Archon recovers from this blow. Looks around, and says, "Oh God, we're winning. We've got this out by. We got this." Where's Kemmler? <laughs> so, <laughs> he goes down there, and Kemmler's got the staff, and he's like, "You know what? Screw you! The chaos gods have shown me the truth. Nagash has been using me, and I'm done." And the you know, Nagash. I like he said, "Nagash has promised me power, but the chaos gods are power." Now, have they ever talked about that before? Kemmler and his affiliation with Chaos in that way? This is new to me. Well, yeah, you, you get, there's a bit of that throughout the book, though, where where Chaos are sort of playing their agenda off against Nagash as an influencing character. So that's not that's not the last of that, that sort of thing happening. We'll hear about, mm -hmm. but I don't think it's something that's been mentioned. yeah touched on before for Kemmler because I know David Kemmler is one of your personal favorites. I've always liked Kemmler, and he's and he's. It, uh, 
he's been corrupted by chaos. I mean, he was always a necromancer, but chaos got a hold of him. Which later, when Archon starts looking back on all this, you realize chaos is really moving against Nagash. They don't want him coming back. It's kind of neat. Well, it's two. It's chaos versus order. That's the two opposing forces going at it. So Cranky it just texted me that today. He said uh, Nagash versus chaos has nothing to do with good and evil. It has to do with total order versus total chaos. Right. Yeah. And then he put disgust, and I said, is, well, duh, actually discussion <laughs> or sarcasm? He goes, right. it's sarcasm. I go, then I have nothing to add to this conversation. <laughs> but uh, you, You've got to think for Kemmler as well. He's not, in the, in the terms of Nagash and the undead, he's not a big player at this point at all. There's so many beings far more powerful than him that oh, yeah. chaos come over and go, come on over to us, we can give you a bit more power. He might be thinking, yeah, I'm sick of playing second best here, or third or fourth, as it might be. Yeah, true. Well, it's plus once they once they actually show him how Nagash has been manipulating him, they totally twist him. Look what he's been doing to you. We can we can set you free. And, and the fact that he doesn't realize that he's just getting he's slipping one collar for another as whatever. Exactly that. But uh, I just picture them down in this thing down there, and and you know. Archon's down there. You say you're the Lich Master. Prove it. And I just picture all of a sudden like something from Scott Pilgrim versus the World. Fight! You know? <laughs> That's a, I, I can't find the exact quote, but yeah, that is a great bit. You think you'll say you're the Lich Master? I'm Archon the Lich, yeah? Yeah. This is... <laughs> oh, here we go. Yeah, it's, it's at the bottom of that little uh, the, the bow story, which starts off with Kemler. And he shouts his name, goes down there, and he says, you call yourself the Lich Master, do you not? Archon asked, to leave this chamber, you must prove that hollow boast. And that's where I just picture, fight. And the power bars come up, and, you know, the anime music starts. It's like the uh, the wizard duel in uh, Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Duke Jared finally arrives. From the last battle where he got run off, where they killed the they killed uh, the other guy. And so the Bretts have all this renewed hope. Krell goes after him. He's like, oh, I'm going to kill you this time. So Krell goes after him, and he's about to get to him, except, oh, my God, the Abbey explodes. <laughs> uh, and basically after it explodes, Duke Jared is one of the few survivors, and he looks around and says, we got to go. He's like, there's no more fight to fighting here. We need to leave. So he orders a retreat. Um, Krell is buried under the explosion of the Abbey, and like nobody knows where he is. And then Archon walks out holding Alkanesh, and Kemler's dead. Did that? Um, how did that strike you when they killed one of your favorites? Uh, it, well, I mean, they're killing off major characters. It's you know what? I kind of, in a sick way, I kind of look forward to see who they're going to kill next. Just it's like, who do they have the nerve to kill? Like which... I'm, I'm actually not convinced Kemmler's gone for good there. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, this, it's one of those ones where you don't see the body, so I've... There's no always... evidence. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I, I don't think he's categorically gone, but we'll see. <laughs> it says the traitorous Kemmler had been disposed of, so mm. and they were in there. I mean, I don't know, mm. but maybe not. I mean, if he is truly the Lich Master, could he not bring himself back? Do you not remember in his uh, the rules for him? He had that army of the Cairns, and he had he, he was a fairy. He had a special cloak. Maybe he put that on. Dodge the dodge the building falling on him. And oh, dude, it would out. be nice if he shows up again. Yeah. That would be pretty cool. Could be, could be. But I, I get the feeling that that explosion was magical. <laughs> <laughs> 
cascaded. I, but yeah, it, yeah, I mean, yeah. it almost sounds like he miscast. The magic got too much, and he couldn't control it. It says something like that in there. So, but let's get to Manfred's part. Now, yeah. Manfred is not going to go. He, he actually says he's not going to walk out with just himself like a beggar, like that archon. Appearances must be maintained. So he's got a whole army. He's riding out on in glory, just like a like any lord of the empire. As much as he looks down on them, he acts like them. Um. He goes under the cover of night. He's leaving no survivors because he doesn't want anybody to know that they broke out of Sylvania. Um, and then he realizes, he's like, wow. When he starts going through, he's thinking, I'm going to have to wipe out everyone in my path. And there's nobody there. There's like entire cities are all dead from plague and riots and stuff. Um, and then as he finds the destruction, Skaven. It actually turns out the Skaven had wiped out some of these towns. And he finds a bunch of Skaven hurting off some humans. And they look at him and think he's just another human army. So like, go get him. So they go in. They go in and attack him. <laughs> Big mistake. Oh yeah, uh, he just wipes him out. And then basically, this is pretty quick. This is much quicker than 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 Archon's journey because he just starts following the Skaven. He just keeps wi- moving forward and wiping him out. Um, until he gets to Mordkin Lair, and he gets to his big battle, which is another one of these. And I love Manfred. Manfred. Manfred's got another whack army. It's Manfred, Blood Knights, Black Knights, Hex Wraiths, and Skeletons and Zombies. He's got his core and then tons of Cav because he's going to smash. He does. He's got all Cav buses. Look at his list. Yeah, is he going to do some dirty tricks with the Hex Wraiths? That's what I want to know. Yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> all the, the multiple reforms. Yeah, yeah. Where, <laughs> where the Skaven is, is predominantly infantry. They have some monstrous cab in there. Actually, because he's got some rat ogres. I know they, yeah, he's got some rat ogres, doesn't he? I think? Yeah, the warp yeah. runners. Yeah. Some ratodgers. Yeah. <laughs> so, see, I listen. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> Just going back to these uh, Drakenhof Templars, are they, I, I know that. Would you call them blood knights? Or a blood knight's blood dragon vampires? Or is blood knight just a term for a, a vampire knight? The blood knights are vampire knights. The blood dragons were like uh, that, that one in that one specific... Yeah, I know yeah. they sort of... I wondered whether blood dragons were all... Uh, blood knights were all blood dragon vampires by default, but evidently not. <laughs> just a... Though Manfred would never have admitted it, he was greatly reliant on the Drakenhof Templars in the battle beneath Mad Dog Pass, as they were the only troops he could rely on to act autonomously. All others were slaves to his will. So there's again Manfred, who needs he you know needs his little needs his guys with him. So this battle, I love how they put Manfred would never actually consider this one of his more glorious battles. And, and this is just really crazy. He basically sends in the zombies, and the zombies just clean out the upper levels. And then... It's just a nightmarish vision that they're they're setting up here. These, these zombies walking through these dark tunnels, and then Skaven being pressed into battle. You yeah. know? Uh, just the stuff of nightmares. Yeah. Um, he cleans out the top tunnels, and then they get down, and basically it, it's just a pretty smooth sailing. He gets down to where... They are, and uh, I love the gates of the fortress lair for the Mordkin, uh, for Clan Mordkin, or the bones of this dragon that they caught and killed and used as food for clan rats. So they got this huge gate of like a rib cage of a dragon. Um, they've got Lord Feskit and Lord Snickrat. Um, they technically have the advantage of a space, but there's just so many undead. Everywhere they throw them, it's just like there's just more coming. 
Yeah, there's um, there's a bit. I think um, doesn't Manfred? It's not just the the rib cage of a dragon. It's he re raises the dragon, doesn't he? Yeah, mm-hmm. there's the whole and, dragon exactly. Yeah. But the rib cage portion looks. I mean, I'm just picturing that as like the yeah. main part of the gates. Yeah, it's pretty good. That'd be a great it's idea just, for a uh, display board. Yeah, <laughs> that would be cool. Uh, so for a zombie uh, dragon on a board. Yeah. <laughs> so I love as they're retreating and they get to this bottomless chasm dividing the tunnels to the lair. And so Snick, Snickrat runs across the bridge, and he burns it. And the zombies are walking forward, just falling into the pit. And they're walking up to the edge, and he's got his gunners on the other side just kind of shooting them. And you can't get through, and it's like, oh, we got him stopped. And Manfred walks up, and he's standing in these piles and piles of zombies and skeletons all around him. And he just starts waving his hands around. And they just walk up to the edge, and he starts he starts bone-crafting them, basically, right? I mean... Yeah, he just orders them to fall off. Yeah, just basically weaves a bridge out of them doesn't he yeah it's just pretty uh pretty graphic <laughs> yeah i mean their bones just start twisting and reshaping and they start forming the bridge and as the as you know they walk out to the end of the bridge and become part of it and the skaven on the other side are like oh no and so they just start shooting at them and like breaking off bits of the bridge but there's always another zombie to fill that i, I love it they're, they're shooting in a panic and they start misfiring and exploding yeah this is that skaven on the brink of winning we were talking about yeah earlier. yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah, and so now the Skaven can't destroy the bridge. The Blood Knights start running across. Everybody retreats, but too, ra- too late. Snickrat runs to go tell Feskit what's happening. Feskit kills him for doing this. I love this, though. Now he's, now he's completely freaking out. And so they got a list here of everything he sends against Manfred's guys, and it's a total waste of time. But here we go. Over the hours that followed, Feskit drove his minions into the tunnels in attempts to drive the vampires away. There were mutated beasts purchased at great expense from Clan Mulder, weaponeers from Clan Skyer, turntails from other warlord clans, seven whole regiments of storm vermin, and slaves and clan rats almost beyond counting. All told, it was might sufficient to invade a large city, but it wasn't enough to stop the intruders. They far outmatched the defenders, even when outnumbered six or seven times over, and the confines of the tunnels prevented Feskett's chieftains from bringing greater advantage to bear. And then whoever they killed, of course, Manfred just brought up and sent them back at him. That's like, oh, God. Yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> they were definitely out on a screaming bellow and an abomination there, I think. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, or a doom wheel or something. Yeah, that would have done it, yeah. <laughs> um, so they close the gate, and Feskett goes to get the fell blade. Which there's some cool description of this. He doesn't use it too much because he doesn't want anyone knowing he's got it because they might try to kill him to get it. But he also doesn't like using it because every time he uses it, he feels weaker because it's draining his freaking soul. And he doesn't quite ra- get it. Um, but I do love that he finally gets the fell blade. And he comes up and he's like, uh, what? And he looks and the gates have been raised. And like you said, Manfred's like, oh, that's a dragon carcass, isn't it? Mine now. Um, yeah, here, deal with this. Yeah, yeah. that's. I, I love that bit. <laughs> so that's, I had to reread it just to make sure that's that's what actually happened. The first one was like, has he just t- taken up the castle and made the gate and made a dragon out of it? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and then see, he has got something up top, Manfred. He's not just all one track. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he's, he does have some skills. And I yeah. love this stuff because all of this stuff that goes on under the castle, none of this is intrinsic to the plot. But it just fills out that story and makes the story so much better. Because uh, let's face it, Manfred kills Feskett. He doesn't even try. 
He goes over, breaks his arm, grabs the grabs the fell blade, kills the kills the the clamor, and then as he's leaving, he gives the zombie dragon enough energy to live for another week or so. <laughs> he's like, I don't even care who went if they kill it. I don't care if they kill it or not. I just think it's funny to leave it there, w- wamping on him for another week. It's purely out of spite. Yeah. <laughs> but I love how in the first part, when Archon gets the staff, Nagash will rise. And then in this one, Nagash would rise and Manfred would rule. Mm. <laughs> uh, who's, yeah. Is even Manfred really believing that? <sighs> I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, whether he believes it or not, he's gonna he's gotta he's gotta do his best to make it happen because he's just he's I can he cannot stomach the idea of working for the man. So let's get this last battle in and finish this chapter. Yeah, sure. <laughs> they meet back at Castle Sternest. And uh, Archon, re- this is where Archon starts to realize chaos is against him. You know, Kemler turned against him, and he's thinking about it. Those attacks of chaos in Bretonia right before the rebellion slowed him down. Um, and I love how Kemler tells him, you know, Nagash has been manipulating us, and Ar- uh, Archon doesn't know or care if Nagash has been manipulating him. He's been working to bring Nagash back for centuries. And it says, if he even felt a trace of excitement, he didn't acknowledge it. Once again, I don't care if I'm being used. This is just this has been my job for a thousand freaking years. At this point, what does it matter? And Arkan starts as well to wonder what's going on with Balthazar Gout. If he's a if he's an agent of chaos, it's saying it's a bit convenient what what he's started doing as well at this time. Yeah, but then he stops. Just now, nah, that that wouldn't work. <laughs> That's not it. Um, but I love it that once he gets the staff and he's coming back to Manfred's house, every chaos beast within 100 miles attacked him. Like he said, it was constantly being attacked by uh, by beast men and, and any monster that seemed touched, that touched by chaos attacked him. Um, and, he, and he knows that the Silver Pinnacle, where Neferata lives, has also been attacked by demons. Um, Krell... You know, was was attacked and it seemed like he was almost killed or whatever happened to Krell, because Krell's—they left him apparently. He was buried under the the rocks in Bretonia. Um, but he doesn't say any of this to Manfred because he doesn't want Manfred getting any ideas, and he doesn't want Manfred backing out of the deal. So it's just he's starting to put the pieces together that Cass is working against him. I thought that was cool. Uh, and then we cut to Manfred, who's pissed because his apostatic enchantment is fading because he needed those nine bodies. And, and, and Archon's like, really, dude, if I just kill one, it's not going to hurt it. And now he's got like three weeks before it's gone. Uh, and when he complains to Archon, Archon looks at him and says, Nagash will be back by then. Who cares? Oh, and I love this. Once again, Manfred does the same thing he did before. I'm not going to hand over my realm to anyone. I tell you what, we're going to go attack Heldenheim. I'm going to impress Archon with the size of the army I can raise. He'll see who's really got power. And so he calls forth everything in the freaking realm. Every every bat, every wolf, every everything. And him and Archon ride out, and he's still mad. And Archon's laughing. He's like, you think I'm impressed by this? Like, with all I've seen in Nehekara? He's like, I'm glad you're trying to do it, though, because we're going to need all this. Yeah. Um, and so basically, uh, they look at it and they know that taking this fortress will be hard, but they also know that Hector, after Wa Bloodtooth, 
came through that there was a hole in the wall of their of the of the the the, the city that uh, of the defenses they've been breached. Yeah, they've still been rebuilding it. This battle's cool. Yeah, this battle is cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, this way, this way you get the terror geists come in, don't we? Yeah. I like a good terrorgeist. Mm. Yeah, and uh, and the um, you get to see the vargeists coming in, flying in, and, and tearing stuff up too. There's a great passage where they talk about um, the the Hellfire batteries that they can't you know, like quite pivot down enough to shoot, but they can shoot across. Yeah, to shoot the the, the oncoming undead on the, at the other tower. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so dawn breaks and there's all these skeletons out there and the screaming skull cat. I love that when they, you know, the screaming skull catapult sounds kind of weird when you read it in, in the book, but when you describe it actually in action with all these heads going and breaking like grenades and, and killing, you know, a dozen guys around, I was like, Oh, that's kind of neat. Um, so they order the cannons to take out the catapults and, um, they blow one up, they're like, yay, and all of a sudden it just repairs. I'm like, man, I wish I could do that in the game. <laughs> That'd be a little too much. But, but it is awesome, isn't it? I mean, it is really cool. They just, everything they blow up, he's like, yeah, whatever, put it back. But, but they do write the, like, these undead powers, I think, a little too well. Like It's it's kind of deceptive in, in terms of gameplay. Like, oh, they're so powerful, i got to play them. You know, well, I, I mean, get in terms of gameplay, yeah, to... it never comes through. But yeah. I mean, this these these are some of the most powerful necromancers on the planet, too. I mean, it's not like you know, Phil the necromancer showed up and is doing this. It's Archon. Oh, I understand. But even if you feel Archon, he doesn't have these sorts of powers. I not s- to this extent. I said that in the beginning. The guys on the table never match what goes on in this book. Yeah, yeah but this is like to the nth degree, though. Yeah. Exactly. So I love this. So the skeletons advance, and they're like, they don't have any siege towers. What the hell are they going to do? And they just start making a wall of skeletons and climbing each other. And that's when the Hellblasters, they can't shoot straight down, so they shoot across. Mm. And then it's they like that fire. scene from uh, World War Z, where the, the, body, the zombies just kind of pile up against that wall and, and start to pile over. Yeah, except, yeah. No. Except that films, yeah, bad. Yeah, exactly. Except, except not lame. <laughs> this was actually cool and scary. It um, sounded good, but not awful. Yeah. So they got the two bastions, Sigmundus and uh, whatever. I forget the name of what the other one is. I don't. I don't. I have it written down here somewhere. But Sigmundus is overrun because the damn Hellblaster kept misfiring, and they couldn't get the skeletons off the wall fast enough. And then you have this this one, a warrior priest, Father. Uh, Udkrier. And it looks like he's going to turn the tide and suddenly a bunch of arms come over the wall, grab him and throw him over the wall. <laughs> and then um, Cross, who's running this whole thing, you think Cross is going to be one of these you know, pivotal leaders, and all of a sudden the wall starts shaking and they the catapult breaks the wall and uh, he dies in the fall, cursing and falling. Um, and then Volker and his men keep fighting. Uh, there's another little passage that I really liked in here. Where is it? Uh, Archon was greatly pleased how the battle was unfolding. He'd never expected both the bombardment and the escalade to succeed. But succeed they had, and gloriously so. Yet it would all be for nothing if the Knights of Sigmar blood refused to take the bait. So basically, they're doing this just to get those guys out of the castle. Because as long as they stay in the castle, they're never going to get in there and get what they want. But there you get an, an example of Archon actually being... Pleased or showing some form of 
emotion, if you can use that word for him, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. rather than just uh, an expectancy. So, yeah, he shows that side there. Yeah, if they won't leave the castle, they, they couldn't leave, uh, seal themselves in their castle and leave the city to burn. The mortal conceits of honor and chivalry would surely not allow it. And then they come out, and they come flying out there. Um, and you've got Hans Liebdorf, uh, you know, arrive with 1,200 knights. Oh, that's awesome. Is that in horde formation? or <laughs> <laughs> At least. <laughs> 10 wide, 12 deep. That's a night bus. <laughs> That's a night bus. That's a that's filth. Would be ten white, one hundred and twenty deep. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Um, they charge through the ranks of the undead. Wheel go back into it. They're smashing things up left and right. Leetorf sends guys and they take out the catapults. And he's wondering why they don't reform, but that's because Archon has taken off because his job's done. They're out, and so that was his job just to get them to leave the castle. And now it's Manfred's turn, and that's when the black clouds roll in, and the knights are like, uh oh. And they're outside, and they've, they've wiped out all the skeletons outside the city. And they see these black clouds rolling in, and they're like, we got to get back. Um, and that's where the castle was strong. They had guys in there and said it could resist any sort of a siege, except Vargeists come flying in, and it's not set up to, to stop a, a, a sky assault. And that's when the Vargeists flow in, and then after they beat off the Vargeists, the Cairnwraiths and the Banshees just come floating through and making everyone go crazy and die. And then it gets messier after that, when then, at last, Manfred von Karstein came to the battle on a steed of twisted bone. Two terrorgeists heralded his coming, dropping from the darkened sky into the centre of the castle courtyard with shrieks so piercing that every window, goblet, and mirror in the castle shattered. That's great. That's cool. That's yeah. awesome. <laughs> um, they got the seneschal of the place guarding the vault with his men, Rudolf, we- Rudolf Wesker. Rudolf Wesker kills a terrorgeist all by himself. Just... just yeah. Takes it takes an axe to that guy's that thing's head, um, but of course then Manfred just decapitates him. Standard by me. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and then he kills everybody else. And then when Leetdorf, who is the mad, the mad, uh, the mad Duke's uh, nephew, isn't he? Yeah, I think he is. Isn't he? Yeah, Mari- Marius is the mad count, isn't he? Right, so and this is his nephew. His nephew, yeah, and. Uh, he walks in, and in blood on the wall, the cage is broken, is written. And so he's like, you know, there, and there's Manfred just uh, throwing an insult, and it, it, oh, man, it pisses him off. Because he's like, that's it. In fact, that's the, the nice little story here. He's like, it was Manfred. He's broken out of Sylvania. He's going, we're going to go. We're going to Sylvania. We're going to get him. And then they turn around, and, oh, the beast men showed up. Which, as you guys pointed out, whenever you need someone to show up and slow you down and die, here come the beastmen. Cue the fodder. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's it. They come up, and so he's like, and he gets mad. He just rides out there and wipes them out. He does. He rides out there. He's all pissed. He rides out there and just wipes them out. So that's the end of part one. So we're doing okay here so far. Let's uh, Let's take a break and come back and hit part two. They've got all the pieces they need. Now they just have to bring back Nagash. Enter the elves.
Hey folks, it's Dave, and I wanted to talk to you for a minute about Battle Foam. You've all heard me talk about it before. The foam is firm, it doesn't separate from the base, they custom cut, design, make any piece of foam you want to fit any model you want. Anytime a new army comes out, within days, you've got Battle Foam cut, designed to fit those models. This isn't a game company making cases on the side. This is a carrying case company making foam and custom carrying cases to protect your army. It's what they do. It's all they do. Check it out at BattleFoam.com. Battle Foam, protecting your army. Unique Gifts and Games in Grays Lake, Illinois is the one-stop shop for all your gaming needs. They carry anything your favorite gamer may want. Board games, collectible card games, miniature-based games, and all your hobby gaming supplies are there, as well as books, charms, incense, crystals, and other unique gifts. UGG has it all. Come into the store and ask about their frequent buyers program, or check out their gaming and events calendars in-store or online. From Tuesday night War Machine and Thursday Board Game Night to Friday Night Magic, there's always something going on at Unique Gifts and Games in Gray's Lake. Check them out on the web at uniquegg.com. back starting chapter two the ritual taking place in autumn of the year 2524 this whole first three parts take place in like a year and a half like two years all this is going on it's just i mean and i guess when you think about it that it does make sense but it seems like a lot happens in two years it's the getting getting from one place to the other in super quick time (laughs) (laughs) Like when Crow Crow's buried somewhere, then he shows up again later on. It's like, how did he get from there to there? But it's a lot of hand of Gork going on. Yeah. Suspension of disbelief and all there that. You, <laughs> oh, you know what it is? They'll pick it up. They'll they'll, they'll explain where. I'm, I'm assuming that they're going to explain what happened to Crow in a different, you know, in one of the other books. Like once again, filling in those little holes that they're purposely leaving because there's probably a good story there. Yeah. Yeah. But so nobody actually knows what's going on. It's funny. At this ends, and the Bretonians know something's wrong because they, this thing got sacked, and there was a lot of you know relics there. Uh, so everybody knows like the, these places got sacked and relics got stolen, but nobody's able to put all the pieces together. Um, and everybody's hurting, so everyone's sort of like licking their wounds, except for Hans Leitdorf, and he's like, "We've got to go stop. We got to go stop these guys." Well, we should mention. I don't know if we did mention that the the the, the relic that they got from uh, the Heldenham Keep was the the black armor of Nagash. Oh, you're right, Morricane, right? Is that what right. it's called? So now, and the, yeah, go ahead. Is is I, I'm not familiar with uh, Nagash's rules, but does he have? Does he don that armor, and does it have specific rules? Oh, yeah, I think he, it just gives him a four board save and um, heavy armor or something. Oh, okay. Yes. Not much more than that. Yeah, he actually made it. It, it was it, he. He wore it at the end when he was killed with the fell blade. He was wearing it then. It's um, it's it's pretty much almost grafted to his body. It's like a part of him. Oh, I see. Okay. So, um, so basically, the, the beginning of this, Leitdorf goes to Altdorf. He goes to the emperor, and he's like, "They broke out. 
They're doing this. We need to go attack them. And Carl Franz is like, um, you know, let me think about that because we got this whole war going on in the north. And he waits around for three days. And, boy, those must have been three long days for him. Like, he's just crawling the walls. And um, so finally he goes to this meeting, and there's three elves there. There's Eltharian, Eldira, and Belenir. And um, I, I just want to point this out because dwarves are to everybody. Um, they all carried themselves with the surety of accomplished warriors. No, Leetdorf thought. It was more than that. It was arrogance, a surety of word and deed that no human could ever hope to achieve. Even in the heart of the emperor's palace, amidst the fineries and treasures of generations, the elves made the surroundings look cheap and tawdry. And worse yet, they knew it. And what's his name? What's his name won't even talk to him. Eltharian refuses to even speak. He makes Belenir and Eldira do all the talking because they're jerks to humans. And Eltharian is jerk to everybody. But I'm just pointing out the obvious. That well, they're they're in character. I, there's nothing wrong with that. Well, you know yeah. what? It's, it is funny because if, if, once again, the, even the Wood Elf book talks about how they're their sort of uh, aloofness, their idea that they're better than everybody, that that's the that's the that's where Chaos's claw is in them. Everybody's got some some taint and that is their um you know, their arrogance. Sure, the haughtiness. Yeah. Um so and they need help, but Carl Franz couldn't, but then here's this Leetdorf guy with twelve hundred knights saying we need to go, so hey, you should you two should meet each other and talk. Um and I love that. You know, they always talk about how Carl Franz is like the greatest statesman in hundreds of years in the Empire. And this is the type of stuff, whenever you read a book, whenever he shows up, this is the type of stuff he does. It's like he can't always do what everybody wants, but he finds a way to make sure that the things that need to happen happen, even if he can't be the guy to do it. I Like I said, I just, I just like that because it's that, that whole manipulation that's going on. He even writes a letter to the dwarfs, which comes up later, and he says... Um, uh, you know, th- you know they're trying to uh, do this rescue attempt in Sylvania. That's right on your border. You know, I know you guys don't get along, but maybe you could help them. Yeah, um, he get, gets um, gets the results without having to really sacrifice anything of him himself or his own forces outside of the ones that want to go anyway. There, really, doesn't he? So, right, he definitely gets results. I would say. And uh, that's when Ungrim Iron Fist, the Slayer King, he wants to go. Uh, I love it. He asks all of his things, say, no, we don't have the time. We don't have the resources. We should close the doors. We, do we really want to go and help the elves again after the way they treated us last time we tried to help them? And that actually pisses him off. He's like, I'm tired of hearing no from everybody. We need to set an example and remind people how powerful the dwarves are. We're going. So the elves are going. The humans are going. The dwarves are going. The wood elves yeah, they, they, they're getting involved as well, aren't they? Yeah, the Wood Elves are going because they promised the Ever Queen that they'd go. Um, I love how they they stop along the way a lot to kill Beastmen, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just getting rid of the nuisance. Well, you know, and it says not one person in that party didn't hasn't lost family to the Beastmen. They all hate them. So, well, they're still an evil force. Yeah. Even you know it. it in the backdrop of this uh, greater epic story that, you know, many little towns and cities and backwater farms in the empire were unknowingly saved from the beast men by wood elves. That's a great little bit that's in there. Mm. 
it talks a little bit more about Malagor in this section as well, doesn't it? Um, it says that um, none amongst the beastmen knew their de- des- destination, only a burning instinct that drove them ever onwards. Even the creature that led the horde, known as Malagor, did not fully know his purpose. And it even sort of suggests that he could have taken down Arkan, but you don't really get the impression that that could have happened. <laughs> well, it says that he knows that he was ca- tasked by the Chaos Gods to kill Archon, and that's why they showed up at the end, where it seemed all convenient that the Beastmen showed up and yeah, slowed down. It just seemed down. kind of random, like they, they were attracted to the sound of battle or whatever, but you no, know, he was on a mission. Yeah, in fact, he was he was mad because he could smell Archon was there, and he wanted to go after him, but the Beastmen smelled all that blood, and the open wall was right there to that human city. <laughs> he lost control. And he lost control of them. It's like every time... You know, that's another face palm. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh, come yeah. on. Um, I like how they give Aeroloth the Wood Elf too a little bit of uh, a little bit of screen time. Like normally, he's telling stories and he's sort of off on his adventure, and now he's just like not talking and he's really upset. And it's because this goddess who sort of changed him is like showing him, and like every vision he gets of the future is just like death and destruction. And he's just like miserable because it's like I got to do this, and there's nothing good happening here. But everybody enters Sylvania from a different area, and of course, Manfred knows when anyone enters his territory, and like he's amused, you know. And he's like, if they all came in together, I'd be in a lot of trouble. But they all came separate, so let's play games. Yeah, this is one of those examples where he kind of strings along the beastmen, right, and kind of leads them around by the nose. Yeah. They keep attacking them and leading them east. They keep attacking the flank and running, leading them east. And Malagor just knows they need to go in there and find Archon. So even he doesn't know what's going on. Um, yeah, eventually they lead those beastmen east towards the dwarves, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. Takes some boats sort of out of the equation, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah, and of course, and then there's Archon who doesn't care. Because he's getting ready for Nagash at this place in the Glen of Sorrow. I love that. You know, I feel so bad for the people who live there. Like, do you not know that your life is going to suck when you live in a place that has places called the Glen of Sorrow and the Circle of Nine Demons? And, you know, it's like, oh, I mean, every place in this in this in this in this country is just like, you know, here's Death Corner. Oh, and there's Despair Drive. And. Over here, we're on Beheading Boulevard. I mean, there's we'll meet no... meet you at Skull Abbey. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's Count Nictolos of Vagravia that goes after the Beastmen. Um, oh, and then the dwarves are trying to get to Tempelhof to meet up with the elves and the humans. Um, he sent gyrocopters with the message that they don't actually come back. Mm-hmm. Um, they were swept out of the sky by terrorgeists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um and Manfred is actually he's actually worried about the dwarves. There's a bunch of them and they're well organized and they're good fighters. And uh he keeps sending captains out and they keep dying. Ungrim personally kills 3 of them and he's like, "Damn it." <laughs> well, I think they talk about him like purposely typically avoiding messing with the dwarves because they're such a hard problem to deal with once they're around, you know, yeah. organized and yeah, because the the eastern borders are right on the world's edge mar- mountains, yeah. and so he doesn't every he, he just doesn't want them there. Um, but of course, oh, and I love how they uh, they could get there, but the trees keep shifting and the roads keep disappearing. 
you know, because the, the the actual you know the actual ground itself is moving and slowing them down, and they probably could have made it to where they were trying to get on time, but he wasn't about to leave his siege engines and his cannons behind, because hmm. no dwarf leaves behind your siege engines and your cannons. That's like we're going to get slowed down. Um, and then, uh, and that's when the beastmen finally get there, um, and they fight, and they fight a long time. I mean, they fight for like what, like two days, or what does it say, two days and a night? Uh, and then Malagor's forces run away again because the beastmen lose because they're there um, to lose. Exactly, pretty much to buy time. Like again, they're they're playing the role of cannon fodder. They're, yeah. e- they're even lower. I feel like in terms of uh, status than like goblins. Like <laughs> oh, great, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, they leave behind a battlefield choked with mangled and half-devoured dead. Ungrim Iron Fist was left master of the battlefield, but they would march no deeper into Sylvania. His desire to fulfill his oath as a slayer fought with his responsibilities as king. The slayer longed to march and meet a glorious death, but the king knew his responsibilities lay with his people. And they said that this is a great victory, perhaps the greatest victory against the children of chaos in the annals of Kadrakadrin, but they had failed their allies. So he sends some volunteers to go over there and tell them we're late, and they actually get there. But I don't, I don't think the humans and elves ever knew they were coming. I don't think they did either. If those copters didn't make it, how would they know? Right. Okay. So you know that happened. That battle happens, um, and then oh, I love how he attacks the. I love how he attacks the wood elves here. He sends the banshee, the queen of sorrows. And she just makes them all miserable to the point where they like some of them fall asleep and they're so sorrowful, like they just die in their sleep. They're just like so miserable they just die. <laughs> Damn emo elves. Yeah, I had to read that section a couple of times. Like, wait, what's happening? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, and then they're trying to find out. They're like they're like they're like taking the spirits of the dead and trying to find out what is causing this misery. And three spell weavers die trying to wring the information out of these spirits. Three of them go crazy. And finally, the seventh finds out that it's this Banshee Queen, and they find out where she is in the middle of Ghoul Wood. Because, you know, of course, what else would it be called? Of course. Right. <laughs> you know, just I want to see one place named like Happy Town. Just one in the middle of this place, but you're never going to find it. Um, so they go and they banish the Banshee. Um, but the ghouls are harassing them. And then all of a sudden the goddess shows up, the one that gave Aeroloth, like, turned him from, like, a schmucky lord to, like, a hero. And this is the weirdest. I think this is probably the weirdest part in the book, almost. I, I agree, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre. This is the bit I had to read several times. Just was like, what? Like, what's happening here? <laughs> yeah. So they're talking and no one can hear it. And he gives her the locket that he's been using that's been like the beacon leading him to where he needs to go. And she takes it and crushes it into dust and throws the dust in the air and it opens up a portal. A starlit portal on the path ahead. What? <laughs> yeah, pay attention, Dan Helen. We just found a portal. <laughs> and then her and Araloth just walk in and they're gone. All the elves follow them as well. It's just not those two. All the elves right. go into it. Well, and they, they basically say, well, if he's leaving, we leave with him. If this is a trap, we're going to fight for him. And if we got to go, we got to go. And they're gone. That's it. Bye. They're done. 
Thus did the host of Athol Lorraine pass from Sylvania and from Mortalside. Finn, move on. That's it. What? <laughs> yeah. They don't say where they went? or no. well, where do you think? What, what, no. And there's no, spoiler if you will, but there's no further reference to that throughout the book. That's it. Done. Obviously, so, that's, that's got to come back around at some point. But... I, would, I would think so. That's very, very strange. Oh, it's better, because that'll piss me off. Is there any precedent for that sort of thing in Warhammer Fluff? Just a portal opening up? Yeah. yeah. Look, read all of Dan Helan's fluff when he was playing this game. <laughs> what? So <laughs> I, I don't know, but it was cool. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I ask. I wonder too if. Hey, give me that magic locket. I crush it up in a magic locket powder and open a portal. Like I don't know what the hell just happened. To what end? I mean, I don't even know that I have any ideas of what what it means. Really, I just. I don't know what it. I don't know what where they would go to. Is it simply like uh, you know that the elves always being at the twilight and leaving to go towards you know their next? Yeah, sort of the Lord, Lord yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it that sort of thing, or are they coming back? Or I think they went for ice cream. <laughs> they went to Happy Town. <laughs> they happy went to Town, happy right? They're sick of. I'm sick of Ghoul Wood and 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 <laughs> Ugly Fen and Dread Sorrow and the. Forget it. <laughs> We want to be in the woods that are nice woods with living plants that we can sing and play our lyres and stuff like that. All we got to do is crush this locket. Tra-la-la! And make magic locket dust. (laughs) They might have gone to be with the My Little Ponies based on what we just read. I just... Are they going to link up with wherever um, Elarial's gone? I just... I I don't know. I don't understand it. (laughs) I don't really have a theory on it because I just... I don't get it. (laughs) I don't either, but... Like I said, this better have a good payoff later in the books because something just really – don't set up a great battle. They're going through all this. They fought one banshee, the queen of the banshees, and then yeah. they ditched through a portal. It's, they started off – I mean we, we had a battle of five, arm, five or six armies setting up here, and then the beastmen and the dwarfs have seen each other off. We don't really want the wood elves here, so we'll chuck them in a portal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, everything else pretty much comes good, so I do have faith that it will come good. But at the moment, I'm a bit bemused by it. I just, yeah, yeah, it is a bit confusing. <laughs> I would, I'd like to hope that it, they come back full circle in some epic way. I, I, and I, I, I think we've got faith that it will do. Yeah, yeah. But there's not really that much I could say on that, really, because yeah, nope. I don't know if you guys have any other ideas on what, where they could clue. <laughs> no, not to the 40k universe. <laughs> oh jeez! Well, it said this is going to be only war. So, birth of the Eldar. There you go. <laughs> they're the Eldar. So, so they're going to come back with, uh, yeah, oh, shirk and catapults. Yeah. <laughs> All they need are some wave serpents, and they win. They're just you know, no one's going to stand up to that. All right, so, um, so the elves are the, the, now the the elves are stopping along the way with the humans, the, the, the high elves. And they're sealing all the sepulchers. Like, they're taking time to seal all of these tombs and stuff with elvish wards so that nobody can, you know... Basically, I don't want to pass this up and then these guys come out behind us. Um, but Count Liedorf is just... He's like, this, we're going too slow. Like, he's... He's a little too fiery. I think some of that mad blood of the of the of the bloodline is in him a little bit here. Um, but then again, 
He doesn't get what, why are we going so slow? Why, what, is the, what is the purpose here? Every time he tries to speak to Eltharian, he is rebuffed because elves are <laughs> to humans. Um, they did. <laughs> they, they could explain it to him, but no. I'm sorry. We don't have time to talk to you, human. You just be here to make sure that we've got more bodies to fight. Well, they're, they're being manipulated into helping the high elf cause, so why take the time to explain it? If they're already there to help... Jack Holery. Why? Why explain it? They're already signed on, so just get on. And with look it, what ha- and look what happens. They don't explain it. He gets mad. He leaves, and now everybody dies, and it's the elves' fault. Uh, let's move along. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he reaches this place, and he's five leagues ahead of the elves, and that's when Manfred attacks. They, I love. He gets to the city, and like the the guard is afraid of him, and the people in the taverns are all closing up the doors. They look afraid, and he's like, "Oh, they're all afraid of us. And I would be too with this big, huge army." And all of a sudden, vargeists come out of everywhere. Uh, they're not afraid of you. And of course, Manfred is there with zombies because the zombies. <laughs> you know what? You know what else is better than in the book? The zombies in this book are way better than they are on the table. Yeah, they talk about pulling down knights, yeah. you know, two at a time, and you know. yeah, exactly. They're like throwing horses, you know, the, you know. It's crazy. Like a, it's got like a thousand of them, though. If maybe if you had that many, you know. Are you saying right. I need a thousand zombies, Chris Tomlin? Because if you are, I'm going to slap you. <laughs> well played. <laughs> <laughs> So um, now the fight's going bad, and it gets worse when Manfred just starts resurrecting the the fallen knights to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, they break through and they go for Manfred, and look here they are—they're charging Manfred, and Manfred just goes out and whoosh, skeletons raise, skeletons turn, and it's like that scene from Braveheart where they just pull up all those big spears and all those, all those, all those guys on horseback. All the horse knights themselves. Yeah. Yep. In fact, he would have died except when he th- got thrown from his horse, he-, he landed on a bunch of skeletons who broke his fall. <laughs> and so he goes after Manfred, and Manfred's like, bring it. And then it cuts to the elves who finally get there, and everybody's dead. The whole thing is wiped out. It'd be interesting in terms of the gameplay if, if VC Magic had a mechanic where the more of the enemy you killed, you know, that gave you a bonus to your raising in some way. You know what yeah. I mean? Do you remember how, um, it, in Storm of Chaos where the, the VC army in that book was the army of Sylvania and they had these little markers that you placed down on the table and you could raise extra things from those points and you had like um, Citizen Levy undead sort of with crossbows and handguns. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that was kind of cool. Yeah, that, is, that would be cool. Christopher and I talked about this when we were wishlisting way back like two, three years ago before the vampire book came out. And we were talking about how to make zombies a little better. And that was one of the things that for every, like when, when they're in a fight, for every model that gets killed, roll a D6. And on like a six or a five and a six, like you get that model back. Like you get an extra model in your mm-hmm. ranks because you kill them and they come back as zombies. You we used to have actually, the Tomb Blade uh, magic item used to do that. Didn't it raise, raise wounds back into units for every wound you did or something like that, I think? Oh, yeah, that was the best mm-hmm. weapon. I missed that weapon. Yeah. It was kind of cool. Then you could take it further and start raising stuff in, from your opponent's army that you killed. Raise that dragon back up. Just yeah, like, oh, yeah. That would be awesome. <laughs> so Your knights become my blood knights. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I, I need I feel, that. I feel like there is some sort of there's something that could be done there, but it'd be very hard to get right and not be either useless or over the top. Yeah, I think exactly That's, right. 
Well, I mean, you know, it, it could work something sort of like the, um, you know, the pink horrors. Everyone that dies, you get the two little attacks because of that. It could be something like that in reverse. For every one of your enemy who dies, you get the little counters, and on a, on a good roll, you get a couple back. I mean, yeah. Yeah. it adds another mechanic and a little more dice rolling. And, like, the VC need to be slowed down anymore when they're raising zombies. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, so I like this. There's no survivors, and the bodies are mangled. The only one they can recognize is Leetdorf, who's hanging from a tree. They hung him. They put the standard of the Knights of Sigmar's blood, draped it around him like a cloak, and they carved. And then there was one into his forehead. At least he still had his head on. That's a bonus. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's like the only one. Manfred didn't decapitate him. Okay, so. Now the elves are coming, and Manfred isn't going to fight them personally. He's sending his captains against the elves because he needs to be there with Archon so that he can turn the ritual to his own purposes because he's still trying. (laughs) And then you find out what Aliathra's been doing all this time. She's been singing this song, and it's guiding them there. In the Glen of Sorrows, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And... uh, each of Manfred's captains that go up against the elves is dying, and they're just—he's getting more and more pissed that they're they're not able to get the job done. Here, here's a great part. Um, they get there and they see all the undead, and they see this this ritual going, and they're like, "We cannot save her. This is like a suicide mission." But he turns around, and they all look, and they're like, we can't do it. And he finally tells all the elves in the army who they're actually coming to get. Because even the elves didn't know who they were coming to get. Eltherian didn't tell them, because Eltherian is a dick to elves. No, I, well, because if, if you tell them, then there's, you run the risk of telling them the, the ultimate secret, which we'll get to in a second. And well, they don't know. They don't want to do that. They don't need to know the ultimate secret. They just need to know they're, they're, they're rescuing the Everchild. In fact, if they think they're rescuing the Everchild, they'll work harder for it. But he doesn't tell them because he doesn't tell them. Are you going to call this episode Altharian is a dick? I think that's where we're headed. I shouldn't even be saying that word. That's rude. I'm going to have to bleep the hell out of this episode. Um, but here, I like this last paragraph here. And this, this, is, this is the type of stuff that I love about the elves. I've been making fun of them, but this is what I love. For a time, the host was still and silent. But then one elf, a noble of the court of Celadin, swept his sword flat against his chest in the ancient Yvrisi salute. Isalendra Yvrithi and three, he proclaimed. By our deaths we serve. As Altharian watched, a ripple of motion spread across the assembled host as the salute was echoed by every warrior gathered there. His heart full of a warrior's pride, Altharian returned the salute and gave the order to advance. Dude, that's kind of awesome. So even though they didn't know, it's revealed at this late in the game, that it's, you know, it's their duty. They just take it and well, run Well, he tells them here at the end. He tells them who it is. Yeah, but not, they don't complain. They don't say, oh, man, you're a d-. They just unsheath their swords and well, I they think go it goes battle. unspoken. Everyone just knows. I mean, they're elves. They should know it. They can handle it. Yeah, I guess so. Okay, so now we get up to the battle. And this battle is, this is a great battle. There is so much cool stuff going on here. It's like every battle gets better. That's the other thing I like about this. It builds really well. Eltharian's running in. These are all proven warriors. He's on his great Stormwing. Yeah. Yep. And the griffin lasts really long, much longer than on the table, because it's yeah. better in the book. <laughs> yeah, he would have had to walk from Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. one cannon would have shot it out from under him. Oh, wait, VC don't have cannons. No, so, they've got catapults now. It's fine. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. I've got the catapults. <laughs> so basically, all the warriors. I mean, they're still. It's great as they're fighting. They're 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 going in. They're chopping. They're fighting them all around, and then all, like from the ground, like they're still coming out of the ground. Like they're fighting to the left. They're fighting to the right, and now crap's pulling at their feet. Um, and when they finally stall, then comes Eldira riding in with all the Tyrannoc chariot and the Tyrannoc riders. This this is epic. It's fantastic. And Manfred needs to do something, but he can't leave because he might miss his chance. And Archon couldn't care less. And Mar- now Manfred has to leave. And here it goes. Okay, there's the cauldron. Big cauldron. Because you got to have a cauldron if you got a magic ritual, right? We all read Harry Potter. Sure, of course. So you got a big cauldron here. And Morgan Le Fay's dead. Her blood's in the cauldron. Right, and I love how they point out that uh, that Archon made very sure that not one drop of blood touched him. Like I don't know exactly why they don't explain it, but <laughs> well, it's probably the purity of it. It's probably like poison or oh. holy water to him. Oh, right? you know what that probably is. It's just so glossed over, isn't it? Morgana Fay lay dead at Archon's feet. That's she. Like I say, she is. If you're a Britannian player, she, that's a pretty big deal. I reckon. <laughs> it's just it's not a big thing in the, in the grand scheme of this book. <laughs> hey, they haven't gotten a new book in nine years. You think they're going to give them any? Yeah, you know, screw them. That's. <laughs> Here you got three special characters. One of them's missing, and one of them's dead now. <laughs> yeah, bleak times for Bretonians. Yeah. So Volkmar's in there ranting and cursing up a storm, <laughs> as any good thick barrel-chested Germanic Empire uh, leader would be. He's chained up, held in a cauldron, his ankle deep in Morgan Le Fay's blood, and what's he doing? Cussing out Archon. <laughs> hey, you do what you can. Um, yes. He's wearing Moracane. He's wearing that armor. And I, I remember reading this, going, "Oh, that's not going to be good." If he's wearing the armor, I got a, you get a, kind of, I, I kind of had a clue as to what would happen. Yeah, uh, <laughs> he's in a bad spot for sure. Yeah, <laughs> Eliathra's all calm, and I love how they say Archon knew exactly what her song was doing. And he let it go. In fact, he distracted Manfred from recognizing it because he wanted her to lead the elves there so that he could keep Manfred distracted. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about manipulation. And you know what? Maybe that it, maybe that's the big difference between him and Manfred. You know, Manfred is always thinking in, in the short term. I need to win this fight. I want to stop this. I want to be a leader. Archon is really playing the long game. And... You know, he, he's, he's, he's playing seven or eight moves ahead. Manfred doesn't seem to be. Who's the real bad guy? Like, Man- in a weird way, like, I don't really consider Manfred as that much of a bad guy. Decapitations aside. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, he just, I don't know. He's a good supervillain, but it's not like, he's not, you know, he's not. He's, a- more, he's more of a thug, I feel like. Whereas Archon is, you know, the, the puppet master. Fating yeah. and evil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, there's some cool stuff when Manfred can't raise the dead because of Bellinaire. Mm. And uh, so Bellinaire's descript- from Bellinaire's point of view about how the winds of magic are so out of control and he's got to focus just to not like a miscast, I guess, for lack of a better term. Um, he sends the, the blood knights at Bellinaire, the Drakenhof Templars, and that's when Eldira uh, like, intercepts them. All these things are going on and now Eldira goes after Manfred. And that's that part where he's fighting her and she's good. You know, he leans over to give the final blow. She twists his side, takes a dagger, cuts his arm, uh, stabs him again. 
Now he uh, strikes the dagger from her hand, fastens a talon hand around her throat, yet even as the dagger tumbled from her right hand, her gauntlet had left slammed into his face, and he felt a fang shatter under the impact. This one had spirit. Yeah, that's hilarious. And he calls down a bunch of fell bats, and boom, she's gone. And you're like, oh, that can't be good. And then uh, it's back to Belenir. So he kind of he plays the double trick. He throws the giant bit of magic at him that Belenir can just barely stop. And while he's trying to stop the magic, he takes over the mind of a sword master who slashes him long enough to distract him, and he he burns to a crisp. So now he's dead. Yeah, they talk about the Archon sensing the explosion of power. Yeah. And then how he would... He has a wistful sigh as the winds of magic swept the mage's soul towards Ulthuan, and for a moment he was tempted to seize the immortal remnant and add it to his collection. That 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 was a pretty funny passage. Yeah, he wants to grab it and add it to add its power to this thing. A, a wistful sigh, like, oh, I wish I could get that. <laughs> oh, I thought he heard the wistful sigh as the spirit went by, like it made this little, ah, like a spirit passing by, a little. Oh yeah, spirit. yeah, yeah. Oh. But so Nagash is coming now. Archon puts the crown on Volkmar's head, and all of a sudden his eyes kind of turn black, and he can feel Nagash's mind because it's in that crown. It's sort of like the ring of power from Lord of the Rings, isn't it? Mm. And he puts it on, and Nagash is like fighting for control of his, his mind. And then Manfred looks over and goes, oh, Ben, I got to get back to that circle right now. Like, you know, because he's, like, you know, he's still trying to stop the ritual. And that's when Altherian goes after him. And the, the fight here is great, too. This is a good fight. It is a good fight, although uh, Storming was dispatched pretty pretty quickly. But I guess that's you need to even the odds there, so it's just Altharian on Manfred. So so basically it actually works like it does on the tabletop for once. That's what you do, don't you? Kill out that, kill out that weak monster underneath. Yeah. <laughs> I love how he, uh, they compare uh, Altharian uh, to, te- to uh, Tyrion. How Tyrion would get angry and just let that anger rage and that, that, that fury would destroy it. But he's the exact opposite. He gets really cool and collected, and he's going by pure skill in battle. And this is where Manfred's like, oh, I can't stop him. Yeah, he's better than Manfred. He cuts his arm off. It's only hanging on by the skin. Oh. I think uh, whilst Stormwind gets taken down, he does uh, He does pop back in quickly before he, he dies, mm-hmm. doesn't he? And um, so I think he keeps Alfarin in there a little bit longer, doesn't he? But yeah, Altharian's yeah, uh, winning, and he, he pulls up some magic, six black magic swords pop up all around him. But so he's, he, you know, he doesn't think, and I love how they say he could have used his medallion or pendant or some other magic elfy thing to get rid of it. But uh, his instincts were that of a warrior. Yeah, the talisman of Hoeth. He could have gotten it to go away, but his instincts were that of a warrior, and faced with a physical threat, he responds in kind. So while he's doing that, Manfred's getting ready to fireball him or whatever. And that's when Stormwing jumps in. And lunges with his final breath. And saves him. Um, Stormwing takes a bullet. And Altharian looks and sees that Archon's got Aliathra by the neck. And so he runs up to the barrier, and he's, like, banging on the barrier. And meanwhile, Manfred is underneath Stormwing. Like, Stormwing <laughs> has, like, mm-hmm. like, taken the bullet, and the corpse has landed on Manfred. So he's under her, like, the Keystone Cops, trying to get out from under this thing. And uh, he runs up, and he can't get through the barrier, but he grabs Fang Sword because it's enchanted, and just stabs the circle and gets through. Thereby destroying his sword. Yeah, that's cool. It disintegrates. Mm. Like, that's it. But Manfred sees him and runs up and tries to get through, and the gap closes, and he's just too late. And he's like, pound. I'm just picking like, him. Yeah, banging on this uh, barrier trying to get in. <laughs> yeah. 
He's on the outside looking in. So um, Archon drops her and grabs his, the Alkanash grabs the staff, and Altharion grabs Archon, and Archon's like, let me go, and he grabs him with both hands and starts banging him up against the rocks, and Archon's like, okay, whatever, and th- though this is kind of sad. He just, it, 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 he basically pulls Curse of Years on him. He grabs him, and he grabs him, and all of a sudden, like, his armor starts to rust and fall away, and then he just pff, turns to dust. Hand dust, that sounds like. <laughs> what? Hand of dust. It's the new undeath spell. Oh, okay. Is that, it was, I wasn't even thinking about the new undeath spell. Because he actually gets older first. He turns all, you know, his, he, his hair turns white, and his skin gets all wrinkly. I was thinking Curse of Years, but. Could be, could, could be. be that too. Um, either way, yeah. Either way, no, Altharian's dead. <laughs> that was shocking because yeah. he's been such a mainstay in the High Elf book for so long. I know it was a true, a true shock. I thought it was sad enough when Stormwing died, and yeah. I just like, oh my god. Well, you know what that means. Archon is a dick to Altharian. So, <laughs> you know what would have been cool is if uh, if he was not killed but so severely maimed that he became the blind version of Altharian. That's that's sort of how I was expecting it to go, to be honest, because he he's lost Stormwing, so there we yeah. go. That's him on the path to becoming the Swordmaster version. I was like, oh no, he's just dead. Yeah, okay, but, that makes three of us because I was certain that he was going to gouge his eyeballs out or something like that. Yeah, uh, but. Uh, missed opportunity there, GW. But I won't. I won't criticize him because the rest of this book has been pretty good, except for the the, the locket dust portal thing. Um, so I like this part here, though. Here's another thing where they just drop a little mention, and I went back and said, "Wait, did I read that right?" She looks at my father's going to destroy you for this. Your father is already dead. My allies have seen to that. Now she, he doesn't know her father's Tyrion. He thinks her father's the Phoenix King. Mm. And remember, Teclas came out all pale. When he went in to go see what he was right. doing, so what's? Do you think he? Do you think Teclas killed him? No, I don't think Teclas killed because he says my allies. He, Teclas, well, Teclas couldn't Teclas. be his ally because he's Teclas got other allies, as we'll find out. Right, but uh, Archon is not one of them because Archon wouldn't agree to what Teclas has no. been doing. Teclas is tricking him. Um, I think the Phoenix King is dead, though. Yeah, I got a feeling the Phoenix King is dead. I think so, but I think Teclas just fought. Nah, and now's probably not the time to go back out there and tell everyone that because it's it would right. be sheer anarchy. If it does turn out he's dead, who do you think is going to be the new Phoenix King? I mean, do you think it'll be Tyrion finally? Yeah, mm. maybe. Yeah, I think we we'll get to the end of this chapter, and I think there's a we can go into a bit more on this on this sort of thing once yeah, yeah. we find out uh, how it how it works up <laughs> okay so here's my notes on this next little bit. Manfred is pounding, screaming, "Let me in!" And Archon says, "F you." Because <laughs> basically, that's what he says. Why would I let you in? So you could screw this up? You think I'm stupid? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <isn't> the thing. <laughs> uh, and then he cuts off Volkmar's hand and puts Nagash's hand on there. And then, like, black magic starts pouring out of it, like smoke and like ripping into his flesh and stuff. Poor Volkmar. What a pretty, pretty horrendous. Yeah, it? it is. It is. Yeah, I mean, and it, I mean, it basically. I mean, it says how it burrows into his skin and then comes out like worms, and it goes through his whole body. He's all covered in this black dark cloud of magic and then he takes out the fell blade and shatters it into a thousand pieces and that all those little bits of the dagger dig into that black magic too and then plam nagash is back yeah what a way to uh to kill someone and then bring someone in at the same time yeah oh and don't forget the little side pocket story here eldira wakes up 
and she's in the castle. Oh, guess who's a vampire now? Yep, she's got spirit. Mm. <laughs> she's also got fangs. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Then like, she's doing that, and then all of a sudden she she goes to attack him, and all of a sudden falls down and takes a breath and realizes it's the first breath she's taken since she woke up. It's like, oh wait a minute, that's not right. I'm not breathing. <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. Yeah, and then all of a sudden Nagash shows up. You have done well, my servant. The great work can begin. We we should know that uh, Ali Afrid was was killed in that as well. She got a throat slit. Yeah, just just before Volkmar. So yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I? Yeah, I totally skipped over that. That was dumb. She got she got taken as well. So Tyrion isn't going to be happy. I wouldn't have thought. No, no, probably not. Uh. <laughs> um. I love how he, uh, when Nagash comes back, he looks at Manfred, and Manfred feels the pressure uh, uh, in his mind, and he realizes he's lost. He could no more control the creature before him than he could command the gods. Duh! (laughs) (laughs) Now now you figure it out? So, do you serve me? Yes, said Manfred, falling to his knees and hoping Nagash would not detect the bitterness in his heart. I serve you, master. And then the it's not quite over yet. There's like a couple more pages with Nagash, and it's actually important. And then we get that sidebar with Teclas that I know you're dying to talk about. <laughs> um, this is cool. Nagash's plan. He is going to be death magic given a body, basically. He is going to be pure death magic. Uh, it actually pulls the, uh, Shyish, the wind of death magic, it's all t- funneling into Ulfwan. Not anymore. It's mine now. And, like, everybody feels it. Like, something is wrong. He pulls the magic in. He pulls in the magic from the nine books. He's claiming it. And um, they say things like, the Isle of the Dead turns black. A ghost city appears on Harkaldra. Nehekar and Temple start sinking into the sands. The Amethyst College just, poof, turns to dust and collapses. Like, I, what happened to all the death wizards? Death magic is now owned by Nagash. He owns death magic. It says, in every kingdom beneath the sun and stars, in any place where the living had once breathed their last, the dead arose. So basically just every everything's risen everywhere. Yeah. This is your fluff explanation for, well, we're getting on to the fluff explanation for everyone being able to raise the dead. Yeah, because, yeah, and not only that, but, I mean, this is what Nagash tried to do last time and got stopped. I mean, that's why Sylvania is is corrupted and why the dead are constantly rising there. This is from the last time he tried this spell. Um, but you find out that the resurrection was imperfect because Eliathra isn't the ever child. She doesn't have divine blood, but Anarian's curse. So he can't control the magic. And that's when he sticks the... Uh, he sticks Alkanesh into the soil and basically turns Sylvania into the same thing that's on Ulthuan, the the portal, the vortex. This becomes a vortex for black magic. It's all coming to Sylvania, all the death magic. Yeah, and he's he's essentially raised all all the undead around, the, and he now can't control them because he doesn't have the power because of the. Um, his rebirth well it says had his rebirth been flawless obviously because of Ali Afra, it's not <laughs> right he doesn't have that power have the control over them that he wanted so now any mage with good force strength of will can just control the the the, the dead so yep. yeah there you go there's your fluff explanation the castle Manfred's castle crumbles into the ground 
Gelt's yeah, wall a- of faith explodes. Um, it's I mean, wow, that's so good. And now Nagash cannot make war on chaos. He's he's got to go to Nehekara, go to the Black Pyramid, and pur- purify himself. And this is where he's like, I'm going to need aid. Actually, more like servants. And I'm thinking more like slaves. So he gets Archon, Neferata, Krell, Manfred. I love, he gets Luther Harkon, the pirate king of the vampire coast. Yeah, he, that, that Luther Harkon, I think he's a bit unhinged. So that's uh, that's pretty cool bringing him in. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, cool. he's an established character? I haven't heard of, heard of they, him before. He um, did um, a pirate, like a zombie pirate army list a while back. It was like a white dwarf thing. Hmm. And he was in that. That's yeah, quite cool. isn't wasn't he the isn't he the guy from uh, Dreadfleet too? Uh, he might be. Yeah, I, I never yeah. played that. Uh, then there's who did? There's uh, Dieter Helsnick, the Doomlord of Middenheim. Wallach yeah, Harkon, character as well. Dieter yeah. Helsnick he used to ride around on a manticore. <laughs> yeah, uh, Wallach Harkon, the first of the Blood Dragons. Uh, he brings back Vlad because he can't trust Manfred to do the damn job, so he brings back Vlad. And then something called the nameless. Does any okay? Am, do I not know? Am I missing something here? No, I, I read a I read a, a topic on the Warhammer forum the other day about about this with people theorizing various people who he could be. There's reference made made to it throughout, but um, we we still don't know who that could be. Okay. Were there any theories that you felt were compelling? Um, not really. The the main one is this uh, constant Drakenfels, and apparently there's a load of old Black Library literature about Drakenfels, hmm. and he's another super powerful necromancer or sorcerer or something. A few other people have said it could be um, Isabella von Karstein, perhaps, because Vlad only sort of agreed to come back from the dead again because Nagash said if he helped him, he'd bring Isabella back to life, so... Hmm. Mm, don't know. Doesn't, yeah, doesn't. I. I, I don't. Nameless think seems more powerful than Isabella was, though. Yeah, I think. I just. I, I don't think there's enough. Yeah. So this is something know, we'll we'll get later. It's more of a I, tease. I, so. It's quite cool. I think. Yeah, it's a tease. I, th- I think it's quite cool. So uh, before we get to that last bit of fluff, so Vlad, the Wallach, the Blood Dragon, and Nameless head north. They got to go slow down the chaos invasion. Uh, Nagash can't take on the chaos gods right now. So you got. He's got to go slow it down. Everybody else to Kemri. And basically, and Nagash is going with Archon and Manfred and everyone else they're going to meet along the way. And that's actually the end of part two, except for this little side story, which is brilliant. It's probably the best book in, in the entire book, I reckon. Yeah. I think, I think, I think it's that big and the, the repercussions of, of this little one piece on page 123. Yep. It is, yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty exciting. And we don't even know who it is. It has begun, has it not? The sneering words echoed in Teclas's mind. He's like, yep, Aliathra played her part, and Nagash has played his. The vortex is destabilized. Your time will come soon. See, that's it. This, the vortex is destabilized. I'm guessing the only wizard who he could be partnering with would be um, Kalidor. This has got to be Kalidor. I, don't, I, don't, I think it's Malekith. Malekith, really? Hmm. He re- he refers to him as nephew on the bit on the other side. Me and me and my friend were trying to work out who could possibly be his nephew. Nephew. The two people I theorized it could be would either be Malakith or Marathi, but oh, it wouldn't he... work. It wouldn't work to be Marathi. Hmm. Oh, he does call him nephew, doesn't he? <gasps> yeah, no so... freaking way. He says, "Remember, nephew, that I am your ally 
in this only because it suits my purposes. If you attempt to manipulate me, I will flay the flesh from your bones. Oh, that would that's, be Caligora. That's very Malekith-like. Oh my god, it is. You got it. Dude! wouldn't say that, would he? Why would he flay the flesh from his bones? Yeah, you know what? You're right. It is in Calidor, and it's the sneering words and stuff like that. The vortex is destabilized. Your time will come soon. So, yeah. I tried, I tried to Google loads of different things for, like, high elf lineage and work out who his nephew actually was. And I think Marafi would be a better fit, but apparently in that trilogy as well, um, Malekith refers to him as, as nephew, so... Yeah, I think it's it, it's a dark elf. I'm pretty sure of that, and oh, that's that's, that's going to be big because that and that's why you remember Teclis said to Ty- Tyrion, "I forgive you for this. I hope you forgive forgive me for what I'm about to do." Oh, so you know what? I totally missed that nephew thing when I read this, and because Te- Teclis has essentially allowed Aliafra to be killed because he knew that, that it would make the ritual not not be stable. Right. So he's so he's he's allowed. Aliafra to die so Tyrion's going to find this out so I think yeah I I can see Tyrion going mental drawing the sword of Cain and then I don't know anything could happen if Malekith teaming up who knows I never suspected you capable of such ruthlessness we do what we have to and he says you can't absolve yourself of the blood that stains your hands you must taste of it relish the flavor only then will it make you strong and the blood on your hands. I mean, he literally came back in that one scene he was in. He came back with literal blood on his hands. Holy crap. Do you think he's the one who killed? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He Malachi- killed- yeah, yeah. He, he killed, killed the Phoenix King. Because yeah. he, that's still what he wants. So I think it will either come. I, I think it will come down to. I can see Tyrion or Malekith, one of them dying. I, and, I, and I think now that they've proved that they don't care about killing characters off i think it could be that that big and there's going to be i think an elf is going to have to draw the sword of cain especially if they're going to do something to try and legitimize this some sort of elf unification against chaos and or undead yeah i think you're that's how it's going to have to happen i think you're right you know what i I read this over and i really missed i like i said i missed that nephew thing and then i missed oh because I'm reading it right now as you guys are talking. I'm kind of half listening. Every, you know, He says, that makes you strong. That doesn't interest me. Then it's only a matter of time before you fail. Then why would you agree to my plan? And it's, and it's Teclis' plan. Yeah, yeah. Perhaps is, yeah. because it amuses me to see you discard your closest allies like pieces on a game board. Exactly. I think there's going to be a massive schism between um, Teclis and, and Tyrion. I mean, we've said about them fighting like brothers but this is is just stepped up a whole nother level here and he's totally manipulating him because he even says it here is he not permitted to know your plan Tyrion, most of all must play the part i have set for him he has never understood the necessity of sacrifice he believes that courage and steel can triumph over any threat in trying to save everyone he would doom us all which he said to Tyrion anyway earlier on so i think it's not it's not even like <laughs> It's almost like he's got he's gone to another level with it. He's, he's not just doing it because it has to be done. It's, I don't know. It's um, that's pretty intense. I think that that bit there, and that could that could set a big part in what's going to happen next. I think for the elves. So, but yeah, it's important. That, I mean, I mean, honestly, and there's a great thing here. If that if if Nagash would have actually succeeded and become a god of death, he still couldn't have tr- challenged the chaos gods alone. So now they need Nagash to get powerful enough so they can all challenge the Chaos Gods and then hopefully turn around and kill off Nagash before he does anything. Yeah, but it was important that Nagash didn't have that 
that flawless rebirth initially. Like when I first read that, I was like, oh my God, I, well, I can repeat what I said. I mean, it's like, no, no, Teclis isn't that bad because what he's done, he's, he's bought time for everyone really by, cause he knows Nagash is going to have to go off. It's going to hulk chaos a bit, but Nagash isn't going to come back all conquering straight away. So Teclis has done, done the right thing, but I don't know that, I don't know that Tyrion will forgive him. Oh no. Dude. I don't think yeah, so. Tyrion, I think the curse of Tyrion Tyrion kill him. Prevent that. Yeah. Tyrion I can, might I, just kill him. I think, I think, yeah, there's going to be out of Tyrion, Teclis and Malekith. I don't come the end of the end times. I don't think all three of them are going to, going to be standing. And I, I do think there is some mileage in it being Marathi still, because I don't know. It's just, she's more the puppeteer, isn't she? than Malekith. I sometimes feel that Malekith's just doing what he's t- told being a good little mummy's boy. Mm-hmm. But uh, what do you think, Chris? You're a, you're a, Elf fluff fan, aren't you? I, I am. The, the more we talk about it, uh, I can't help but think that it, it is Malekith that we're talking about. Yeah, I can't the believe way I he's this. talking and the way that the the text is. It, it sounds like in character that it's coming from Malekith, especially. And it, it's just we said at the beginning the Dark Elves almost feel short change that short piece, mm. but the way it, it can't be it can't be by accident. The, the little bits where he's been gone and then right. it's just so many things that just interlink and. Yeah, I think and that's I think why they have to have such a small part because if we know to, oh, exactly. I, be, I feel stupid right now. And if there's listeners who caught this that I and I didn't, I only read that part once. I'm like, okay, Teclis is pretty ruthless, but I didn't really read it again. And it's like, wow, I feel stupid because it seems obvious now that you pointed out. So, just, did they, did they talk about Teclis and Tyrion's parents then? So, who is related to in this in this theory? Uh, I guess it would be uh, Marathi. Well, yeah, I mean they're both well. Well, uh, Marathi, descendants of yeah. Marathi was an Aryan's husband, obviously, and mm. their Tyrion Teclis are meant to be descendants of an Aryan. Right. Apparently, in different, in some novels, in different fluff, who their father is is different. Um, that's not consistent from what I understand. Mm. I don't know that's fact, but yeah, I think they're they're essentially all. It's all to do with an Aryan, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. It's hard. It's it's hard to track. I was, I was trying to work it out, but yeah, reading that I was wow. like wow. That's that's huge, and that's a bit. It's the elf side of it that interests me the most. So, yeah, I can't wait to see where they go with that. Elves to their brothers. <laughs> <laughs> I can't can't argue with that. To be honest with you, wow, wow. Well, it's for the greater good, though. So I'm I'm curious to see what this means in terms of updated lists and combinations. Do they just meld high elves and dark elves? What new units could there potentially be? So, yeah, it's very... Spreading Frostheart Phoenixes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I yeah, like no, it. I think, I think it's sort of well-rumored that we are going to get some sort of book with a combined elf, elf list. And there's so much rage. Oh, they wouldn't do that. Why, why would that happen? But even just from the little bits laid down in here, I think very conceivably and believably, the way they're going with it, they could they could do something to make that legitimate. I, r- I really do think that. I think so. The, the minute, the second that you said drawing the sword of Cain, that right there would bring that, everyone that's in line. It, that's it. That's, that's the unification of the elves. As yeah, soon as yeah. the sword of Cain gets drawn and whoever that be, I think it has to be Tyrion or Malekith. I don't really see anyone else coming forward. Well, as Christopher would have said, they were all elves and then they split and they're still all elves. They're just basically, you know, two yeah. different, uh, Nations. Well, I mean, let's face it. The only thing keeping them apart is they basically have two different ethos on how to live, but it's basically, you know, I should be the leader. No, you shouldn't. That's basically what's keeping them apart, you know. But 
e- even though you get that bit in the Dark Elves at the beginning, as much as the vengeance is made out to be the be all and end all, but as soon as it comes to an actual attack, they're like, oh, well, we can wait. We can, our vengeance can wait. We'll sort them out first. It's not. Right. It's almost like they're just obliged to do it. It's, it's how they are. Why should they be any different? But I think given reason, there's definitely, there definitely could be a change there, I think. Oh. It needs something to happen. And, and this, this is the catalyst for it, I think. Mm. This is great. Oh, I just want to point out, because, um, I mean, we could talk about that, this one passage all day. God, I feel so stupid not picking up on it. This is why, like, when, when, when I was tweeting, you was like, we got, uh, we're doing chapter two, we're doing chapter two. Yeah, and I was like, we're actually going to go to three. You're like, okay, cool. There's some dwarfs in there for you. I'm like, oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to point out on page 125, actually, after the techless uh, bit, there's the very last thing in part two. Manfred. It was intolerable, Manfred von Kahn. Nagash granted him power, and then he brought back Vlad. And he's like, and Vlad's no fool. He must have known that I did this. I wonder what Vlad's going to do. And then you get to the bottom. The only, you know, he had to have vengeance against Archon and against Nagash would have to wait, you know, for his survival. Vlad had ever been the mightiest of the von Karstein lineage. And even if Nagash tolerated a direct challenge, Manfred was far from confident of victory. No, Guile and patience would serve him now as they did before, Manfred decided. His enemies would rue the day they had chosen to lock wits with the rightful Lord of Sylvania. So he's t- yeah, even the way it's written, it's laughable. I know. Yeah. It's just- it definitely provides the comic relief for this, yeah. I think. And it's, it's funny when you find out later on that Vlad doesn't really care about taking back Sylvania. He's just in it because he wants Isabella back. That's his sole motivation. But Manfred's on edge about Vlad the whole time. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's quite Dude, how cool. awesome is that love story? I mean, you've got all these different stories in this book. The, Vlad and Isabella, I mean, you even read the stuff. The first time he saw her, he just totally fell in love with her, showed up. He's like, I want to marry your daughter, takes over. And at first it sounds like the, you know a marriage of convenience. That's a, you know, I will become the blood ruler of this, this kingdom. I will take the kingdom. But, dude, he loves her. In fact, if you read the Vampire Wars book there's a trilogy of books out with manfred conrad and and vlad and there's a short story in there about isabella and why she's crazy and like vlad feels so bad like he blames himself for her being crazy this is i mean that's a better love story than twilight i'm telling you right here that is a vampire love story the two of them i just i i I really like their story it's fantastic yeah i I do like how the vampires they're not all they're not too generic in this they do all have their own sort of personalities and they all are quite different and yeah it's good all right so break time and then we're going to hit chapter three luckily chapter three i think we can get through the quickest of all because it's actually short and there's only like two things of real importance like, that happen like in it uh, <laughs> 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 you, chris is a <laughs> to dave all right <laughs> going to a commercial Eldira awoke, alone and weaponless, in a dank parody of a nobleman's hall. The carpet was mildewed, the walls hung with tapestries of flayed skin, and the only light come from candles whose tallow had the unmistakable stench of dead flesh. Welcome. The voice was cold and precise, with the slightest hint of an accent Eldira couldn't quite place. Spinning round to face the source, the princess saw a thin, immaculately clothed figure step from the room's shadowed eaves. He seemed human enough at first glance but for the pallor of his skin and the predatory cast of his eyes. 
Eldira grasped for a sword that was no longer buckled at her waist and sprang forward, fists clenched to strike the vampire. As the blow was about to land, a chorus of sibilant voices coursed through Eldira's mind, the cacophony agonizing in its volume and intensity. Eldira flinched away from the vampire, clasping her hands over her ears and falling to her knees. At once, the sound stopped. Taking a deep breath, her first, she realized with horror, since she had awoken. Eldira looked up at her tormentor. The vampire hadn't moved, but was regarding her with amusement. You are one of us now, the vampire told her with a sharp smile, and our lord does not permit us to fight one another. Welcome to Drakenhoff Castle. Okie dokie, we're back again and just about to tuck into chapter three of Nagash, which is Death at the World's Edge. So, Dave, why don't you take us away? Spring of 24 to the winter of 24. Okay, so now we're at the at the north edge of the World's Edge Mountains. Neferata's there. Um, and she basically has taken over this old sort of dwarf hold area, made it her own. Um, it's all hidden by enchantments and illusions. She's got spies everywhere. She knows everything that's going on. She knows Archon's manipulating Manfred. She's laughing at Manfred, which we all are. So it's good. Um, I, th- I think they do sort of describe at some point her as a, almost like a spider in, in the center of the web. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, getting the vibrations back in. Um, yeah. She knows cool. everything that's going on. She, um, she, she's nervous because nobody has actually come to ask her for help yet. Like Manfred and him are working together. But yeah, she doesn't know what to think. Is she a target, or she's supposed to be on their side, or what? Yeah, and she actually doesn't want to leave her her nest. Like she doesn't want to get out of that web. She's safe there. But the demons attack because the demons attack everything. And once again, here the demons attack here too. Anyone who might be helping Nagash is getting attacked by demons. Um, and which which is interesting because the demon attacks always seem completely random. Like wherever the winds of magic are, demons are. But, like, the big red and black cloud rolls in and demons are attacking, 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 attacking. And all of a sudden, the winds, poof, they're gone. And she's like, I need to go. So there is a method to those seemingly random demon attacks then. So they're kind of manipulating the players here in some sense, right? Yeah, I think think early doors, they were more random. But I think with the coming of Nagash, it seems that they're more focused, I think. Mm, Chaos Gods being aware of what's what's happening at least where they're attacking is there i don't think that they disappeared on purpose i think the winds of magic got thin there and poof they disappeared right but uh so she's on the, she knew about aliathra like she knew that the that the ritual was going to go wrong she knew archon would screw it up the, how how could she have known because she knows everything but that's pretty good that she could that her her spies reach all the way into Ulthuan to that extent because it says earlier on as well that it, uh, that it was only, um, I think it was the three elves uh, knew about, uh, uh, it was Teclis, Elfarion, and um, Eldrear, is it, the other one? Yeah. I think they were the only three that knew that um, Tec- Tyrion was their dad. So for her to get onto that information, um, it's impressive. I'm not sure how plausible it is, maybe, but I guess the impression you're meant to get from her is that she, if she wants to know something... She's going to find out. Right. Yeah. So she sets out at the head of this grand army. Um, and once again, she, she's, she's a lot like Manfred in that way. 
She's, you know, she's got this whole army. She's riding at the front. She's all beautiful. She, you know, she really thinks very highly. She is very much this this ancient nobility, where she thinks of herself as way above everything. Um, Unlike Manfred, she doesn't actually really. You get the impression she doesn't actually really want to fight. She would just rather get the minions to do it all for mm-hmm. her. She's really like hands dirty. Oh no! In fact, in fact, you find that she's she's an idiot when it comes to battle tactics. I mean, she almost gets herself killed. I think it almost says that word for word. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Um, basically, her you know after all this, her decision comes. She hated being driven out of Lamia by all of them. She resents everyone back in Kemri and Nehekara and all this stuff for what happened to her. So she knows Nagash is going to be going to there eventually, and she's going to stand by him so she could help him trash the place because she's angry. But she needs to do something to show Nagash that she's loyal because, you know, she doesn't know what anyone thinks of her. Uh, She can't tell Archon what was wrong because that's going to cause trouble. So she goes, you know what? I found this lost pass of the dwarves a long time ago. She found it like over a thousand years ago, but she didn't know like what was in there or what she could do with it like it just it she couldn't use it now so she hid it she used her magic to hide this dwarf hold till later and before she did it she stole a key to the gates and a Gromerlin gold tiara because every queen needs a Gromerlin gold tiara <laughs> um but why would a tiara be in there mm, who would wear a tiara in the dwarf from the dwarfs hmm the weekends <laughs> on the weekends <laughs> so yes so now she's got all this um, and Nagash she realizes he's almost back that this ritual is going to happen so she's got to hurry so she starts heading south and it's surprisingly clear there's almost no opposition till she gets to dead pass and there's some goblins and basically she all these undead come riding in and the goblins are like holy crap and they run and she's heading south, and they ru- they were heading north. They turn around and run south. She keeps heading south. Anytime the goblin they catch up to the goblins, they kill the goblins, and the goblins keep running and running and running until you get to skull skull chasm. And that uh, where did I have marked here? I love this part when he gets to when you get back to the, the orc orc and goblin fluff is always so much fun to read. Like I love the army book fluff. I love the fluff in the big red book. They're just you, they, you never know what to expect out of out of these guys, you know. Yeah, they're such a staple in terms of their their character and their yeah. race. Yeah. And Skull Chasm, I mean, it's it's a great place. It was aptly named as it was an ambush site of ill repute, as the many bones attested. Uh, it's sheer cliffs on either side, boulders, caves. I mean, this is a place you walk through and you can get ambushed from any side. And they keep running, and they keep running, and they keep running. And um, finally, the goblins are running, and uh, Grillstick of the Moonclaws sort of takes it off. He was heading to Skarsnik, and I love this, because this is where you get um, some nice little, this is where you get the nice little goblin. Uh, in it. He wanted to be the first one to get to Skarsnik and offer him his banner, because he knew other goblins in the area were going. He wanted to get there first and tell Skarsnik how all the other ones following him all their flaws and how much they suck. <laughs> you know, so he could be the number one because it's typical goblin backstabbing. Um, 
And so as they're moving, this is great. There they are traveling north. I got to get up there before them. I got to. Suddenly they hear all this screaming and they look and the blood peaks goblins and the web skulls goblin tribes are running right at them. And they're like, oh, it's a fight. And they just keep running like right past them. <laughs> ah! Pan- it's panic checks. Yeah. And they're not even attacking. They're running for their lives. So the moon claws look up and here comes this procession of the undead with all these uh, late female vampires coming and leading down and they turn around and they run and they run for three days <laughs> and um, when they finally get to Skull Chasm and everyone's hiding in these little caves just hoping they'll pass Grelzik looks around and says dude there's a numbers. lot of us here <laughs> so he goes in and he gets uh, what's it Brack Batwing his, um, his Moonclaw's shaman who has found a particularly potent batch of mushrooms, and so he's all, like, super mushroomed out. Like, he's totally super Mario'd it. Like, you know, he's got the super mushroom. And so they go and they just start bullying all the other tribes. You're going to join. You're going to join. And the more he gets to join, the more the other tribes are like, well, we can't say no because you'll kick our our skulls in. And um, even his rival, Mabla Crooknose, and his Crookblades join. So they're ready. And they just... And here it goes. Here they come. Here's Neferata walking in. And it actually, where does it, where does it actually, it's like if she had any brain whatsoever, she'd have noticed it. Yeah, she'd have seen the ambush, yeah. Girlsick was amazed. It was as if the enemies had no idea they were marching into a perfect ambush with the zeal of a born leader. I mean, it's just like, oh my God. She, she doesn't have any idea. And then you get the, the army pictures again. This one, uh, I particularly like the Army of the Silver Pinnacle. I seriously considered. I looked. This is the one I put into Quartermaster and was like, I'd love to love to do it because you've got the unit of Tomb Guard, unit of Grave Guard, and it's in my patented turquoise color scheme, which I put on pretty much everything. You've got skeletons with green heads. That's kind of cool. A mm. Coven Throne, just for you, Dave. <laughs> Dude, no. the Coven Throne kicks ass in this story. Yeah, it does. Yeah, so this is, yeah, I think for a painting project, it'd be quite cool. In reality, as an army list, a block of Tomb Guard, a block of Skeletons, a block of Grave Guard, and a block of Ghouls, backed up by a Coven frame, perhaps not the most interesting or good. <laughs> Would look cool. Yeah. yeah, with the narrative, again, it, it drives the inspiration, so I think it'd be, it'd so, be yeah. cool. I mean, I don't play either of these, but I can easily see that army on the table. Look good, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so here we go. This is the Battle of Skull Chasm, and this is the part where you were talking about. Um, Neferata had led primarily from her exquisite perch atop the silver pinnacle, not from the battlefield. A more experienced commander in the field would have recognized what lay before her was not a scattered mass, but an army deployed in fighting formation. The ranks of figures were spread across the entire southern end, here and there punctuated by groups of hulking trolls. She might have observed the steady streams of night goblins funneling in the caverns. A wary commander would have noted with growing trepidation the many black maws of caves that lined it. Such details were beneath her concern, however. Boy, she's a putz. I picture her uh, sitting on her cover and throwing, like eating uh, chocolates, not caring. It was... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah reading, eating real fingers, like lady fingers, just sitting there just munching away. So, um, she gets out there and suddenly the archers are shooting and they set out the fanatics. I love the descriptions of the fanatics who failed, like bury themselves into the ground and stuff and get wrapped up in their chains. Yeah, this, this writing does a really good job of, um, describing things like fanatics and a bit later on we get a mangler squid come out and it's, it's just really, um, really descriptive and mm, yeah, yeah, the trolls and everything. Yeah. 
Yeah, some of them plowed into the skeletal formations, the tremendous impact sending up broken shields and bones and waves, so that even when the small goblin was lost to sight within, his progress might be still seen. Some spiraled (laughs) off, others crashed into boulders, shards of rock and splashes of blood exploding outwards. No few goblins spun themselves into the ground so that their chains wrapped around them before the heavy ball delivered a final splat. It's just like... (laughs) It's that whole thing that they they can't even control it. Some of them are just and how many times, Chris, has that happened to you? Where they just hit, like run into each other and take each all other out all the time. Yeah, it happens all the time. But what I the funny part is, you know, they'll throw the fanatics out there, and then they're they'll be like laughing and wailing and cheering them on, you know, <laughs> as they're spinning around. But the um, the illustration on the 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 army of uh, Grolsik the Great. I believe Grosik Moonclaw, the illustration of the guy with the, the Moonclaw for a hand, he exists as a miniature. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's, there's quite a few of them that, that do. The, the ones that they've they're, they're just they exist as a model, yeah. but it's a special, not as a, a named character. But they seem to have drawn watercolors of. Um, it's almost like a version of the model, and then attached a name to it. There's quite a few like that. Yeah, that's cool to see. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Okay, so. This battle goes on. Um, I love the Lamian Guard. They're butchering everything. Like, it's to the point where when they walk, the goblins just scream. They're not even fighting anymore. They're just marching forward, and everything in front of them is screaming and running because the Lamian Guard is butchering everything. So they have the left flank, the center's a draw, the right flank, the goblins and trolls are smashing stuff up and making way for squig hoppers. The squig hoppers come riding in. <laughs> I love squig hoppers. I know that you don't see them too often in the game and they don't really go it. Just, no, they're, you know, they're night and day. Before you used to see them all the time. Now you don't see them at all. Just the idea of night goblins just holding on to chains through these things' noses and just holding on for dear life and riding them like Cav. I love those models. <laughs> I love the idea. So um, the goblins actually start winning. They start smashing through everything because uh, Neferata doesn't know what the hell she's doing. And it isn't until Imanet shows up on the coven throne. Yeah. <laughs> and she smashes into him. And then that's Neferata starts re-raising the dead. I love it. She smashes into the trolls. And, dude, this, is a good, this was a good attack. The coven throne smashes and kills a bunch of trolls. And the ones that aren't killed start attacking each other because they finally got that good roll off. No. <laughs> Dude, because I've used it and I've never gotten that roll off that always fails me. I've never gotten the attack where they all attack each other. You know, if I, oh, I've had that done to me and it's brutal. Big horde of savage orcs attacking each other. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. But if we play that game like this where it was the VC with the Coven Throne against an all goblin army, I think that Coven Throne would do really well. Oh, oh, because of the low leadership, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, and trolls, they're like leadership four, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Against leadership ten, I automatically win. Mm-hmm. All I have to do is get a decent roll. All right, so the Banshees attack, and the goblins run away from the Banshees. Um, then, okay, and all this is going on, and then the actual ambush start. Grolsick has been waiting. Night goblins and squigs and mangler squigs just start piling art and attack. It's wall-to-wall bodies. Like, there's no room to maneuver. And then more fanatics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then Neferata finally gets angry and just starts killing everything. Like, actually jumps in and starts killing everything. And then a chimera shows up, because why not? <laughs> Add to the chaos. I was like, what? <laughs> it's cool. I'm a fan, but... <laughs> and it says that it's, it's led by chaos. It goes right for her. 
So another yeah, one of these again. things where chaos is leading it. And I love as it goes there, it, it smacks a pair of manglers out of the side, and they just splat mm-hmm. like a couple of manglers. <laughs> you can just imagine that, like popping like balloons against the wall. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she's fighting with this thing. It's brute strength. She's speed and agility. Eventually, she gets impaled on one of the tusks from like the, the, the dragon head, doesn't she? It's like the dragon. So she's got a tusk like ripped through her torso. And she's like about to die. It's got her pegged against the wall. It's, you know, and it does that thing where it stops, like, every, you know, where you got to do this because otherwise, that you know, it doesn't work in the movies. The, the oh. evil thing, it's got to stop and sniff her and spray its hot breath on her, waiting, right. not, you know, instead of actually killing her. The drama of it all. Yeah. And then suddenly fell bats show up out of everywhere. And, of course, it's an animal, so it gets distracted. It's got the kill in front of it, but now, now it's chomping at the bats. And then Krell shows up. Yeah, where's he been? <laughs> Just well, chill him. Yeah. He shows up with an army, though. He's got an army, too. He shows up, puts his axe right through this thing's spine, dead chimera, because Krell is badass. Um, and then he starts moving in on Neferata. Like, he starts walking in on her, and she's like, oh, my God, I'm dead. She's like, Krell's come to kill me. And then all of a sudden you feel this weird rush of magic. Everything sort of stops. Krell stops. Everything stops. And every dead thing around him starts to raise up. And this is actually the exact... This is the point where Archon has has finished the... the... Yeah. Ritual. The ritual, ritual. right. And this is where Nagash sort of reaches out to all of the people, his nine that he chooses as commanders. And... um, you know, because all of a sudden she gets more powerful and she's healed. She's definitely got timing on her side, hasn't she? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. no doubt. <laughs> um, so did Archon or Nagash direct Krell, you know, once you dig your way out of there, make your way down to... <laughs> well, nobody knows. Skull Chasm? I think that... I, I was trying to find this earlier. I think there, I think there was some um, reference to him being sent sent to her but i don't know i, I think um, i remember reading that too to, to help her or to link well, up or, or something well at the end nagash sends them to go do their thing and she they are going to meet up but that's after nagash is reborn it's not like they sent him earlier it's like now he knows exactly where they are and he's like meet me in kemri and it's like well they're going together and we're like oh, okay they're going together why well because they're there together you know, one of the things we didn't mention is Nagash offered it to about three or four other people, too, to, to make his nine list. Mm-hmm. But some of them were like, I'll only do it if you give me this, this, and this. And Nagash is like, no, you don't get to lay any demands. Pff, dust. Yeah, uh, you know. <laughs> so a couple of people actually said, I'll only do it if. And that's about as far as they got. Was there anyone of note there? I can't remember. Um, I wrote it down, but I don't remember offhand. Um Let's see. Uh, let's see. Zacharias the ever-living screamed his yeah. last as he burnt out his brain. Because he he used to be a special character in the vampire book. He used to he was the one who rode around on the zombie dragon. Yeah. Um, so he's he's been in, in the background for quite a while. Yeah. How about uh, Dietrich von Dahl? Was he a character? I, I don't rec- I don't recognize it. I was just looking at it now. I don't recognize his name. Crimson Lord of Sylvania. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Zacharias is definitely. So yeah, so yeah, it kills so. off a few. <laughs> so then, um, all the, now now all the dead rise. Everything rises up, and they're completely uncontrolled. And so Neferata and her handmaid just start, con- you know, quick get them. 
Um, you know, it's it's, it's 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 like the undead pinata's been broken. Oh, look! Grab it, quick! <laughs> it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and so the, the greenskins are all like crap, and they run. And um, and this is where Neferata, where her sort of uh, what do you call it? Her um, that that the politician in her really comes to the fore. And actually, if you like I said, if you read the Nagash trilogy, she's a huge player in the second book, and you can see her political acumen when she's still alive um, really coming to the fore. And she knows all the Mortarks are going to want to be Nagash's number one. So she's already like, I'm going to have to bring him something or do something. She's like, she's like th- th- these guys are all peasants if they're going to play politics against me. I'm going to show them what it means. And that's when she heads off to... Uh, with Krell to stop and get this uh, stuff that she's hidden. And uh, you know what? We'll take our uh, last break and we'll come back and tell the last story in Chapter 3 uh, which involves uh, the dwarves and, you know, best best story in the book. Actually, not the best story in the book. Saddest story in the book. <laughs> so we'll be back. Winning the war to come will be as much about timing as strategy, Teclis asserted, wondering which of them he was trying to convince. Had Nagash succeeded, he would have confronted the Dark Gods before the rest of us were prepared, and they would have destroyed him. Only fighting as one do we have a chance for success. And your heroic brother, the voice mocked, is he not permitted to know your plan? Tyrion, most of all, must play the part I have set for him. He has never understood the necessity for sacrifice. He believes that courage and steel can triumph over any threat. And trying to save everyone, he would doom us all. The voice grew darker, more threatening. Remember, nephew, that I am your ally in this only because it suits my purpose. If you attempt to manipulate me, I will flay the flesh from your bones. Teclis almost laughed at that. He was already manipulating his ally. Only the other's arrogance prevented him from realizing that this was so. If Tyrion discovers I sacrificed his daughter so that Nagash might live, he replied bitterly, I doubt you will get the opportunity. Back, 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 back. And the dwarves. <sighs> All right, so Thorit Ironbrow thinks he's found Valia's gate. Through this secret path he's discovered in the underway. He's got a lodestone, like some really sensitive lodestone that he made that's like leading him. It's like, it, it's like, it's a compass pointing towards, you know, runic artifacts. And uh, he, you know, of course, he feels the change in the winds of magic that's been happening. He knows something weird's going on. In fact, he, he keeps the guys who are with him as they're searching he keeps them in like battle ready. He's like, something's not right. Stay battle ready. Even though they're there for three days setting up the anvil and getting ready. He's in front of a big blank stretch of wall. And he's like, it's here. I know it's here. So is he just out and about on this expedition? Um, just and everything else is going on by coincidence. He's, he's not doing this for a particular reason. This is just what he does. Well, if you is read the r- fluff, he's been searching for these artifacts because he thinks it's the thing that's going to save the dwarfs in the dark times is finding these ancestor things. Like, I, I think it's the gate of Valia is that gate that he's talking about or, or the archway of Valia is the one that they that their legends say all the ancestor gods of the dwarfs walked through and left our world. And someday the legends say they're going to come back through this gate. So he's looking for it because he's looking for these these things that will 
bring them back uh, their former glory and power. And that's actually in the dwarf uh, fluff in the in the army book. But really, they, they talk about, uh, you know, by following the runes of the carven lodestone he had found, Ironbrow had been able to discover the secret paths in the underway. So he just found this lodestone and then off they went. Well, he found that when he was searching for other things and it, it's leading him and he's been l- looking for stuff. This, this is, happens to be the place that led him. But it's out of it's not it's not because of chaos or because of Nagash coming back. This is just what he's doing. Yeah, this is just what he's doing. So it's, it's another timing thing. Yeah. yeah. Well, and he knows, and he knows. I mean, they have the general vicinity of where this sort of lost gate is, and uh, it says like earlier he had broken in and basically found this place in the underway that hasn't been corrupted by any uh, goblins or yeah. yeah it's, it's still perfect. So he's like, uh oh. <laughs> This is something we lost a long time ago. There's got to be stuff here. So he's sort of Indiana Jones in it, looking for stuff. <laughs> um, so this is cool. He senses not only the subtle dwarf runes, but somewhere over him, he sees it. But these aren't dwarf runes. These are. This looks like that that pictographs from Nehekara that I've seen. So he sends a, a gyrocopter back to King Cazador, saying, "Hey, I think we found something. Come on, come come quick." And then, of course, he smashes the anvil, and that ru- destroys Neferata's wards. Because this is the place she hid, the Lost Gate. Um, and so now he's got to work on the runes. And he's looking at him. He's like, I-, I can figure this out. I can open it. And all of a sudden, on either side of that gate, runes flare up, and doors become visible, and they start to open. And the dwarves are like, oh, wow. And they open, and there's just nothing behind it but skeletons and zombies. <laughs> and they say, oh, for crying out loud. That's not what I thought would be behind that door. Exactly. Um, I love how as the army's coming in with Krell, because Krell has brought his army with, Neferata doesn't like that there's a Strigoi with her. Those Strigoi are gross. <laughs> She's so hoity-toity. Um, yeah, vampires are d- <laughs> <laughs> to other To the Strigoi. There you go. Um. Okay, so the dwarves are ready for battle, and she sees they're ready for battle, but they weren't ready for them to come from that direction. Like, they didn't know there was a door there. So yeah, they're, they're doing combat reforms. Yeah, exactly. They're doing a quick combat reform. Krell sees this and instantly moves his army in. He's like, I've fought dwarves enough times. I know that if we don't get out of this archway, they're going to bottleneck us, and we're never going to get through. That is their combat style. Um. Neferata sees there's dwarves trying to open her door. And she's like, we got to stop them because she doesn't know exactly what that stuff is in there, but she knows if the dwarves get a hold of it, they'll be able to use it for something that, you know, she basically, don't give them any more weapons, basically. Yeah, destroy them wholesale then. Um, I love Krell is over here, and Krell is on the right, and there's a great bit here about when Krell's fighting. Uh, at the forefront of the right spearhead stood Krell, the black banner of his doomed legion flapping in the draft of the open tunnels. He had first fought against dwarfs in a different epoch when he was a living champion of chaos. That was over 4,000 years ago, and since then he had slain dwarf kings, wiped out entire clans, and ransacked some of the greatest dwarf holds ever built. Indeed, he had been influential in the sacking of Karak Ungor, the first of the great dwarf holds to fall. Whether above ground or below, few had slain more dwarfs than he. And they, and then the next part that I just want to point out here. For their part, the dwarfs could not help but mark the white king in a battered red armor of a lord of chaos. They saw him and knew who they faced, for grudges are passed out among dwarfs like treasured heirlooms. Seven times in his mortal life, Krell had been charged in the great book of grudges. 
Uh, <laughs> the lines were struck out, however, for the debts were settled when he was slain during a failed assault upon Kara Kadrin. Some thousand years after his death, he had returned. The fell-handed warrior was raised from his cold grave by the great necromancer, whom he had fought for ever since, earning him a further 12 more entries in the Damas Kron. He's been in there 19 times. <laughs> See, but that, that's interesting as well, because it talks of Krell fighting for um, Kemla there, doesn't it? If you, oh, 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 or is the great necromancer Nagash? Nagash actually. is the great necromancer, yeah. Nagash is the one who raised him. And then when Nagash died, you know, he's been, Krell's been walking around looking for a fight. I think that's why he hooked up with Kemler. Because Kemler yeah. is, Kemler is, I mean, if you read the fluff, he's one of the best human, I mean, just necromancers. He's one of the greatest necromancers of, of his time. He's powerful. I mean, he's not, you know, he's not an undead god, but he's still, as far as human necromancers, he's pretty powerful. So, I, I mean, I can only assume that's why Krell and him teamed up. Is this the first time they've they've mentioned Krell and connected him with the the dwarves in terms of being in the Book of Grudges this much? I didn't know that those those two were at odds to this extent. He killed a lot of dwarves. I didn't know that either. I like him. <laughs> I might have to get that model. VC. Now I see why you like VC. Yeah, see, they're pretty sweet. Yeah, and um. You can get a, a lord, uh, get get a level four law of undeath, and raise a few counters, and you can maybe raise yourself a crow. There you go. Yeah, job done. There you go. <laughs> so, um, what happens? So the dwarfs manage to push him back to the door. They get him back, bottleneck to how they want him, but not Krell. Krell is just fighting through. Thorek is like, oh, now he's now he once he sees all these undead, he realizes what that magic was in the air but he actually starts to realize that like they actually said is this a sign of something like he realized that it could be the return of Nagash like he he gets the long picture too he really is in tune with the winds of magic and so he thinks it might be him he realizes a new time of woes is coming so he gets two out of the three runes done and he wants to open the door but that's when the undead show up, and he's got to use the anvil to counteract all the vampire magic. And so they fight for hours and hours. The dwarfs are slowly losing ground. Um, they're holding the right side, but Krell is making it so that they can't hold the left side. Then the Strigoi king shows up on the terrorgeist with vargeists and ghouls. Doesn't go very well for him, though, does he? He doesn't, doesn't last very long. <laughs> he does okay, but that yeah, terror he guy... He does enough, I think. Yeah, he kills actually a lot. It's not until a little bit later when uh, someone shows up and then uh, they they kill it off. Um, Thorik's on the anvil. He's cut off from the other dwarfs. He's doing his best. Um, every time he beats it, it steals the dwarfs' hearts. It reminds them of Hearth and Hold, all the things that the anvil should do. It's really cool. And Neferata looks and she's like, if we don't take care of that guy right there, we're going to lose. Um, so her and her handmaidens head in personally to uh, stop him. And I love this. He, as the vampires reached out for him, he struck a desperate blow upon the anvil. High he lifted Claude Bracock, his runic hammer, and it glowed like a beacon in the dark cavern. The tremendous impact rang like thunder. Um, the, 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 the anvil is like white hot at this point. He's, he's pounding this anvil. It's turning white hot. It's throwing chain lightning all over the place. I mean, he's doing stuff on this anvil that he just shouldn't even be able to do. Um, they just keep, but 
Neferata and her her handmaidens just keep attacking. The Brotherhood of the Anvil, like the Anvil Guards, dead, wiped out to the man. Craggy's dead. They killed Craggy. <laughs> Everybody knows who Craggy you know who Craggy is, right? Am I talking to myself here? Uh, that is little mate, isn't it? Yeah, that's the little guy in the model, the little guy who's working there. That's if if he if he fails the role on the Anvil of Doom, it's Craggy screwed up and he gets another role. Yeah, we'll best get rid of him then. We don't want, don't want any rerolls on that thing, do we? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's pretty rubbish now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, but Thane Cragson and the Iron Breakers, they've got the door covered so well, and they've got the undead kept out so well that they are sending aid to go to Thorek. Uh, and that break, that uh, that break with the with when he hits the anvil and the and the guy's breaking him, that gives him a chance to open the gate. Uh, he gets to concentrate back on the ruins. And there's a great part where um, he is suffused with ancestral power, the like of which he's never felt. He feels like a hammer blow could smash mountaintops. Something inside the hidden chamber is calling to him, pleading for him to hurry. And then at last he knew, and he, he hears Valia's voice singing to him. Uh, thought whispers came to him of ancient knowledge. And that's when he opens the door and he realizes that it's the great mother was right there. And this is the lost archway of Valia. And so it, the door's open. He gets the doors open. It's like, holy crap. It's there. They're going to do it. Except it's not going to do it because, well, you know, this is this is the Nagash book. It's not the dwarf book. So the archway opens, um, but this is where the terror geist it smashes the cannon. The terror geist is ripping stuff up. Um, Krell can't get his troops past Thane Cragson, but so he's just keeping them busy, and he's moving in for the kill, and suddenly, and uh, King Cazador shows up, and the, and the gyrocopter comes flying in. The dwarfs are there. They're like, yeah, more dwarfs. And um, they start fighting. Of course, that's when... Grolsig shows up <laughs> with his guys. He's following along after the undead, hoping to whatever it is that they're doing, that he could sort of, uh, he wants to just sort of loot and pillage in their wake. But they get there. This is this is great. This is just, this shows that animosity between the, especially night goblins and dwarves, is they show up there. They see that what's going on. He kind of peeks around the corner. I'm kind of picturing peeking around the corner. What's all this fighting going on? And all the army with him smells the dwarf blood, and they go nuts. And they're just like, Bruh! and they go charging in. There's a cool bit where it says, uh, with foolish pride, Grosnick ignored his tendencies for self-preservation and attempted to save face by ordering his already advancing mobs to charge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great passage. <laughs> After a few bellows, he personally joined the scrum and attempted to push into the cavern. And they do, oh, and there we go. Squigs and the Night Goblins are pushing past the undead. Thane Cragson is there with his guys fighting back. Suddenly the netters are there, and they net Thane Cragson. And everyone's poking at him and chopping at him and cutting through his armor. And uh, what's his name? Grolsik shows up and sticks a dagger through the eye hole in his visor in his helmet and stabs him in the brain. Nice. And kill, and kills Thane Cragson. <laughs> um. Meanwhile, the Neferata and her handmaidens are still trying to get to Thorek. Uh, his next anvil blow kills Imlintet, one of the handmaidens, and then it splits, and the ground behind it, start, ground around it, starts like just caving in, like the, the like everything is cracking and falling apart around it, and that's when Neferata screams after he kills her favorite handmaiden. She jumps over and stabs him 
like twice and then throws him into the into the hole that the anvil created. Um and this is where it gets bad. King Cazador kills the terrorgeist, the black hammers kill all the ghouls, and then of course the night goblins attack them from the rear while they're doing this. Because the night goblins are cheaty. Um hey, target of opportunity. Yeah, that's it. So now everyone's dying. Uh Krell's gotta come in because this this new thing is going. Um he's going after King Cazador. And um, he sees Krell, and he goes after Krell, and they're fighting, and they're fighting, and then they wouldn't go through, they wouldn't stop uh, fighting. Um, the hammer of Karak Azul pounds Krell's armor, dropping the white to his knees, but Krell's last blow fell true. His axe, dark power writhing, severed not just his long beard, but his head as well. There's an, we need to count the decapitations in this book. I tell you what, more people get decapitated in this book than lose hands in the Star Wars trilogy. <laughs> I think you might be right. So King Cazador gets decapitated. The dwells probably would have been slaughtered except Thoric Ironbrow battered, bleeding though he was. The old rune lord was tough as the roots of the mountain. His body was broken. He caught himself on the edge with one arm, and he's hanging there. He pulls himself back up, crawls along the floor, gets to his beloved anvil, raises his hammer, and with his unbroken arm, he smote the anvil. So he smashes the anvil one last time, blows it up, and the anvil of doom was split. Arcs of power, bolts of pure vengeance, and a seismic blast of concussive force exploded outwards all at once, and so ended the Battle of Valia's Gate. That's a good way for that anvil to go out. Yeah. <laughs> um, Neferata pulls herself out of the rubble, sees the few dwarfs fighting and running. Um, then she basically, what does she, she dusts herself off. She should have ripped off Thorik's head. Somehow, despite gutting him, that damn rune lord dragged himself back and tried to bring the whole cavern down, just like a dwarf, spiteful to his dying breath. See, she should have ripped off his head. It says that again, but she probably should been too much decapitation. We do not need another one. <laughs> yeah, error. Um, so the undead army was shattered, but it didn't matter. It could be raised again. Because, of course, because all they got to do is wave their hands. It's that easy now. Uh, Krell, she noticed, with no satisfaction, had survived. <laughs> but he's noticeably weaker, so whatever hit him, hit him hard. Yep. Could she use that weakness to advantage? We'll see. But then, the yeah, so... Yeah, if she if he could just die, she could just, you know, get all the credit for for doing this on her own. And that's the end of the chapter. So, I since I haven't finished the book, I'm going to ask Chris, uh, you know, spoiler here. Uh we don't see Thoric Ironbrow again, do we? No. Okay. So, but we haven't seen his body either. Yeah, so going by my rationale, he's still alive, but as he's a dirty dwarf, I'm saying dead. <laughs> yeah, I want to say dead too. But I'm sure he's going to be dead. <laughs> It's like a cockroach. You just can't get rid of him. Oh, wow. And so I, we kind of rushed to that last part. But, I mean, there was only, I mean, there was the two battles, and one of them was, I mean, you know, it was, it was really cool listening to all the descriptions of all the stuff the Night Goblins were doing, but that was mostly a one-sided battle. But the yeah. battle of, of all three of them packed into this cave where it's just wall-to-wall bodies, that's a great visual. Yeah. 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 I think the goblins really... It's the goblins that make both those battles, I think, because it's written very well. There's there's some good passages in that chapter um, in regards to Neferata and her handmaidens that we didn't touch, but it's 
wouldn't have been really that interesting to discuss, but they're just quite, I don't know, I found them quite interesting to read um, and, and how that all goes on. But it's, it's similar to, very similar to Manfred as well in the way it's about keeping your your most trusted ones close to you that aren't likely to backstab you, the whole inner politics of being a vampire, I suppose. Yep. But yeah, I think, it's, not just because it's Dwarf's in it, but I think that, mi- that middle chapter is probably the weakest in a way, I think. It's the Chapter shortest, three, and it's I mean. just what Neferata's trying to do. And really, in the in the grand scheme of things, unless it becomes really big later, I mean, they did open the gate. If somebody goes in there and finds it later, I, I'm hoping that later opening that that door comes into play somehow with the dwarves. I wonder, I wonder if that's where the wood elves will emerge from. Oh, would that that's be funny? I don't know. It's 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 a magical portal. You know, one might lead to the other. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I mean, it really is. I mean, I'm 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 thinking that's just laying the ground for some. Basically, that whole chapter they needed to open that door for later is what I'm thinking because the rest of it really is. It's sort of. You're right. That's that's. I didn't really think about it. I found it all quite not irrelevant, but just not that big in the grand scheme. But I guess I guess you're right that it all does come to that point doesn't it so there must be some mm. some purpose to that I suppose. this is like a kind of a foundation laying type chapter uh, yeah but it, so in, in terms of door fluff that 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 gate that they opened what normally is that like a pathway to their sort of afterlife or well i mean or, it, or a portal for their god to come into the living world or what's... well the door he opened has some ancient artifacts in it as stuff that was made by dwarves like the 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 founder dwarves the ones whose whose uh ability to craft has been lost so like these the stuff they find is better than anything they have and that's basically what he's looking for sorry are the answer like the ancestor gods or whatever they called are they meant to be have been physical beings or are they sort of yeah they were they existed they 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 were there and then eventually they just sort of walked off like sigmar like they left, and that's sort of the the, the rumor is they're going to come back someday. Uh, okay, and what better time than the end times? Well, yeah, that's when they're going to mm. come back when they're needed the most. You know, it's like sort of like that, you know, Arthurian legend. So, okay, well, I suppose that brings potentially more purpose to it. Yeah, and that's the thing. They found this gate, and if that's what's if that's actually what's in there, if it was Valia's gate, that's 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 freaking huge. Like they could come back. Mm. So. Um, so what? What bit from from all those first three chapters? What bits do you find most interesting, and what are you hoping to see going forward for those parts or your favorite armies? Chris, Ooh, that's a good question. For me, uh, the possibilities for the high elf, dark elf, I mean, are are endless, and there's just the visuals of someone pulling that sort of cane. Yeah, maybe that would that mean that. Uh, Kane would embody, you know, kind of manifest himself in the body of whoever that person is and become sort of like the, the fantasy version of the Eldar avatar walking amongst, you know, a nice big model to, to go up against a big Nagash. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, um, I think, oh, I'd like to think I've made it well clear that that's, I'm pretty much with you on, on that being my sort of main focus with it and excitement in where it goes. Um, yeah, yeah, the techless thing is the coolest thing that happened in this book. It really is. Well, so, when you so get far, on, at least. Yeah, chapter four, um, you get a lot more of Balthazar Gelt, and he 
for for a man of the empire he is a super super interesting character so i'll be interested to hear on what your take on him is and where he goes so that'll be pretty cool yeah oh and i think you know before we wrap this up and i think there's some really cool stuff that's in here but i think we ought to take a moment to remember the fallen um <laughs> village the cursling as we remember was wounded with a bullet to the head uh ariel of athalorn is in the tree we don't know what happened king lewin uh finubar and thoric ironbrow are all sort of missing we don't know what happened eldir has become a vampire and then uh malubad gracier critislick Thomas von Karstein, Duke Tancred of Quinell, Duke Theodoric of Brion, Kemmler, Feskin, and Skit Snickred of Clan Mordkin, uh, Commandant Otto Cross, Morgan Le Fay, Belenair, Volkmar, Eltharian, and Stormwing, Zacharias the Everleaving, Dietrich von Dahl, Boric Boldstone, and Bodrick Boldstone, Craggy, <laughs> uh, Thane Krogson, Imantet, and King Kazador. All 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 gone in three chapters yeah yeah three chapters in the span of like three years <laughs> crazy yeah. that's a, there's a lot of death there so no notable greenskins or beastmen though but no. a lot of them no I think, yeah, a lot a lot of them died but no one with a big name who wound up dying it's just because there's no notable beastmen as we've discussed <laughs> yeah <laughs> just full stop so there we go. That's that's okay. That's that's the first half. We're on page one hundred and sixty-one now of Nagash. So, um, Jack, yeah, Chris, about, about halfway through book one of her books. So, wow, it's an epic tale. Yeah, this, yeah, they're going to run out of characters to kill. <laughs> they're going to have to start making more people up. <laughs> Well, that's what I wonder. I wonder. I don't see that there's been anyone that's been introduced as a new character that I can see coming in as one in in a book. I don't know. That's what I was wondering if they'd bring sort of, do you know what I mean? Like new characters in that would make appearance in future books. Yeah. I don't know. So outside of the stuff that's obvious, the Tyrion and Teclis thing, is there anybody who hasn't been mentioned that you guys are looking forward to seeing where they come in and how they fit into the story? Yeah, Archeon. Mm, yes, he's a big piece. He's central, but uh... He's, uh, he's chilling at the moment. So let's see what happens when he when he really comes into play. That should be interesting. Yeah, the the thing I saw, he's the cover of the next book. Is so, it, so is, they've actually is, is, was it going to be called Archeon? Then is it? Or... I, I'm guessing, and then because yeah, because I mean, there's a lot going on over there that we haven't even you know. I mean, we're still just. Heck, we're looking at the book Nagash, and we don't—he don't even show up till page 120. You know, <laughs> I mean, so yeah, there's so yeah, much. Nagash is a big player. I mean, his presence—you know, his his big push to the south is what precipitated this whole thing, right? Yep. I Chris, guess. I guess. Sorry, another exciting thing will be to find out exactly what Master Mundi was on about with this uh, mm. Exodus. That'd be interesting. Oh yeah, that is cool. What about you, Chris? Anything you're looking forward to? Uh, maybe mention of the chaos dwarves, just out of curiosity. I just, just can't see that thing. I just, I don't know. It's a bit odd, I think. But it is weird that they completely ignored them. So, I, I, you know, yeah, I agree with you. I'm curious, but still, it's like it's sort of like, no, well, what no, are they going to do? Kind of a footnote, anyway. Um, I, I don't know. I, it's, I'm just kind of taking it all in. It's just so epic, and it touches all corners of this world that I, it's, I'm just kind of 
I'm just on the ride, seeing where he takes me. Well, yeah. I'm just, I want to see when Gotrek shows up, because he's got to show up. Do you know, you know they've released a new Gotrek and Felix book. Do you know what that the, the series is called, the, the last series? The Doom of Gotrek Gurnison. It's a trilogy. They're releasing three more books, and he's finally going to meet his doom. Yeah, so I think that's meant to link in with all this end time stuff as well, isn't it? So yeah, I'm assuming as much. Hopefully, hopefully it'll be something worth it. Like, I mean, he's only had like ten or fifteen books. This guy's got to die, like either saving the universe or, or or something. You know, seriously, I can't think of I can't think of what he you could don't want do. Want to this. slip and fall and hit his head <laughs> <laughs> on the bathtub? Right. <laughs> 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 getting ready for the big battle the night before he's got a Dude, cup, he's got a cup of warm cocoa and uh and and his bathrobe and as he goes in he slips and hits his head on the tub and that's the end proper way for an impish mule to go out oh. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> i think i'm upsetting dave so with that i think we can draw things to a close for for this, part one of the Negash Review. Yes, we must. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Chris, for coming on and helping us with this. Absolutely. Right, it was, it was a blast. I had a, had a lot of fun. It is now 20 past six in the morning, so oh. I don't have to get asleep or just not bother. Oh, jeez. <laughs> God. All for the sake of Warhammer. So we do thank you for staying with us. Well, thank you very, very much for having me. It was, like I said, it was a, a lot of fun, yeah. And, hey, losing one to... night of sleep is a small price to pay for being on one of these Marathon Garage Hammer episodes. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a dream. <laughs> hey, you know what? You watching the sunrise and being sober—that's going to be a new experience for uh, you. So just go with it, man. I have, I have been drinking. I've been, I've been adding a bit of Quantre to my monster to. to <laughs> that's right. Get it. Get yourself a depressant and a stimulant. That is great. I am still in. It's, it's working. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, again, thanks, Chris. And, folks, um, we will be back in about two weeks with the second half of Nagash. Hope you enjoyed. See you later. Take care, guys. You've been listening to Garage Hammer. If you like the show, we invite you to join the Garage Hammer community by joining our forums at garagehammer.net slash forum or our Facebook page, Garage Hammer Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter. Follow David at Garage Hammer and follow Chris at Topher Chris U. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach David through David at GarageHammer.net. You can reach me, that's Chris, through Chris U at GarageHammer.net. And you can reach both of us through GarageHammer at Live.com. If you want to help support GarageHammer, check the support page or the show store on our website, or leave us a positive review on iTunes. Until next time, thanks for listening.